Hello again, friends, and welcome to another very special 605 Super Podcast Holiday Star Wars. Of course, this one being our now annual tradition, Opening Day Star Wars, where we talk wrestling as well as the opening day of the baseball season. I have two people on the line with me right now to begin the proceedings. One is the man who last year on this show correctly predicted the Houston Astros to win the World Series. I don't know how he did it. I mocked him on the air for doing it. And that is my friend and yours, Mr. John McAdam. John, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, even though you're always mocking me on the air, Brian. How are you? <laughs> I don't know about that. And I'm also very happy to welcome one of our most popular guests. And of course, I've not just talked wrestling with him. I've talked baseball with him. He, of course, is the Taskmaster, the Boston Battler. But today we'll call him the Games Master because we're about to start the opening day of the baseball season. And lots of games are going to be coming at us. And that, of course, is Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, and John, great to be on the show with you, and Brian, thank you very much. You know, I don't know what I was thinking doing this with you two, because here I am, a nice Mets fan from New York, from Long Island, and I have two Boston Red Sox fans on the line with me right now, so I probably should have planned this out a little bit better, had someone on my side here on the air. Yeah, I, I don't know about John, but I was not forgiving you yet for 86. So. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth, Kevin. I am yeah. not forgetting 1986 ever. It's a slow grounded down first base. Oh, it's Drew Bugner's like <laughs> Okay. <laughs> hey, Kevin, I was, I was actually at that game in oh, New York. And, uh, oh. yeah, we left the what stadium. Happened? We what left the stadium. The break when you were hanging yourself? <laughs> we we left the stadium because we thought oh. we had Massachusetts plates in our car and we're and the guy who owned the car is like we got to get out of here they're going to burn our car so we were yeah. watching the Buckner gaff on a black and white TV in the Mets parking lot and I was 21 at the time my friend who was a little bit older said that was the closest I've ever seen a 21 year old to having a heart attack he said you just started grabbed your chest and started walking backwards Oh, I know. There were some horrible jokes after that. You know, the old one, you hear about Bugner committed, tried to commit suicide. No, what happened? He jumped in front of a bus and went through his legs. <laughs> I mean, there was some brutal stuff going on. But one of the things that I was very happy when he came back after he won in 2004, he got the biggest ovation. I mean, he won the National League batting title. He was close to a 300 hitter. He wasn't a 300 hitter. He should have never been in there that late. I bring McNamara, you know, so. It worked Once out again, you us. took the words out of my mouth, Kevin. McNamara should not have had him out there. Forget about that. What about McNamara's management of the bullpen? Where's Calvin Schiraldi? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen them all together like I've seen uh, – Mookie and I've seen Bugner and Schiraldi on these talk shows and I was never comfortable with Schiraldi and I, Don you know that when they were together in college as roommates uh, Clemens was the closer and he was the starter but University of Texas yep yeah there was something about him that I never was comfortable it was like he was the guy that when he came in, his eyes were saying, oh, I don't want to be here in this situation. That's right. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, how did the Red Sox get him? Something that helped the Mets that year. It was Chiraldi for Bob Ojeda, who ended up being our biggest yeah. winner. Yeah. 
Yep. And I mean, he had been great for the Red Sox for a long time. Or if not great, he was adequate He's during a lefty. that period. Yeah, you, you don't never yeah. let go of a lefty. <laughs> that's my yeah. that's my big rule. But I'm curious, you know, whether it's 86, and I don't know if you would remember exactly, but where would you be when you would watch a World Series? If you were on the road, typically, did you I, I, try to break away and watch baseball? I can remember that game specifically. I was getting ready to go on the main event in Birmingham, Alabama at the Boutwell Auditorium and they had a very good house and when that went through, the ball went through Bugner's legs. I don't know how I reacted because I was in a daze. I don't know if I became <laughs> stiff or if I gave him a pushover but I mean there was a pall over my head for a long time. To watch that and then have to go out and work. Just seems like an yeah, impossible yeah. task. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one thing I was curious about, because I think you probably still would have been in the Boston area in 67, but were you there for the oh. 67 Red Sox? And if you were, I want to know your opinion. How big of a star would Tony Canigliaro have been? He would have been a shoe-in for the Hall of Fame. He was the youngest guy ever to hit 100 home runs. His first time at bat in Fenway Park, he had a home run. And, you know, we always talk about wrestling having clicks and po political things in the back room, right? There was a big click there then. Uh, he was in with his uh, brother, Joe LaHood, and uh, Russ Gibson, where Yastrzemski had Reggie Smith and uh, Rico Petroselli and a bunch of other guys on his side. So I think... You know, there was some heat there. But I remember in 67, I was going to Collins, and I lived on Egmont Street, which was about a mile and a half from Fenway Park. And back in the day, it was almost nothing to go to Fenway Park. So I wasn't the most attentive student in school, and I would go to the ball game a lot of afternoons and sit <laughs> in bleachers, you know. And back then, they didn't draw. You know, it was, I look back at it, you know, and they had that 14-year run where they had consecutive sellouts. But I think the 67 Red Sox put them on the map and became the starter Red Sox nation. So, yeah, and I look back and people that weren't there, I don't know. If anybody, and I mean, Ted Williams, we can go down the list. I don't know if anybody had the year Yastrzemski did. Besides winning the Triple Crown, he led the league in assists. He was making unbelievable catches. It was almost like it was a movie. If they were losing two to one in the ninth inning, what did he go uh, six for eight the last two games against the Twins? Yeah. I mean, he single-handedly carried that team, and you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I may be really off on this, but didn't he win like 18 Gold Gloves? I mean, he was a fabulous. Uh, he he started out as an infielder, a shortstop, and he would charge the ball in the outfield, and he knew how to play that bounce off of the green monster better than anybody because back in that day, now it's fiberglass. But back in the day, it was tin, and it would take a funny bounce if it hit a stud or something. 
and it would also leave an indentation. So he he was the best at playing the, that wall. Yeah, I, I you know, I grew up with the Red Sox. It's a funny thing, and I want to ask you guys this question. I mean, I was a baseball fan from the time I was young. I remember my dad took me to the first baseball game, and I ever went to, and uh, this is really showing my age, uh, it was Yogi, it was Skyron, it was Richardson, uh, it was Phil Rizzuto, uh, and it was Mantle, Bauer, and Hector Lopez. Whitey was on the Ford, uh, Whitey Ford was on the, on the bump. I mean, that was an all-star team. I mean, all the majority went to the Hall of Fame. And then the Red Sox had, you know, the incomparable Ted Williams. And uh, I became a baseball fan. But what the question I'm going to ask you was, was there any time you ever fell out of, not the love of baseball, but kind of put it into uh, your, uh, a, a timeout period? Because I did. Because we were on the road so much, I wasn't keeping up on it. It wasn't like today, you know. This is when uh, the USA paper first started, and I was kind of keeping up with it. Then I was on the road so much, I kind of lost interest in it for a short while. Did that ever happen to you guys? John, what about you? Why don't you go first? Um, I can I can honestly say no. I think I faded out of it a little bit when I was in high school because I had so much going on socially and I was you know playing the game itself. But yeah, I always tried to keep up with the Red Sox during the summer and watch as many games as I could. It, it, it changed a little bit after 2004 when they finally won the World Series. It was like you know you reach the top of the highest mountain and you're never going to get you know that high up in the sky again. But I, I've never really had a a down period i have because you know it's a little different when you're a met fan because you know we're 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 used to bad teams and met the mets have had some of the very worst teams if not the worst teams in baseball history but we still watch they're still entertaining we've been blessed that we've always had really good commentators right now we have gary Cohn, keith hernandez and ron darling who are amazing they're impeccable they're a perfect trio in the booth and usually i don't like a three-man booth but they're they're fantastic together but there are periods of time where when they got rid of Valentine and they brought in Art Howe and then they brought in Mo Vaughn yeah. and Bernitz and they brought Sedano back and, you know, they had really shitty pitching. It was rough. It was rough to watch those games. And then when Willie came on and uh, Omar Minaya became the GM and all of a sudden they got Pedro from the Sox after he left the Sox after right. 2004 and they brought in Beltron and they brought in, brought in Delgado and they had the young players like Wright and Reyes really got me back into it. And then after that all fell apart in the beginning of this decade, it was really tough to watch when it was Jerry Manuel and the Mets just, they couldn't get anything going and everyone was injured. It was tough, but you know, I've also had years where I've watched, if not every single game, 90 to 95% of every single game, or at least listen to the radio. But it's just something, yeah. you know, when you're a baseball fan, I, I don't, I never understand that people say they'll never watch again or, you know, they're, you know, I remember when the strike happened, there were people saying, I'll never support baseball again. I'll never support, which I never understood because, you know, why, why are you taking the owner's side? You know, cause I remember people like players, right. are, the players are too greedy. They're too greedy. What? You know, yeah. what? 
But you know, right? And I, during the strike, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I'm now fascinated to know where you were going to go during the strike. I was at Smoky Mountain Wrestling Fan Week. <laughs> in ninety four, so in ninety four, um, that's when the strike broke out. We were down there in Tennessee because I remember being in that hotel in Knoxville and picking up the newspaper and them talking about the strike. And I want to say that's right when Dwight Gooden got busted, which made him sit out the entire year of ninety five before Steinbrenner brought him in in ninety six. Yeah, I was you actually know. going down the road of the eighty one strike, where I kind of had to become an expert on all things baseball negotiations because I'd go into high school and people would be like, you know, Oh my God, the players are so greedy. They want more money. I'm, I'd be like, uh, no, here's what's really going on. I, I get two quick uh, little anecdotes. I was living in Knoxville, Southeastern championship wrestling before Smoky Mountain wrestling. If you guys remember that, sure. Ron Fuller was Jonah. Steve Howell lived in my same apartment complex. Get out of here. Could've... Yeah, I could have told you what was going to happen then, you know. I would <laughs> not not that I ever participated, but I would walk by his apartment very closely, maybe say hello to him, you know, but I saw that that but I have a, you know, people say the baseball players are way overpaid and all this. You know what I do every year? I go to a batting cage and get in that 75 mile an hour cage. And it's right so intimidating. I sit back and say, these guys run the paid. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you play for over 15 years, it is the only profession that I know of, and you guys can correct me, that you can feel 75, 70% of the time and you go into the Hall of Fame and sometimes more. But 70% of the time, you're almost guaranteed to go in the Hall of Fame. There's only a few guys I know that have hit 300 that aren't in the Hall of Fame. The steroid era obviously changes everything. I mean, that's the weird thing yeah. when it comes to stats and especially the Hall of Fame. Although, I mean, I guess, you know, with baseball, that's the beautiful thing. We can judge, uh, you know, players from the 1930s versus players from now because of the stats. But there are so many intangibles that it's hard to truly do that. We don't know what Major League Baseball is doing to the baseball now versus yeah. what they've done throughout the years. 68 obviously changed a lot of things in how, you know, Major League Baseball was handling things the year of the pitcher. So all of a sudden they changed things I got there. that book. Do you guys get that book? Which one? It's called The Year of the Pitcher. Oh, no, I don't have that book. That's, it, it's, uh, I'm upstairs. And I'll take a look if I can grab. Denny McLean won 31 games. Yeah. And yeah. Bob Gibson's ERA was one two two. No. Think about it. No, no, no. It was lower. <laughs> it was one. Well, it was one one two. Yeah, it was one point one two. One oh. Can you imagine? Yeah, you see, to me that's that. not a very exciting game. See, I like that. I like in a pitcher's the, duel. I like a pitcher's duel. And the crazy thing was Yastrzemski won the batting crown with three oh one. The only guy that hit three hundred that year. That's amazing. Think about that. Three oh one. John, I'm curious what you th your thoughts are about the steroid era and how to judge it versus everything else that happened in baseball history and whether guys like Bonds, Clemens, uh, I'll throw Rafael Palmero in there because I see he's trying to make a comeback. Should these guys be in the Hall of Fame or not? All three of them should, yes. Um, I mean, there's, first of all, there's no evidence that Roger Clemens used steroids. He, he uh, stated um, under oath, under the risk of perjury, that he never used steroids. I mean, that, that means something to me. Um, also, 
in any era, you have to compare the players to the players they're playing in that era. Of course, you know, if you have a guy who played in 1910, his his batting stats are not going to look as good as someone from 2001. So, I mean, you keep things within that context. Bill James used to talk about something called the black ink test. You go to the baseball encyclopedia, you look at a player. If there's a ton of black ink there, by the way, black ink means you led the league in something. Um you're probably a Hall of Famer. What do you think, Kevin? You know, here's the thing about the steroid, and I agree those guys should be in the Hall of Fame, but I think there needs to be a wing or an explanation that these guys were, some of them were not, uh, didn't come out and get caught, but because of these numbers, there's a question mark. And I, I think they should be in. Uh, the only guy I don't think should be in, and this gets a lot of heat with me, Pete Rose. Huh? He was bet- he was betting on his team. He he could have called in a shit. And I know Pete personally. He was. Do you know he was Dusty Rhodes' brother-in-law? No. What? No. <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. Dusty's wife's sister had a baby by Pete Rose. And I got, I met him quite a few times. I wouldn't put anything by, by that guy. And, uh, I, you know, you, you, you're leading five to four and it's the eighth inning. You got three men on base and you use the guy the night before and he's been, was wild when you pulled him. That's the only guy, you know, how, how do you not put Barry in? How do you not put Roger in? They were Hall of Famers before they even was a hint of steroids on them. So I think, yeah, they deserve to be in. Alice Rodriguez. I saw Alice Rodriguez when he was played for Westminster Christian in Miami. Wow. He nice. came down Coral Shores, and he had a ball into the mangroves that had to be 400 feet as a sophomore. So, I mean, there were some talented guys, you know, really, like Manny Machado. I mean, there were special guys. And, okay, we'll say, Alex, took, we'll take the hypothetical that he took steroids. Okay, hit the ball 450 feet rather than 430. You know what I mean? He still had, and, and it wasn't that they were the only ones taking it. There were a lot of guys taking it that they were playing against. The pitchers were taking it. I mean, the only guy that jumps out at me, who's the kid? I, and I see him on the uh, cover of Sports Illustrated, his name. He uh, was a Barry, the kid that had the great body, hit 52 home runs for Baltimore. And then he. Brady Anderson. Him. Yeah, Brady Anderson. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt now, about him. Yeah, yeah. There's something wrong there, you know. I mean, everything just worked from that year. But I think most of the guys uh, that we believe are Hall of Famers were Hall of Famers anyway. Well, you know, Kevin, I am in a hundred percent agree with you, agreement with you uh, when it comes to Pete Rose, and I'll even go a step further. Pete, there are pictures of Pete Rose where he looks like the Michelin Man, and he lived with a steroid dealer. I think Pete Rose used steroids. 
But here's the thing. There's no rule stating that if you use steroids, you don't go into the Hall of Fame. There is a rule, and it, it, you see it on the way out of the clubhouse every single time exactly. you go on the field. If you gamble on baseball, you're out. And yep. that's as clear as day, and I believe from day one that, that Pete Rose bet on baseball, and then he finally came out and admitted it. And I'm just like, hey, you know, that's the penalty. You, you're out. Sorry. Yeah, and and I agree with you because a lot of people don't know that there there it's written right on the wall. The youth, the gambling uh, association with known gamblers, you're out of the game. So other than that, you know, and uh, hey, and I do believe that these guys that haven't gotten in as we get further and further away from that era, people. The one thing about the people in this country we love to build guys up we like to tear them down but we do like to see them rise from the ashes so i think we're going to start seeing uh ball players that we might have thought at first there's no way they'll get in they'll get in eventually maybe last try uh old timers you know committee i think we're going to see a rash of them get in I think that probably will happen just because, and I know you and I have briefly discussed it before on the air, now that we have people in there that even if we don't know, they are the names that have been accused, Piazza, Bagwell, I'll say Ricky Henderson, I've said him before. It's hard to keep other people out if people from that era, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Look, I will tell you my opinion 100% is Brady Anderson was doing steroids in 96. I can't prove it. We can't prove it with anybody. So it's hard to keep anyone out from that era and then let people selectively in because- you want to believe them, but you don't want to believe David Ortiz, or you don't want to believe this guy. Yeah, well, well, here's the thing about David Ortiz, and I thought about this. You know, the the commissioner came out, Manfred came out and said that didn't mean the test that he tested positive. Remember last year, they almost started a PR thing for Ortiz, right? Yeah. But his last four years, he hit over 30 home runs or better and 100 RBIs, he drew, He had a batting average out of those four years over 300 or maybe three out of the four. And then he led the league as a 40-year-old in six departments. And, the, and then in 2013, you know, he... he he what he hit 688, but he would have hit over 700 if Beltran didn't make that unbelievable catch for the Grand Slam. You know what I mean? Do you remember that in Fenway Park where he caught that ball when they played the you know in Fenway Park? He 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 got hurt. He didn't play the next game. He ran into the wall and made a diving catch. So. If if he did use it, I don't. I think he would have been under much more scrutiny the last four years, and that was, uh, except for what was it, two thousand and three, where he hit the fifty-four home runs. That was his best. That was basically the best four years he ever had consecutively. His last four years out. And it bears mentioning that he passed all of the tests. He was tested, right. um, you know, just like everyone else, and he passed all of the tests. My favorite thing about David Ortiz, do you know? You guys know how the Red Sox got him? When the Twins cut him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. He wasn't even yeah. David Ortiz yet. He was David Arias back then. Yeah. No, he was David Ortiz. Was he? Because I have his baseball no, he card. Was... He was David Arias when he was with the Twins. Yeah. 
Yeah. He might have been at one did. point, but he was he was Ortiz when he came up. Okay. I mean, okay. And I, w- I was actually, you know, not to be boastful, I knew the Twins cut someone who had potential, although I didn't think he had the potential to do what he did. I was outright celebrating when the Red Sox signed him. They signed him and a couple of other guys, and I was running around saying, you know, between the three of these guys, we might get 60 home runs out of first base plus DH. Yeah. And, and One of the guys the other- I struck out on was Jeremy Jambi, but oh well. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing was, they both came, I mean, the both, him and Veritek both came up in this Seattle organization. They let both of them go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So all this statistics stuff and the analytics, sometimes you just got to watch a guy and see if he's different, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mo Vaughn, excuse me, David Ortiz totally reminded me of Mo Vaughn and yeah. uh, Veritek won the Golden Spikes Award when he was at Georgia Tech. So you knew, you know, they were talking about him being the next Johnny Bench. Yeah. Yeah. He may have been the next Muhammad Ali after that A Rod incident. <laughs> that yeah, was that one was, of the most fun things turned, ever. Yeah. Yeah. That turned, the, that turned the season around when he shoved the mitt in his face. That was great. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you. Well, let me ask you this on that topic because I think it's easy to say that in the East right now, currently, the Red Sox will be the team to beat. Although the Yankees look unstoppable, the Red Sox finished first last year. They are the team to beat in the East. At what point in your guys' life as Red Sox fans did you hate the Yankees the most? John, you first. Oh, man. I remember there was a huge fight, I want to say in 1977, uh, where the Yankees just kicked the Red Sox's ass. I mean, there there was a bean brawl and there was a fight and the Red Sox just got killed. And there was a picture in the newspaper the next day of Bill Lee with his <laughs> left arm in a yeah. sling and his, one of his eyes was swollen shut from when Greg Nettles got done with him. And I burst into tears. I couldn't stand those Yankees. But you know what? They played with balls. They had Billy Martin. They said, hey, we're the big, bad New York Yankees. Come get us. And look what the Red Sox were. They were the guys that got beat up in a fight. I remember uh, Lee being in that sling, too. But for me, it was 2003 when they blew it with, you know, Pedro. That broke my heart. I mean. Yeah. And then. That was the low point. Yeah. And and I remember there's another one with the 78. Bucky Dent and then Aaron Boone. It seemed like they always had a number. And that 2004. Let me ask you guys this. After 2004, right? Even as great as they were, there was something about them that they overcame the hump. We didn't have the curse anymore. We didn't have the biting of the fingernails. How are they going to blow it this year? It became a different aura around that team. Do you think? Yeah. I I very much agree that you know once you got over that hump, once psychologically you can see that it doesn't always end in a car wreck. That you know, yeah, you get over that. I mean, there was a joke going around after they beat the Yankees in Game Seven that the the, the broadcast was going to end with, and tomorrow night, tune in for Game Eight of the Yankees versus Red Sox series because you just knew something was going to go bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see. I was lucky because I lived very close to the park, so I used to go 
And I, I can remember there was a there's here's a name from the past that people don't realize. In '61, the Yankees had three catchers that hit over 20 home runs, and the one that was the Red Sox destroyer was Johnny Blanchett. Yeah. He was a platoon yeah. guy, but he when he came to Boston, he was the catcher. Uh, Yogi would be the left fielder, and uh, you know, he uh, in right field they may put Elston. And uh, here's a funny thing: that I looked up Elston played third base once in a while. And this I is think Howard, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, the trivia question is: in 1961, there was no. I'm sorry, 1962, the four. MVPs, one from the AFL, the one from the NFL, and two leagues in baseball were off number 38. Howard, Koufax, Jim Brown, and Cookie Gilchrist. Wow. I never knew that. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I got to see a lot of ball games, but I can remember uh, Johnny Blanchard would kill us. So, and they always had let me ask you guys this. I mean, yeah. the athletes today, the ballplayers today, they are great athletes. You know what I mean? A lot of them play dual sports. We'll even say Brady, uh, you know, he played baseball. Do you think the Yankees had better athletes besides them being good baseball players? Back then? Are you, in the 60s you're talking? Yeah, back then. Back then because, you know, uh, Casey platooned a lot of guys. So Yogi was a cat and I played a little baseball and it's very hard. It was very hard for me anyway. I caught, it was very hard for me to catch. And then them throw me out to left field. It was like, I was running around in a merry-go-round trying to catch a ball <laughs> yeah. because it was, it was so different, but it seemed to me they had interchangeable guys where most teams didn't, you know, they had like guys that could play first and second or second and, and, and short, where most of the teams back then, it was a, a, a one-position guy. The only other guy that I can remember was uh, in a big star, 500-home run hitter, was Hama Killebrew. He played third, uh, first, and, and uh, the outfield. Yeah, they had a lot of good athletes. I mean, one of the things about those early 60s Yankees, and I guess we could even say into you know the late 50s as well, is that you had Kansas City as your de facto minor league system. I mean, you had your yeah. you had your minor league system, but you always had Kansas City that you can go and say, yeah. oh, what's Roger Maris doing? We'll we'll take him. What do you want? We'll give you nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I miss yeah. that too. And I think baseball was a little bit better back when things weren't so rigid. I mean, things are so rigid now. Every team has a full-time designated hitter instead of using that position to rest a regular player but still have that bat in the lineup. I mean, that's the way I would play it. You know, you miss having uh, one of the most valuable players, I think, of all time was a 90s guy named Tony Phillips who could play any position on the diamond other than catcher and pitcher. Um, When you have a guy like that and he can hit, um, it's like having the blank piece in Scrabble. You can do anything with it. And I just miss having guys like that. Right. We have a few of them on the Mets. We're we're pretty lucky. We have a few guys who can play different positions, and they're trying to get some of these guys into more positions. And you know, I I I I love baseball, but I'm someone who I wish 
it's not going to happen, but I wish one of these teams would have a general manager who would say, I'll make the moves, but I'm going to be hands off. I want a manager who's going to take control, put the lineup they want yeah. together, pick their own coaches. I mean, when was the last time a manager got to pick all their own coaches? It doesn't happen because too much is coming from the office. And then they tell yeah. you what they want the lineups to be based on stats. And look, baseball's about stats and, and you have to acknowledge them, but instincts right. mean something too. You know, I'll take, I'll take a manager with ins. I'll take a Billy Martin. Although not if I was the owner, because he would drive me nuts. But as a fan, I would take a Billy Martin versus one of these, uh, I was about to say Stratomatic, but one of these Bill James guys, because he could pay attention to what's happening. He knew how to unnerve a pitcher. Hey, get up here on the top step and yell at that pitcher. I'll be over here getting ready for the next thing. I, I miss I'll that. Give, I'll give you an example of what you're talking about. The year after... Uh... PD won the second, won the MVP, the second baseman for the Red Sox, El Pedroia. Yeah. My youngest one took me to uh, spring training, and she saw him, and he, she's, he was running out to his position. She says, oh, I like this spring training. I said, why? She said, because even the bat boy gets to play. I said, what are you talking about? She says, the guy playing second base is a bad Oh, my God. I said, he's the most valuable player. But <laughs> analytically wise, he wouldn't have played, right? I mean, if they have these such strong analytical yeah. guys, he might have been overlooked. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think analytics plays a lot, but you can't measure a guy's heart. And he's one of them, you know? Yeah. And, you know, beyond that even, like – you know, he's a good example. Altuve is another. You know, a lot of teams will shy. A lot of wow. teams will shy away from signing a player who isn't six foot two, and just like they'll shy away from signing a pitcher who doesn't throw ninety five. But if you look at some of the people who have been successful in baseball in the last few years, or the last twenty years even, like Maddox didn't throw a great fastball. He mixed it up. Altuve is not six foot two. Pedroia is not six foot two, but they've both been the most valuable player for a reason. And that's what I wish baseball and a lot of these general managers would pay attention to is guys with instincts, guys with hearts, as much as we need a guy who could throw 95 to 100. We need a guy who's going to hit 40 home runs. You know what? It's not bad to go station to station sometimes. Yeah. All right. Two I'm quick gonna... things. When the Red Sox drafted Dustin Pedroia out of Arizona State, my initial reaction, my immediate reaction was, uh, he's small. Well, he turned out to be a really good player. What kind of a manager do I want? Do I want a statistical guy or do I want an instincts guy? I want both. I want Earl Weaver, who used statistics to make the Orioles win games, but at the same time, you know, he was in charge. He was the manager. I agree with that. Right. I agree with that. I, you know, you mentioned Altuve. I, I think he's my favorite ball player. He's fantastic. Because I don't know. I don't know where he gets that power. He must. He must have twelve-inch wrists. I mean, he, and his fat speed is ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, you no. Know, and when he gets on, they got to be. You know, he changes the game. He if he gets a scratch single, or he walks, they got to be afraid of his running. I mean, and he he got the glove. I mean, he changes the game and makes it interesting to me. And he. And the other thing that I really like, and I want to see if you guys agree, he's in the game on every pitch. He doesn't take a pitch off. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I think that's a thing that's kind of lacking in baseball today. 
You know, there's not a, you know, it's hard to explain. Like the guys who would get to the plate. I mean, I have seen so many guys. I have so many on my team. They'll just swing. They'll be impatient. And then there are guys who will be really patient and try to draw a walk. But then there are guys who kind of get into the pitcher's head. They're trying to figure out the psychology of the pitcher. And it's, it's, it's so interesting that cat and mouse game and Altuve can really show it to you because he could fuck with a pitcher so much. And the last thing that pitcher wants is letting him on base. That's the last thing, especially him, because not only does he have the speed, but, and again, this is like a weird statement. You can't quantify it with any stat uh, stats, but if Altuve gets on base, especially if it's a game that matters, the rest of that team is going to be motivated to get up there and get him home. And, you know, uh, statistic wise, the analytical wise, I bet you he leads the league in stretching a hit. He just gets, it's like if I'm an outfielder and he hits it to me and I have to move from position in the back of my head, I I'm saying I got to hustle because this guy's going to stretch it. You know, he just gives you the heebie jeebies. If you're on the other end of the receiving thing for a ball bouncing to you, or on a half-ass fly to you that you have to move. I mean, I, I, I think he's as exciting as Barry Bonds was in his own way. I agree with that. I mean, that's the point, is he's maybe right. the most exciting player in baseball, and he's maybe five foot six, And more right. teams... Maybe. Maybe. And more teams... <laughs> I think he's five four. <laughs> he could be, but more teams should pay attention to guys who demonstrate that. I mean, and look, he's a unique player. I'm not saying there are like a world of Altuve's out there ready to go crazy, but you know, when every player that's brought up is six foot two and every pitcher throws ninety five miles per hour, look outside the box. You may get something interesting to happen. You know, R. A. Dickey, the Mets brought him. Up, he all of a sudden he was a knuckleball pitcher. It was like, oh come on, a knuckleball pitcher in in the two thousands. And then he won the Cy Young because he was different than everyone else. And yeah. I think baseball needs more of that. But before we go any further, and I promise the listeners we'll get to some wrestling here in a minute, but a couple more questions on baseball. You guys are both Red Sox fans, and I'm curious, considering everything that happened in 2004 and 2007, and of course after that, what were your thoughts when the Cubs finally won? I was glad. I I, I actually, you know, remember 2003? We were both oh, yeah. five outs away. We were both five outs away for playing each other for the title. Did you guys yeah, realize right. that? Yeah, Steve Barton. No, I, I do. Away. Yeah, we were five outs. That would have been the all-time record for viewing audiences, I believe. Two major cities. You know, I think Chicago's three in the marketplace. It's New York, L.A., Chicago. And I think we're fifth, Boston. So can you imagine? And just them pounding and the ads from going back to showing Babe Ruth pitching for the Red Sox, Hack Wilson driving 156 home runs. I mean, Ron Santos. I mean, Kerry Woods. You could go on to Williams, Jastrzemski. They could have really done a great job of that. But I was really happy to see the Cubs win. What about you, John? Well, not me personally, but I have friends who have, I mean, buried fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers and uncles who were big Red Sox fans throughout their lives. 
and never got to see them win the World Series. So I get it with Cubs fans, and I was really happy for for the Cubs and all of their fans when they finally did it. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah. They they had a bit of a slump last year, just like the uh, the Mets did somewhat after they got to the World Series. Of course, the Cubs went all the way, but it's going to be an interesting year. There's a lot of interesting things happening in baseball. Before we go any forward, uh, any further here on the show, Kevin, I'm going to ask you the toughest question you're going to be asked today: Who's going to win okay. the World Series? You know, I hate to say this, but I think the Yankees, because the thing is, they always pick somebody up. And as Joe Torrey says, yeah, hitting is important, but pitching wins. And I think they'll, they always seem to pick up the right guy at the right time. And with that lineup, if they could get a kid from there, farm system that would be you know that's maybe overlooked and picked up somebody else they're going to be hard to beat too houston too houston too but i i have to go with the yanks brian i'm, I'm going to ask you to, i'm going to ask you to go before me please well i want to ask kevin though real quick kevin who do you think is going to come out of the nl then you know do you think the dodgers can do this i mean they've been back banging on the door and I just think yeah, if Kershaw finally turns into Kofax in the postseason, they'll, they'll be able to do it. Right. Right. And they do have a strong farm. I mean, they, I believe they started the farm system off. Ricky was in St. Louis and then took it to the Dodgers. They got a real strong farm system. They got a group of young guys. And like you said, Kershaw, if he can get his act together in the postseason, I think they get a great chance. John, you wanted me to go first. I'm going to go first and basically repeat almost verbatim what I said last year here on the show and probably what I would say most years. I'm going to go with the Mets, not just because I'm a huge fan of the Mets, but I think this is the year things could really click. They got a new manager, Mickey Callaway, who I'm very excited to see in action. I've heard nothing but great things about him as the pitching coach in Cleveland. So you could potentially say they have the best pitching coach now as their manager. And then they got Dave Island from the Royals to be the pitching coach. And you have all these young arms. And so far, everyone is healthy other than Jason Vargas, who they brought in. But all of the young arms, Syndergaard, Harvey, DeGrom, Mats, Wheeler, everyone is healthy so far. And the top three, especially DeGrom and Syndergaard, both look lights out so far in the spring. They look great. So if Harvey can stay healthy, he doesn't have to be the old Harvey. He just has to be good. He doesn't have to be the best. He just has to be good. And they have Syndergaard and DeGrom. And DeGrom may be the most underrated pitcher in baseball the last five years because he's just so phenomenal. I think they could go far. And then the lineup, they brought back Jay Bruce, who's a fucking beast. Cespedes, if Cespedes is healthy, Cespedes will tear it up. And then they got Conforto. They got some good young players. They have that shortstop. The catchers have been hitting in the spring. The most dangerous thing in the world is basing your pick on the results of spring training. I've learned this many, many, many times over and over again. You can't say, oh, they look good in the spring, so they're going to win it all. But I have faith that last year was was not necessarily something that would predict this year. I, I'm going to go back to 2015, 2016. Last year was an off year, a ton of injuries. New manager, a young, a different thinking manager. I'm going to go with the Mets, and it's not just because I'm a Mets fan. It's because I actually think uh, they have a great chance. Also, they're going to be playing a ton of games against the Marlins, and the Marlins are going to fucking suck. 
big time this year and probably big time next year in the next few years until Jeter gets a bunch of draft picks. So the can Mets, the Mets, uh, I'm sorry, Kevin. I'm just gonna throw some, can I give you a little uh, sidebar about the Marlins? Yeah, please. They're the only team in the history of baseball where a new stadium hasn't sold out. <laughs> well, that, that's sta- about yeah. that. that stadium was such a bad decision. <laughs> and spaceship. Yeah. And Jeffrey Loria just fleeced Dade County. He just fleeced them. Yeah. And yeah. he may be he may be the single biggest villain in baseball in the last twenty five years, Jeffrey Loria. Yeah. And do you know where that stadium was? You know, you know where it was there originally before that stadium. No, I mean I know that's, that's like in, Little Havana, right? In the, that yeah, it's a Little Havana, but that's where the Orange Bowl, that decrepit building, was yeah. falling down. They built it in a semi ghetto, man. Yeah. I mean, God. I went down there a couple it's, couple of years ago to see the Mets. It was the Mets against the Marlins right yeah. after they got Cespedes. And I said, oh, this is great. And I went there, and the stadium was maybe a third filled. And I would say 90% of those fans were Met fans. They were Florida New Yorkers, you know? And right, right. it was just ridiculous. It's like, here they have this giant stadium, this brand new stadium with this ridiculous sculpture in center field that apparently contractually they can't get rid of, <laughs> which is an interesting thing. <laughs> And there was no one there, and the people that were there were more excited about the away team. It was like being at a home game for the Mets. It truly was. It was, it was an extraordinary experience. Right. Well, I'll tell you the funny thing here. I go to, uh, I, you know, as you guys may know, I live in an island, okay? So I got to take the ferry across. So when I take the ferry across, there's a train, and the train goes right to the ballpark. It makes one stop before the ballpark. And uh, it parks right in the parking lot of the, the two stadiums. And so the first time I went was about 10 years ago. Uh, I've only been here now probably five years, but it was probably 12 years ago I went. So I, as I go in, as I'm going in, I had tickets. The guy said, welcome to Family Park West. I couldn't believe it. It was four-fifths Red Sox fans. You know, the old, let's go Red Sox, let's go Red Sox. <laughs> I almost felt embarrassed. I thought I was I thought I was going to be a heel. I wore a 1912 collar replica shirt uh, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that Smoking Joe Woods wore. My kids gave it to me for holiday. Everybody <laughs> had Red Sox stuff on. I said, wow, wow, yeah. John, I'm going to now go to you. You last year correctly predicted the Houston Astros to win the World Series. All eyes are on you. This is a lot of pressure. I know you've yeah, thought it, about it. It is, because it, it's almost prophetic. We, we all need to know that never in the history of baseball have I come on this show, and that te- the team that I pick has not won the World Series. <laughs> that is a statistical fact. That is true. Now, you and I, were very similar, but in this way, we're very different. I mean, you're a big Mets fan, and you're taking the Mets. I just don't see it. They have too many 30-year-olds in the lineup. And they had too many injuries in the pitching staff last year. But you made some good points about the new management. Um, I mean, it's, it's you know, obviously it's not totally out of the question for them. I am going with the New York Yankees. They led the American League in runs scored last year. They allowed the fewest runs to be scored last year. And they have added um, 
they have added Giancarlo Stanton, one of the best players in baseball, to the package. I don't think Aaron Judge is going to repeat what he did last year, but I don't think he's going to need to. But I think the best chance of him repeating it is the fact that he'll either be batting right after or right before Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, that doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, how many home runs do you think they're going to hit? I'll ask both of you this question. Stanton, 48, Judge, 32. 32? Wow, you think he's going to drop that much? Yeah, I think last I think last year is going to be the best year of his career. I think it was kind of a fluke year. Wow, he thinks he's Kevin Moss. Kevin, how many home runs do you think they're going to hit? Let me tell you something. I love that answer. You know why? Uh, uh, Mookie Betts, you remember when he came in second uh, two mm-hmm. years ago? He said, hey, people think I'm going to be doing this every year. This might be the best year of my career i'm going with 35 and i'm gonna say stanton's gonna hit 52 he's gonna love playing in that stadium he's gonna love yes he <laughs> is in that stadium I'll you know, tell you. It's, a, it, it's a pop-up for him you know what i mean that pop-up's gonna pop-up land in the it. land on the street somewhere i'll tell you but yeah. you know um yeah. before the listeners mutiny i do have to ask you a few wrestling questions here kevin and i did want to ask you one yeah. and, and i recognize it may be you know because i know you were close with eddie graham so it may be a little difficult but that's not my intention here but you know i've been recently me and ron fuller on the stud cast which of course is one of the fine yeah. shows here on the arcadian vanguard podcast network We've been talking a lot about when Ron first got to Florida. We also, of course, we actually mentioned you recently when we talked about Ron Wright and Whitey Caldwell on a show. But yeah, when you look at Florida in the beginning of the 70s and then you look at the end of the 70s, I'm curious why you think there were so many fallings out with Eddie, whether it was the great Malenko, whether it was Don Curtis, whether it was Louis Tillette. I know Bob Roop and Eddie had a falling out, but that's a little bit of a different situation. But why do you think Eddie, towards the end of the 70s, really started having some falling outs with the people that have been around him for so many years? Well, here's the funny thing. Ronald, Robert, and I, uh, I don't know if he's talked about this, but uh, for myself, Robert and Ronald's dad brought me into Georgia. That was the first NWA territory I worked. I had only been working a short time. I was working actually for Dutch Mantel's brother who had TV in South Carolina, and they came and kind of recruited me. I don't know why, but they did. So I went to Florida with them. And uh, at that time, you know, Eddie hadn't drank in like 20 years. And I, I I think I've told you the story before. There was a time where Mike and Eddie had a falling out, severe falling out. I'm going to say something that I've never said on the radio, I don't think. Eddie had divorced his wife, Lucy, in Emerald, Texas, but they stayed together because of Mike. and. Eddie had a girlfriend, and Mike was beside himself. So I used to go fishing with Eddie, and Eddie used to say to me, you know, I knew there was only three people that knew the story, me, Funk, Terry Funk, and Jim Barnett. And he said to me, and I can't, you can't tell Mike, but God, can you loosen him up? I'm only 44 years old. I want to go places. Lucy doesn't. She had a this. She was the class. She looked like a Southern Belle. 
She dressed in these amazing clothes. Every time she went out, it looked like she was going to the Kentucky Derby. She had the perfect hat, the perfect jewelry, drove a brand new Cadillac of Mercedes. Uh, you know, she had one of the, uh, you know, she could drive either one of them. She had them. And he started to get paranoid because I believe, and I can't put my finger on it, but one time we were out fishing. Think about this, guys. It's me, Kern, and Mike. This is when we told Mike, hey, you got, I told Mike, you got to come. We're all going to fish. You're all going to I'm not going to go. You're all going to fish. So we're out on Eddie's boat. And do you guys remember when shotgunning first happened with the beers where they you flip tops, you puncture a hole with a church oh, yeah. key, and then you yeah. okay. Here's a guy that hadn't drank for 20 years, watched the three of us do it, and we're getting ready to do it again. He said, hey, let me try that. Is that something a guy would do that hadn't drank in 20 years? No. No. Okay. I, I always thought he was kayfabe drinking. And uh, we all have, not all, a lot of people have demons and substance abuse. Michael was one of my dearest friends. Last show he ever did on the radio after he did the show, he called me up and said, you know, I love you. Michael wasn't that kind of guy. You know what I mean? I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, I love you. I said, I know you love me. What, what are you talking about? He said, no, I really want you to love me. And then I really want you to know I love you. And, you know, he died later. But here's the strange thing that I found out. Eddie's father committed suicide. Eddie committed suicide. Mike's son committed suicide. Mike's Mike committed suicide, and just a year and a half ago, Mike's uncle, who was a little bit different, had cancer, committed suicide, all of them with guns. Wow. I didn't know. I didn't yeah. realize it was that many. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so it was uh, a grandfather, a father, an uncle, a son, and himself. And I wonder, you know, I, I've, after that happened, I kind of got a, a psychology book. My sister was a psychiatrist, and it's in some people's genes. The, the chances are you doing it a lot higher if someone's done it and your family close to you. So I think it was one of those things. He also, besides drinking, he got involved with the wrong people. They uh, got some inside trading about where 495 was going and bought property. And the guy that set Eddie up to buy that property uh, sang like a bird. So it was a combination of a lot of things, yeah. Because he was so over in Florida, and he was so over. I mean, the Mary uh, Tampa gave me my award with the youth of Tampa, you know what I mean? And I was 19 years old at the time, you know what I mean? So it was very in the uh, senators would come down. The governor was on a, think about this, the governor was on a wrestling program talking about how good Eddie was to the community. And 10% of uh, supposedly 10% of all the uh, events 
of money went into uh, the sheriff's boys ranch and for also if a uh, fireman or a, a police officer died in the line of duty, he was taken care of by the wrestling company. But what about those relationships? I mean, him and Malenko put Florida on the map. You know, it wasn't the beginning of Florida, but that put Florida really on the map. And then Malenko, of course, that's a legendary falling out. I mean, no one really, I've heard different stories. I've never heard exactly what happened, but they have a falling out that's never repaired. And again, Louis Tillette and Don Curtis, different relationships. He had been working with Curtis going back to to New York. The Grand Brothers and Louis Curtis is a legendary feud. Him and Curtis have a falling out. Louis Tillette, fantastic booker, although some people would say otherwise falling out with well, Eddie Graham. Uh, so what w- what was it with I'll those you, three? Okay, I'll give you the first one. Boris Malenko was a fabulous, fabulous And it was also the time where now guys become agents, you know what I'm saying, who ha- have been loyal and have a brain. Yeah. Malenko had been there for 15 years. Well, that's a long time to stay in a territory. Eddie should have made a spot for him in the office. He could have trained guys. But there was no such job at that time. Louis Tillette and all these guys, I, I love Malenko. It was, Eddie should have went to him. And sometimes Eddie uh, expected you to understand where he should have talked to guys. He should have went to Larry and said, hey, Larry, listen, go, let me get your book someplace, Japan, because he was a big name in Japan. Let me get your books in Japan. Go to Amarillo for the funks. Let me sort through this with Duke and Hero and find your place in the office. So when we bring you back on a rare occasion special referee, a mystery tag team partner makes something. Okay, I I understand what he did wrong. Louis Tillette had ran his gamut. Okay, uh, he had booked well, but Louis was doing some shit like uh, a guy would get a booking slip, and we'll say Friday and, and uh, Fort Lauderdale, he wouldn't be on. But he was on the book and slip, but it, uh, Louis would erase it. And, well, we're missing a match. Oh, I got my stuff in the car. And Louis pick up a couple of hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Oh. So I understand, I understand that one. But the Don Curtis, nobody protected Eddie Graham like Don Curtis in the ring back in the floor you talked about in the 50s with Curtis and Lewin against the Grams. Yeah. You know, the, the Grams were drinking at the time. Don was, I read a thing just recently that Luthez said that Don took him off his feet when he was at the University of Buffalo. I mean, not, nobody took him. And Don would protect Eddie getting out of the ring. Don was also Mr. Jacksonville. He ran the Coliseum and he ran where the Jacksonville Jaguars play now. And I mean, he was part of the family. I remember we would, I would fly up with Eddie. Again, this is when the time I was the surrogate son. I'd fly up with Eddie early, early to spend some time with Don in his house with Dottie. You know what I mean? 
and uh, sometimes we would, if we were going to like Tallahassee, we would fly out of the way and go to Jacksonville and talk to Don. They were very, very close. But at this time, like I said, I think Eddie was getting paranoid and he didn't want to be questioned on anything because everybody else would say, yes, sir, yes, sir, to Eddie. But Don would say, what do you mean by that, Eddie? What do you think we should? Why are we doing that? And I think he got to this point where he he thought Don was trying to manipulate him, and that was furthest from the truth. I want to mention a story that came up on the show recently, and, I, and John, I want to go to you in a second, because I know you have a question for Kevin before Kevin has to go, but you know, we had the golden boy Jerry Gray on the show. He's a great friend of ours, and of course, he's having a tough time battling stage four cancer, and of course, if anyone out there wants to support him as he's depleted all of his funds battling cancer, you can go to tinyurl.com slash Boy. but Jerry was on the show, and Jerry was working for the Malenkos when they had so well, I shouldn't say the Malenkos, but for Malenko and for Louie and for Don Curtis when they had Sunbelt. And then eventually right. he got into Florida. It took him a while and Eddie certainly made him pay for being trained by Louis Tolette. But he said <laughs> he remembers being there in the sportatorium right after I guess Eddie or Dusty had gone on TV and said something about the Malenkos. And then Malenko went on TV and said, How about this? I'll go against Dusty, and my two sons will go against Eddie and Mike, you know, winner take all. And no one said anything. And he said he was there in the Sportatorium one day, right after all this, when the heat was high between the two sides. And Carl Gotch walked in, who was very tight with the Malenkos, obviously. Trained Jody Malenko, great friends with Boris Malenko. And he said Carl Gotch walked in, and no one had the nerve to tell him to go. And it was a signal, because they knew Carl wouldn't just walk in. It was a signal I'm here on behalf of the Malenkos, do something. And Jerry told me that Carl went up to the office and around that time, Eddie disappeared and Duke disappeared and Hero disappeared. He said the only person left in the office was Kevin Sullivan, who looked up and just said, oh, hi, Carl. <laughs> do you remember that at all? Yeah, I mean, I had worked out a little with Carl and the Malenkos. I had no problems with those guys. And when I saw Carl, I, I mean, I don't know if I was so stupid that it didn't register to me, <laughs> but I thought, I, you know, my first thought was, I thought, I'm being duped because Eddie worked all the time. I said, I'm being duped to Malenko's and Eddie are working a program. Huh. Interesting. And I, I thought, yeah, because I said, first of all, Carl isn't here to be up. And, and the other thing was, Hero and Cal were very close at one time. They had a fallen out too, but they were very close at one time. Cal uh, actually trained Hero in Japan and got him in incredible shape. And you know the story about Cal uh, and Bill Miller breaking up. Uh, Buddy Rogers. Buddy's, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He also trained Hero in Ohio, and that was Ohio was a junior heavyweight territory. And they used Hero as the junior heavyweight champion there. And he was the legit NWA champion in Oklahoma, junior heavyweight. So I looked at it like, well, these guys are looking to uh, draw a house. Because I had heard 
their contract, meaning the Malenkos, was going to expire. And I said, oh, they're trying to do an angle and get in. And maybe uh, here's the funny thing, guys, that a lot of people don't know. Back in the day when there was opposition, like we'll say the Malenkos, but I don't mean the Malenkos. We'll just say Billy White Wolf ran, uh, uh, Billy, not White Wolf, Billy uh, Blue Rivers ran opposition. Eddie would break off guys and run opposition against the opposition. So there was three companies running. Well, three companies can't make it. So people are going to go to the best company, right? Eddie was the best. The fake faux pas opposition was Eddie's guys, and some of them had worked on top, and then you have a secondary. So it was a way for them to put oppositions, to crush oppositions. And I thought, oh, they're going to work a big angle on this thing because it would have worked. It would have worked because every, and here's the thing why it would have worked. Everybody knew the Malenkos were legit. And everybody knew Kyle was legit. And the heat with Malenko and Eddie for all those years in their matches where the glass fell on Eddie and the armory, the window fell and almost took his eye out. And he only had one eye anyway. And, you know, if you talk about feuds, the Malenko and uh, Eddie had a feud for over 10 years. So I thought, well, this they're not fooling me. Little did I know I was being fooled. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before uh, Kevin has to run, John, you want to ask him something? Well, actually, I wanted to kind of share something with Kevin. Um, Kevin, you were on – you wrestled on the very first wrestling show I ever went to. Do you remember uh, Jack Witchie Sports Arena in North Attleboro? My favorite club of all times. Friday night, I lived about 30 minutes from there. Uh, Coogie McFarlane was the ref uh, announcer. Do you remember Coogie? The old Italian guy with the cane. He's oh, the I really Italian don't. I, the only Italian I know named McFarlane. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I well, yeah, this was Marina. It ran for fifty years consecutively every Friday night till it burned to the ground. Yeah, in 1979, and I lived, and I, I map this, uh, 1.1 miles away from Jack Witchie's in North Attleboro. And yeah, I remember this. It was December 10th, 1976. You and Gas House Doug Gilbert wrestled to a draw. Right. And I, I, it's funny that you said that. I, I don't know why, but yesterday I looked up Doug Gilbert, and uh, he he was the first guy in the wrestling business that I ever knew took steroids because he had he that look. A, yeah. And when he first started, he was about 210 pounds and he was a real technical and he did the thing like Carpentier climbed the top rope and did the flips. And then he would do the Frankensteiner back then. That was, you know, the seventies. And then all of a sudden I saw him, he was 310 pounds and he was, whoa. He could still do the literally flip. a gas house. Yes. <laughs> now that you mentioned it, it might have been a rip. Oh, that's where it had to be where it came from. Had to be. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, well, Kevin, we appreciate your time here this week on the Super Podcast. And of course, opening day Star Wars, we have a little bit of a dilemma. If the Yankees win, both of you have to start the show again next year, but we'll see what happens. But any last words you want to give to the listeners of the Super Podcast this week? Well, I just want them to listen to you guys because uh, you're one of my favorite shows. And I'm not just saying that. And, you know, I like just not talking about wrestling either. And there is a crossover with wrestling and baseball or wrestling and sports in general. And I hope the people pick up on it. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed being on. And we're back, continuing on here with the show. You know, I probably was going to pretend that this was a natural transition, that there was no cut, that this was just Kevin Sullivan right into you and me, John, continuing with the show. But I can't do that, and here's why. Because we're actually recording again now several days later. This is now March 24th. It's Saturday. And the Mets announced that Zach Wheeler is going to start the season in the minors. And I said before earlier that I'm so excited he's going to be one of the five in the rotation that they've been waiting to have. And uh, no, I've given up on Zach Wheeler. (laughs) And so have the Mets. So he's going to start the season in the minors. And because of that correction, I can't pretend like uh, we're recording a few days ago like I would have, more than likely. And it's not like he's banished to the minors forever. You know, he could, he could come up May, June, whenever. I wouldn't worry too much about it. No, but it's just it's, – it's not even about that. It's about if you watch him pitch, he's one of these guys. He has talent. He has stuff. He can get people to swing and miss. But he'll throw like – 60 pitches in the first two innings you know, just so he can't get past like four innings four and a half innings and they want to make him a reliever maybe and he doesn't want to do that so like i'm ready they trade they got him in the beltron trade which is years ago at this point i'm ready to say okay we got everything we're going to get out of him we could either move on trade him or try to find a new role for him but it may not be in the rotation all right he's 28 years old this year three and seven last year kind of an ugly ERA, 5.21, and yeah. you're playing at Chase Stadium. 81 strikeouts against how many walks? Where is it? Uh, 8.4 strikeouts to walk. That's not very That's not very promising. No, I mean, he has the talent. We've seen it, but he's had a lot of injuries. And again, he can't. you can't be a starting pitcher if you can't get into the fifth inning. And it happens too no. often. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you strike out five guys in, in the first two innings if <laughs> you throw 80 pitches. It just doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like, you know, the bullpen is this guy's future. Maybe he can get it together there. Maybe not as a closer, but, you know, seventh and eighth inning guys are valuable. Hey, since we're on the Star Wars uh, episode or the baseball episode of this fine show, I want to share something with you and all the listeners. Uh, March 31st, 1985 was the first WrestleMania, and a dynasty was born. April 1st, 1985 is when I had my first fantasy baseball draft, and that league, believe it or not, is still together with four of the original guys. So two dynasties were born within 48 (laughs) hours of each other. Okay, I was wondering if you were going to say that your fantasy league was another one of these dynasties, and indeed, you went there. That's exactly where you went. I'm so predictable. I wish we could have had Kevin Sullivan was so generous with his time. I wish we could have had him on longer. I bet I could talk to him for hours just about his early run in the WWF. Yeah, well, I'm sure Kevin will be back on. You know, maybe I'll have to connect you guys again. And like I said, if the Yankees win the World Series, we're going to have to start again next year with you two 
here on the show. If the Yankees win the World Series this year, I'm picking the Red Sox every year because I can. That way, I can make things happen. I've demonstrated that. You have you, and you predicted the Yankees this year, so now uh, we're in trouble. But there's a there's a real American League bias. I'm picking up with some of you guys here on the show. But uh, it is indeed. I, I have a big time American League bias. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is indeed. No one else uses the DH. What is up with the National League? A guy wearing a coat running the bases. Get out of here with that. I don't like the DH. I actually really don't like the DH. I like National League baseball. It's a different game. I mean, it's not as different as it used to be. It used to be pronounced differences. And of course, you had your own umpires and you had two leagues. I mean, now there's interleague play every single game, every single day of the season. There's an interleague game. And I don't like that. I actually. Really like when the two leagues are separate and the World Series is just that little bit extra special because the teams never meet each other during a regular season and the two leagues don't meet each other, meet each other during a regular season. And I like National League Baseball. I'm a pitching fan. You know, I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, the year of the pitcher, a lot of boring games. I think that's where, uh, in the context of what you said, uh, pretty much, but I, I, uh, I like a pitcher's duel. The Mets have obviously a rich pitching history. So it's a different game. It's a different game altogether and i like it so that's why i'm sure I'm, I'm not saying i think every game should be you know uh each team having double digit runs on the board uh, a good pitcher's duel is very exciting uh I mean, think back to the night, last game of the 1991 world series but i think when every game is like that it's just not as much fun yeah i mean you're right about that and uh it was really cool to hear kevin sullivan i mean here's a guy he's so good on the air talking about wrestling which he's obviously very passionate about and he made his living doing. But when you hear him talking about baseball, there's a, there's a little extra joy you hear in his voice. He really loves talking baseball. He does, and you can tell he absolutely loves talking about the Red Sox teams he grew up with. And I'm the same way. I mean, John Milner, Felix Mion, Wayne Garrett, Cleon Jones, the guys I grew up with watching the Mets, those guys are legends to me, even though some of them really weren't very good. It was like, you know, he was talking about his childhood. That's my childhood, and I love it. It's the same thing with wrestling, though. You know, the yes. wrestling you first saw when you grow up is probably the wrestling that you, no matter what, will have a very special place for. I, some people hear this and go, what, you're crazy. But I grew up, what got me hooked was the Ultimate Warrior. The Ultimate Warrior hooked me. Other things got me interested. He hooked me. And then, you know, I found other things that actually were really, really good. Uh, but, you know, it's just whatever that first thing is that gets you, whether it's Baron Mikel Sakuna or, or whatever, you know, you always have a special place for it. Yeah, I mean, they just put the a whole bunch of episodes, I can't believe all of this exists, of WWF All-Star Wrestling on WWE Network. And, you know, this is the show that I was, like, dying to see when I was a kid. We lived in North Attleboro. The show aired out of Worcester, and sometimes we just couldn't get it at all. Sometimes we would just get the audio on, like, a really good day. Maybe we'd get some video. And you watch that stuff, and it's hot garbage, a lot of it, but it doesn't matter. It's my childhood. It's what I grew up watching. See, I like it, and I know I'm weird with this because I know so many people, especially people who grew up with it, they'll say that they like the big angles or the promos, but they're like, oh, it was such bad TV. I enjoy watching it as a as a time capsule and really trying to see why people fell so in love with it, with the with these wrestlers, that they were bigger than life then. I love watching those old shows. I love, and I love Vince. I think Vince is so good on those. He really is. And you're right. The show is a time capsule. It speaks volumes about, you know, I mean, you look, in, look at the people in the audience, you know, that's what people looked like in 1976. That's how they dress. Those were the hairstyles. 
I've been doing that a little bit lately. You know, there was something I saw recently I thought about buying. It was a print from Madison Square Garden in maybe the mid to late 50s. It was a Johnny Valentine match, I believe. So maybe it was late 50s. And it was shot from slightly above. So this is the old garden. So you see the ring, you see the referee, you see the two guys going at it. But then you see you have a really good shot of the crowd. And to me, that's what made the picture beautiful, was just seeing this capsule of this crowd in 1957, let's say. That's one of the reasons why Jim Cornette's Mid-Atlantic tapes is so special. Because of those crowds. Because you get to hear them, and you get to see them jumping and, and throwing their fists in the air and yelling and screaming. So I love that, and, and especially in that era of wrestling in the 70s, where the crowds were really great. It, it is one of the things that makes a show even better, is when you have those special crowds. Yeah, I mean, I had those tapes back in the, I, I remember watching them for the first time in the early 90s is when I got them. And they had Blackjack Mulligan and Baron Von Raschka from either 78 or 79. And these guys were literally doing nothing. They were like struggling to put the claw hold on each other. And the crowd was going wild every time Mulligan came close to putting the claw hold on Baron Von Raschka. It was, I mean, wild. Will anyone ever do the claw successfully in wrestling ever again will anyone ever bring back the claw whether it's with a glove or just the strength of one's bare hand the german american strength of one's <laughs> bare hand like, will anyone ever bring the claw back i will say no that will that hold will never be brought back because it's not especially in wwe it's just not flashy enough and it, it let's face it it's so unrealistic not that that would stop wwe but it's just not there's not just not enough action behind it but that's the thing. Could an unrealistic move that worked in the past work today if a guy, if Braun Strowman, won the next six matches in a row with the claw hold? Would it be over? Or is it something that, oh, well, that would never work in the UFC, so it wouldn't get over here? Mm, if they really decided to get behind it, there's a chance. You want to hear my crazy claw story? This is what a dumb kid I was. <laughs> I didn't know you had a crazy claw story, so absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> When Baron Von Raschke was in the WWF, this is late 76, early to mid 77, he would use the claw hold. And whenever the, he used the claw hold on someone, usually it got blood and they would put a big red X on the TV screen, right? I really tried to do this. I got up, walked to the TV and tried to look around the big red X. <laughs> Did anyone else do that? Was that a WWF invention? In terms of, because like when Jimmy Snook and Morocco went at it, it was the Big Red X, wasn't it? Yes. Only when there was like a, a lot of blood or if someone was doing the claw hold. I actually can't even think of a time they did the, the X outside of Snooker and Morocco when the claw wasn't involved. I might just not remember, but that's the only time I can remember them doing it. Big red X with the word censored underneath censored. it. Censored. <laughs> it made everything look a lot worse than it was. But I mean, isn't that the beautiful psychology of it? Yeah. The only time it was the opposite is when Sullivan stabbed Kanemura. It was just yeah, as was bad. bad. As, yeah, it was just as bad as you thought it would be. Uh, let's add someone to the call here. John, hold on one sec. You know again, everybody. All right. And it appears we have our next guest here on the line, John. And that is, of course... The uh, ex extra crispy man himself, the man behind Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Mr. Scott Bowden. Scott, how are you? Hello again, everybody. <laughs> Hello? Yeah. Well, Hello? Well, and welcome to the show. <laughs> the extra crispy man. I don't know where that came from. I'm not, uh... 
Scott, you and I have known each other online for like 24 years, and this is the first time we've ever spoken. Wow. Yeah, we like we knew each other back like the AOL grandstand days. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Were you? Uh, yeah, Bowden's yeah. uncle. Well, Bob yeah. Bowden's nephew. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not his uncle. Uh, he's he's mine. <laughs> but uh, you know, as I pointed out, that uh, you know he he had Alzheimer's. So when uh, when he was actually confronted with that question as to whether or not he was my uncle, he he didn't remember, which is understandable. <laughs> Actually, it, 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 it is Alzheimer's kind of goes back to 94, the year he supposedly won the uh, national championship. I think he actually did win the <laughs> national championship, but well, anyway. Well, actually, Notre Dame won the national championship that year, but uh, but anyway. What do you guys remember about the old AOL grandstand days? Oh, my gosh, just how long it would take for a page to load. I mean, you had to be a really dedicated fan back in those days to uh, to really engage in a conversation. I remember AOL was like it was ten dollars a month, and you got three hours for that ten dollars, and then every <laughs> other hour I want to say was like two ninety nine just to be on the internet. So it was like an extra hundred dollars out of my bank account every month. Yeah, and I just I just remember I just had the slowest connection maybe and uh, you know in the world because I I would go to like the the, the wrestling board. and ju- you know just to refresh the board would would take like five minutes. Oh man, uh, yeah, it was it was crazy. No, mine wasn't that bad. It was a, a lot slower than what we have now, but mine wasn't that bad. Well, wow. we, you know, we were in the South, so you know, come on. Was it like it is today? Were there a lot of weirdos and people just stirring up shit? <laughs> no, I th- I think primarily it was a lot of nerds initially, and and all, it was so funny too because I remember when AOL was just was starting to take off, and I was you know, really into it. Um, and I could kind of see what it was going to become. And I remember all my friends were just like, uh, computer nerd. They were kind of like, they had, they had, uh, triple H's attitude, I guess about it. Um, and everyone just thought it was insane that, that you would go online and you would have these discussions about wrestling or, uh, any kind, you know, I followed college football really closely that you would, you know, engage your passion, uh, online like that. Uh, but I thought it was I thought it was I thought it was a cool idea. But at least in Memphis, you know, we didn't have, I guess, the the capability to have any kind of fast connection where it would actually be enjoyable. I mean, it was so frust- it was a frustrating experience for me because I would go online and it would take forever, like I said, to even load a, a simple page. It, it changed everything right away for me. You mentioned you're a big college football fan as well. It used to be that you wouldn't be able to find out the West Coast scores of night games or even even Midwest games sometimes until Monday morning, until you got, you got USA Today or the Boston Globe and they had the, the scores printed. As soon as AOL came out, I could find out the scores of those games before I went to bed on Saturday. So it's just a, such a game changer, pardon the pun. <laughs> right uh because yeah because the 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 games would be over so late and of course the the sunday newspaper would even have the scores of the west coast games so yeah it was uh it was a cool innovation and i and i love the initial dialogue that was going on about pro wrestling at the time but unfortunately like i said it was just oh man it was just so agonizingly slow it must have been cool for someone who didn't get the observer to just be able to go on the internet, this new thing, and pretty much be able to find out anything about wrestling you ever wanted to know, like behind the scenes stuff. It was for, you know, I had already been getting the observer for close to 10 years, but it must have been overwhelming for someone who was just a regular fan, didn't know about the newsletters. 
Yeah, and you know, and that's that's kind of an interesting debate. I saw on the mothership this week that people were debating whether or not Dave Meltzer has been good or bad for the business. Um, you know, for me, it made me uh, a bigger fan than I already was. Uh, I, I got it. I started getting it in, in '86. I was trading tapes with a guy in Pittsburgh named John Lanigan. I remember and, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah I he would. He, him. Yeah, he would always have the uh, the reports on the concession stands. <laughs> like he's highly detailed. He was more known for his concession stand reports than he was. He would, he would break down the intricacies of a well-fried uh, corn dog uh, at the different arenas. Um, and he would, you know, but he sent me tapes from Japan. It was my first exposure to uh, Japanese wrestling tapes from Florida. And in return, of course, I would send him uh, the Memphis shows. And I'll never forget getting like, like it was like third generation copies of the, of the Observer. So as if they weren't difficult enough to back in those days to read <laughs> because of the six point uh, type, uh, I would I almost have to take a, like a magnifying glass to read it. Uh, but it, it totally blew my mind. It was like everything I'd always wanted to know and more. And I remember getting like the first three, three or four weeks of it uh, in 86. And I was just, I, I read it probably each issue, probably three or four times. Uh, I just thought it was amazing. I can't even imagine what someone's argument could be that Dave Meltzer was not good for wrestling. I can't even fathom what that argument could be. Well, I think, I think, as Brian so eloquently pointed out to that big bitch JBL, um, unless you've got, unless you're not proud of your history, unless you've got something to hide, then the, you know you don't uh, have a problem with it. But I think to a lot of old school guys, you know, the business was so shrouded in secrecy, it was almost like the mafia that you could kind of get away with all this behavior that is just reprehensible. Uh, you know, I, I always point to Jackie and uh, and USWA Jackie Moore who went on to have a uh you know i guess a hall of fame career with wwe um certainly you could argue that but i, I was i was happy for her to have that moment and i was thinking about all the idiots in the memphis dressing room who never amounted to anything and i was just i was like man good for you jackie because she had even in 1994 95 when she and i were, were feuding and working a program she had to put up with so much garbage in the back and, uh, you know, there are a lot of rumors going on about Jackie, but I, you know, I just I, I, I loved her. I, I, I thought she was great. Uh, she was a rare gem in the dressing room, uh, unlike a lot of those bozos back then. Now, I've heard that Jackie was someone who was not to be messed with. Well, she yeah, true. But uh, she also understood the system. She knew who was in control there. Uh, like I, she, at, at one point, she uh, she no sold uh, a Brian Lawler power driver. And Brian came to the back and somebody pointed that out that that she I mean, she didn't she, like she got up from it. And in Memphis, you know, a pile driver was like the equivalent of a handgun. Uh, you know, you could hit a guy with a chair repeatedly. You could hit him with a chain. But, you know, the pile driver was the only thing that was like officially on the book on the Tennessee record books as being bad. I think it still is to this day. Um, and she got up from it. And somebody pointed that out when Brian got backstage and he he was waiting for Jackie when she came through the uh, curtain and he grabbed her by the hair and was shaking her. Now, I think she honestly probably could have cleaned Brian's clock, but she knew the game and she knew she understood the the, the hierarchy and that um, that she would probably just have to take it, take the abuse. And, you, know, you know, he you know, and he cussed her out. I'm just sitting there going. The way and the way it all kind of turned out, you know, Brian seemed destined for great things, but Jackie is the one who actually accomplished them. You know, can I say something? And and I understand if you can't say anything. And you know, we we you know this is a little different than Kentucky Fried Wrestling. This is obviously uh, the Super Podcast here. But 
I, I know that you know a lot of the participants, so if you can't say anything, that's fine. Brian Christopher had so much talent. If you look at oh. him like 93, 94, he could work. He had natural heel tendencies. I mean, better mm-hmm. than most. He could do good promos. He was on fire. He looked like he was destined for something. You, you know, almost like I remember people saying at the time he'll be the next Shawn Michaels. And I know that's not a fair thing. And I'm not saying he would have been the worker Shawn Michaels was, but that kind of heel, that like, you know, smug, arrogant, you know, I think I'm great. I think I'm good looking kind of heel who could actually work. And bad guy. I mean, I hate to say it, like, but yeah. I don't know anyone who's like, you know what? That Brian Christopher, really good guy, really misunderstood. Then I hear this Jackie Moore story. And it's like, man, what a fucking dick. Yeah, I, I think I think for Brian, like having that much power too soon, you know, you know, being the son of Jerry Lawler, you know, that's the only reason that probably he felt like he could get away with doing that. And that's probably the only reason that Jackie put up with it, you know, because of who it was uh, on on the card and, and their position and, and being the son of Jerry Lawler. Um, I, I think that that was probably a hindrance to Brian in, in a lot of ways because everything kind of came so easy to him. Which is not to say that he didn't have that natural ability. I think Brian in his first two years is probably better than most of the great heels of the uh, of the era. I mean, if, if you look at Chris Jericho uh, and even going back to like Eddie Gilbert, everybody talks about how Eddie Gilbert was such a natural as a heel. He really wasn't. I mean, his first year was kind of painful to watch. Uh, it took him time to develop. You know, he had an idea of what he wanted to be, which is like the, the the Jerry Lawler of 74, 75, of 76, yeah. uh, with these great heel promos. But it, it actually took Eddie a long time to get to that level, whereas Brian just oozed it. And and I and I say that because um, he had a lot of that natural cockiness, which I think was a veneer, almost like a uh, – when I I did an article on Brian, this is you know I got into the business. I was doing a magazine article for Memphis State University, one of my one of my journalism classes, and I was allowed to go backstage and kind of shadow the family there for a while. And I remember you know I got an A on the paper, and everyone was just gobsmacked that I was able to get that kind of access. But I knew Kevin Lawler was able to kind of pull that off. And I remember doing an interview with Brian's mother, uh, Jerry's first wife Kay, who's just a sweetheart of a lady, and she. Uh, she said, you know, Brian's uh, participation in wrestling is to get his dad's attention to say, hey, Jerry, I exist. And I remember when I handed the paper over to Lawler to show him the finished product and he was reading that he kind of stumbled over that a bit. And um, it, was, it was a little bit of a moment that I think that he sort of realized the effect that being the king and um, kind of neglecting his sons had, had had on their psyche. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, interesting you actually got to see him read that i mean yeah. more than anything i mean it's it's i have to think that's somewhat intimidating knowing what your words are knowing that the person is reading it approaching those exact words well i think a lot of it though i mean i i i've always been sort of that way with with lawler um you know i'll i sing his praises i remind him of stuff that he accomplished stuff that he did that even he doesn't remember but then I'll also kind of call him out on some certain stuff. And I think uh, that's why he sort of has a problem with me. That's, I think that's one reason why he he hasn't done the show, you know, because he's a little unsure of how he'll be treated, which, of course, you know, if he came on the show, I treat him with the utmost respect. But, um, you know, I think the David Bixen's fan article, which we haven't covered on the show, but I felt like I needed to say something when we uh, talked about, you know, when there was that discussion going on on the Mothership Forum. I felt like, you know, if I don't say something uh, – then what does that make me? You know, here, here, David has has uh, stepped up to present this evidence that 
you know, the narrative doesn't quite jive. It doesn't make sense. It stinks, really. Um, and even as a Lawler fan, I got to say, you know, something's not quite right here. I missed this. What was this about? Hey, let me, let me say, I, I, first of all, <laughs> you know, to, to your point, and, and this was about, Bix did an article about evidence had come out, I mean, all these years later, from when Lawler was accused of, what was it, sodomy on a minor? or I, I don't remember exactly what the specific accusation was back in 93. Lawler wrote a note to the police and Bix obtained that note through one of his journalistic efforts and it's in Lawler's handwriting and everyone knows Lawler's handwriting. And that's what I was going to say. There's the dichotomy in that there's someone's actions versus this really warm comic handwriting, which makes everything a little uneasy, but in the letter. And again, I don't know exactly what happened and I haven't looked over everything in a while, but what I do know is that Jerry Lawler was trying to discredit the accusers and the method he used was trying to, in this letter, I guess, show support to the idea that they should be shamed for committing, and the exact quote was lesbian acts in public, or uh, I don't even remember if it was sex with or just fooling around with an African-American, but I think there it was a black guy is the way he put it. But he said it in a very, you know, well, it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing to say, oh, she's, you know, she's dating a black guy. That's not necessarily the thing, but it's when you're using that as something that should be looked at disparagingly. That's where it's like, wait a minute, that's a little, that, that's a little fucked up, you know, quite yeah, frankly. Yeah, yeah, and, and pointing out that she smokes, she skips school. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, so high school, you know, and, um, it, it was discouraging to to read that, but you know I'm not here to to rehash that. Uh, you know it certainly doesn't prove or disprove uh, anything to do with the case, uh, but it just it goes to show that the narrative that that was spun afterward that was so accepted by everyone doesn't quite jive. You know, and the, the fact that in the weeks to follow that you know there was no follow up by Meltzer to it, um, I just thought it was astounding uh, that that it was it basically just went away. As obviously the show did right there. <laughs> Moment of silence. But well, uh, I felt like you know, maybe, maybe we take it too serious a turn. Well, here, well let me take but... a, let me take a step back to what you said because I didn't address it before. My my tweet about Meltzer beyond my tweet to that big bitch JBL. Um, <laughs> my point isn't saying that Dave Meltzer is one hundred percent right. I, I don't have any uh, you know false ideas that Dave Meltzer is a saint. Uh, he's gotten things wrong. I've personally experienced him get things wrong with things I was involved with, like Yama pit fighting, where Paul Heyman leaked stuff that was completely not true. And I know it was Paul Heyman. And then, I, I mean, we knew who his sources were, so we were able to flush everything out when we were there. But with that said, the people who whine the most is my point. The people who really just can't accept any sort of blame for anything. There's always an excuse. It's always someone else. And Dave reports on stuff, and they can't take it. And that's my point. Not that you have to agree with Dave all the time, but the people who try the hardest to discredit Dave are the people who have very little credibility. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that's why Frank DeFord uh, had this admiration for Dave, because he realized the intricacies of of how difficult it must be to report on a business that was that was clouded in secrecy and really clouded in lies and deception for, for so long, given the inherent nature of what they were, were promoting. Uh, not that Dave was perfect or that he got everything right all the time, but I mean, his batting average is is, is pretty high up there, considering how closely guarded the, the biz was for, for so long. 
Yeah, and just look, here's the thing. I mean, it all comes down to the same thing, and we have a long track record to look at. Titan Sports, WWF, WWE, whatever iteration of that company, they only like media they can control. They love the fact that most media, you have some wrestling fans that work in a newspaper, they're just happy to report a wrestling story. They'll repeat your BS. They'll repeat your propaganda. You had 93,000 in the Silverdome. No, they didn't. It sounds good, <laughs> and it's a nice narrative, and that's the narrative that would be going forward if there wasn't anyone saying, here's the real story. Here's what the promoter of the event told right. me. Here's what I actually saw in the books. Here's what they said. So, I mean, that's the thing. The WWE would love it if there was no Dave Meltzer and there was no wrestling journalism. They would love it if they could put out their propaganda and it would be accepted, and then they wouldn't have to send out people like JBL to try and kiss the company ass and say, oh, you know, we were working Dave Meltzer back in the 90s. He has to stop pretending like back in the 90s he was a key part of anything. <laughs> because in the Attitude Era, JBL, WCW wasn't trying to get him, and he wouldn't have made a difference if he wasn't there. All the guys who like were the most like you know gung-ho for the company were the guys who no one else was trying to hire. <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> my favorite wwf bs was on the phil donahue show when phil donahue claimed that it was a billion dollar a year industry yeah and even when i first started saw it i started laughing and i actually talked to dave about it. he's like if you include everything worldwide and i'm talking everything merchandise whatever <laughs> it's probably just barely over a hundred million <laughs> so he's only you know he only multiplied it by 10 and said right. it to Donnie, and he just and he just said it you know yeah but you know just yeah. everything with them they took wrestling out of the smoky arenas no they, they ran the same arenas that, <laughs> that everyone else yeah. ran it wasn't like all of a sudden there were brand new arenas in every town it was the same buildings <laughs> everyone else ran yeah it, it's amazing how easily they they swallow the, the the history that's fed to them. Um, and well, that's the thing. Do you want to be a seal, yeah, or, or do you have a brain? You yeah. know, because it, when there's people out there who are just known liars, like fucking Bruce Pritchard, who has no credibility. He's a complete loser. And I'm someone who's had dealings with Bruce in the last year. I've talked to him on the phone. He is one of the dumbest human beings I've ever run across. A complete, <laughs> a complete loser. Who, who well, better, who better right. ride this wave as long as he can because he's utterly unemployable. And when you have people like that <laughs> who have no credibility, if you talk to their friends, they have no credibility. And they go out there, all they try to do is discredit people who report on what happened. Even if you want to say it's rumor, they report on the rumor. They don't yeah. say the rumor's the, the truth. They say, here's the rumor. And you know, by the way, maybe if the WWE didn't hide from real media, we'd be able to get more of the truth. But no, they got people like Bruce Pritchard, who's basically Baghdad Bob. He's a Scientology press agent. You know, just <laughs> ignore the truth. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to act like I completely believe what I'm saying, but I know I'm full of shit. Right. I just remember you shredding him on Cornette's show maybe a year ago. I almost died laughing. It was great. Because he can't speak the facts. He speaks to his feelings. That's the thing. Bruce doesn't actually go based on what is true. He goes based on what he feels in the moment. And some of that feeling may be, I want them to love me. I want them to embrace me. But Bruce just has no credibility whatsoever. And it's well, just, it's ridiculous. It's yeah, ridiculous. You know, and you know how it, personally it's affected me, his attempts to portray Jerry Jarrett as this imbecile. 
as this country bumpkin. And it's, you know, Brian, you and I know very well. I mean, we've had Jerry on the show a few times. And yeah, I mean, he does, he's Southern and it is older. He does speak a little slower than he normally did, which was slow to begin with. And yeah, there are some pauses and maybe his memory isn't quite as sharp. But when you get down to it, I mean, the details that come out of the programs that, that he booked, uh, when he gets, when he, and, and when you have somebody who's familiar with his career, like me, you can kind of keep him on track. And if he doesn't remember initially, then, it, you know, I say something that sparks that memory, uh, the knowledge, the intelligence, the attention to detail is still there when Jerry Jarrett recalls all these great moments that he helped book and, uh, you know, his approach to it was Shakespeare for the masses, much more sophisticated than anything that Bruce Pritchard has ever come up with. Um, or, or tried to claim credit for, you know, and apparently there's still some bad blood over the decision to bring Jerry Jarrett in up North. You know, he was up there for two years uh, to me, his evident, his, his booking influence was evident very early on by shifting the focus to the smaller wrestlers, uh, you know, you think back to smaller wrestlers, look at Lawler and Dundee. You know, suddenly they shift the focus to Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. You're trying to tell me that Jerry Jarrett wasn't behind that and wasn't pushing for that? And that was the top feud of the time when Jerry Jarrett was up north. So I don't know. I, I don't understand why he uh, feels that need in his own insecurities to attack somebody who ran the most one of the most successful weekly territories for a number of years and deserves everyone's respect. And I also can't believe that so many fans just buy it at face value. And I've seen even seen on the mothership, you know, I would think that the fans on, on your page, Brian would be a little bit more educated than to repeat that. Uh, uh, and is he going to talk about tuna fish? You know, um, I mean, that's part of the problem. And that's, you know, that's why I'm really proud of what we have here. We have a really smart audience that listen to this show. They understand what we're trying to do. They understand that we try to also tell the truth about wrestling history. And with Bruce, Bruce is putting a spin on everything mm. because that's all Bruce can do. That's all Bruce knows how to do. That's maybe the only talent he has in life is just putting a spin on something. And it's just not true. He has, yeah. he has a personal hatred of Jerry Jarrett. And because of that, he can't admit Jerry Jarrett was a successful businessman or a successful booker or a revolutionary booker or anything else. Everyone else who was up there says one thing. Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson say something different. And coincidentally enough, they're the two guys who hate Jerry Jarrett. Well, and, and had the most to lose by Jarrett appearing up there and whose influence was obviously going to be toned down if Vince brings this guy in, this outsider, this interloper. I mean, who has the most to lose? Pat Patterson and uh, and Bruce. And, you know, and I like both those guys. Purse, I mean, you know, on a, on a, I, I like the brother love character. There are some points when I listen to Bruce's show that I, I do like some of it, but I also know when, when the bullshit is just, you know, reaching that, that level. And that, that is one thing, you know, I'm not saying that I always know the truth, but I, I'm searching for it. And, and I do want that to be told. Uh, whereas Bruce isn't Bruce, intellectually curious. Yeah. yeah Bruce doesn't give a, a shit. rock. He's just a yeah. brick. He's just, yeah. he's empty. There, there's like yeah. no, there's no search for the truth. There. You know, there's nothing. There's barely a soul. He's just empty. There's like nothing yeah. there. <laughs> My apologies for remaining quiet during this segment. I've never heard his show, so I have no idea. No interest. Well, you're not, you're not missing much. So, so don't worry about it. But just a to total, that's the problem. It's just like, the WWE way is kind of winning right now of discrediting 
the wrestling media, discrediting Dave Meltzer, because you have people like Bruce who the common fan, what do they know? They know he was brother love and they know he worked there. They don't realize that everyone says he's a liar, that he was a yes man. He says he wasn't a yes man. It's just every single other person that was there says he was a yes man. So it's either him or every single other human being who's ever encountered him. Right. But the right. average almost, fan, you know, the average fan doesn't we, know that we, though. The average fan just thinks like, oh, he, he must, you know, this is his thing. But he's full of you shit. Yeah, the three of us has something in common. We've been around these guys and we just know, you know, you, you take it all with a grain of salt. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. You know, anytime they speak. I know a lot of wrestlers listen to this show. I'm not attacking you guys, but you've been in the locker room too. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, but that's the problem. I mean, that's one of the things I think is so important. I think there's so many, you know, I've said it before. It's a golden age right now of wrestling research. And we have a lot of people making sure that the truth is exposed, whether it fits a narrative or not. You go and you investigate and you try to figure things out. And that's important. You have to be intellectually curious. You have to always want to know what the real story is, not just block things off because of your you know weird personality and your personal feelings that are unjustified or whatever else it may be yeah you know and and i'll say this really quickly and i'm sure you you kind of want to move on here but as far as jerry jarrett's concerned i'm not and i'm not trying to paint jerry jarrett as a saint um and to me neither am i and if you want to say jerry jarrett's a bad guy hey if that's your experience dealing with him fine i'm not i'm not here defending him as a human being or anything else but i'm saying when you deny that he was successful which he clearly was then what does that say about you? It just says you're stupid. It just says well, I, you're stupid. I'm just going to say this really quickly. A lot of people go on about his payoffs that that he was better than Goulas, but but not by much, and that he was he was a thief just just like Goulas was. Uh, I'll say this. I, you know, I was in Charlotte. That's the first conversation that I had with Jerry Jarrett uh, for an extended period of time. He was kind enough to talk to me for about two hours, and we were in this wide open lobby of the hotel. And so I, I, I can't even tell you how many times we were interrupted by guys like, uh, you know, the Nasty Boys, uh, Bob Backlund, who didn't even work for, for Jarrett. But so many guys came by and thanked him, you know, for the start. Scott Steiner, Scott Steiner, who, you know, everyone thinks is the biggest asshole in the world. Every time I've talked to Scott Steiner and mentioned Memphis, his eyes light up. I mean, I saw him out here in Los Angeles and I, I said, hey, we're both Memphis wrestling alumni. <laughs> and I thought he might suplex me right there. But um, but he laughed. He was like, oh, my gosh, really? And I told him about, you know, working as a manager. He was very inquisitive, uh, you know, just but so many guys came up and thanked Jarrett uh, that day. And I saw it with my own eyes. You know, I mean, I have I would I would say otherwise if anybody gave him shit about the payoffs or anything like that, if they did. At the time, I know the stuff with Steve Austin and the whole deal with Jeff Jarrett, um, you know, don't stare at your check. It's not going to make it any bigger. I mean, that's bullshit if, if that actually happened. Um, and I think Steve is a, is a really honest guy. But by and large, I think the experience working in that territory, that's where Steve Austin really grew. And I think he would be the first to admit that. So even if it wasn't reflected in your pay, the experience that you got from the last surviving territory probably paid off uh, for those guys. You heard something funny? In 1989, I thought Scott Steiner was going to be the biggest guy in the NWA, like within a year. He'd be NWA champion. He'd be, everything would be built around him. He would be their Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I think a lot of people did. Before we move on, before I add someone to the call, I do want to ask you, just because you did bring up Brian Christopher earlier, but from your experiences firsthand backstage, compare Brian Christopher and his way of behaving or his way of, of coexisting with his colleagues with Jeff Jarrett. Uh, wow. That's, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't do like, 
like Jeff kind of ribbing Austin about his check. I mean, that that was certainly an asshole thing to do. But I, by and large, I always thought Jeff Jarrett, if he could somehow uh, capture what he was able to do backstage, which he was always really loose backstage and always joking around and actually a pretty funny and intelligent guy to talk with. My opinion on the two, I think Brian by far had more natural ability than Jeff ever thought about having. And I think probably Jeff would admit that. But Jeff outworked him. You know, and I think a lot of guys did. I think Jericho outworked Brian. So many guys coming up who didn't have it on the match. And maybe that's what led to Brian's downfall. Brian, Brian got lazy, I think, you know, as the years went on. I mean, I'm not even talking 10 years into his career. I'm talking like five years because I just think he peaked too soon. So much. I mean, I was on an outlaw show with Brian, his very first time in the ring with Tony Williams. And these guys have been wrestling each other in their living rooms for years. And they went out, and I'm telling you, they tore the house down. Now, there were only about two or 300 people in this gymnasium in a seedy part of Memphis. But I'm uh, Brian just had so – you know, the promos just right off the bat were pretty sharp. And just that – he just had that natural heel, heel charisma that comes with maybe being Jerry Lawler's son. I I don't know. But I think some of it, too, was a, was a, was a uh, veneer and a, and a protector for Brian because inside he was actually really, really fragile. And I think that that the whole world has kind of seen that. Um, and that's kind of led to his downfall. Very interesting. I mean, you have a yeah. very unique perspective because you know the people and you were also there and you got to witness things. It's it's really interesting hearing you talk about this. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, I hate it for Brian, even though in a lot of my personal interactions with him, you know, he's sort of been a jerk. But I see what what could have been. You know, and this even goes back to when Cody Rhodes and Randy Orton um, and Ted DiBiase's kid, you know, were getting that push. I was like, God, Brian should be in that mix. You know, and that was years ago. And Brian was already kind of considered washed up. And that's that's really a shame because I think he could have gone much further in the industry than he did. He could have. But uh, let's uh, let's lighten up things here. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to add someone to this dreary call. right now. Are you are you uh, bringing on Howard Baum shorts? Where, you said you wrote that to me before. What am I missing? What's the Howard Baum shorts joke? Well, well, there's that picture that uh, that I posted with him. He and Jim oh, Davison. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, I'm not adding Howard Baum shorts, or, uh, but maybe later. But I'm going to add someone who I think uh, will brighten things up a little bit. We're dialing him in right now. Memphis Mascaris? Mem- not Memphis Mascaris. <laughs> <laughs> not Memphis Mascaris. Let's see. I think it's ringing. Guest, are you there? Or is it still ringing? This new Skype setup sucks. I hope it's hot dog. <laughs> not Scott Corner. Hot dog. This is not centering Tommy Ritz. Hold on, guys. Guys, I think our guest is on the line. Guest, are you there? As a pharmaceutical or off the streets? Don't drink the piss, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> the, the golden boy. Who else would brighten us up but the golden boy himself, Jerry Gray? Hey, guys. What's up? You're on with Jerry, Scott, how you doing, man? Scott Bowden and John McAdam. Oh, hey, John McAdam and Scott. How you guys hey. doing? Good, Jerry. How are you? Got a lot of, ta- got a lot of tapes from John a long time ago. Appreciate those. Yeah, it's good. Still. Good talking to you, man. <laughs> yeah, man, it's been a lot of years. I actually feel years. bad because okay. I have a ton of respect for you, but I'm not drinking any piss. Get any piss. <laughs> oh man, everybody, everybody's saying that. So not too many people will do it. <laughs> I, I, actually, I, I just wanted everyone to know that uh, you know the t-shirt sales obviously are still going on at Kentucky Fried Wrestling, BigCardell.com, uh, but we're also going to be selling bottles of piss uh, very soon on the site. So. Um, <laughs> Be looking out for that. 
<laughs> oh my god. I don't know what to all, say about this. All we need is Jake Roberts and a lot of Gatorade. <laughs> yeah. He might drink them. I don't know. He might drink them for a good price, Jake, you know. More bubble. <laughs> How do you think Jake's gonna react when he sees that shirt, Jerry? Oh, I can't I wish I could see it. Uh I think he's gonna find the if there's any security there, he's gonna definitely <laughs> ask him to take it off or give him one of his shirts. Give them one of his shirts, whoever's wearing the, you know, that shirt. Well, he even remember the re- remember the incident. That's that's my question. Uh, um, I don't think he's drinking. Too. I don't know, man. I don't think he's ever done it before. I've never heard of it happening before. You know, with him drinking bits, but it was just another night. Hard to forget. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I think he's got to remember that night. I think you know, it was a pretty crazy night. Everybody else seems to remember it after twenty years. <laughs> yeah. Honky tonk. I, I, I told Brian, I, I am usually not at all surprised at any wrestling story I hear. Uh, you know, <laughs> that one, it was probably the first one that legitimately surprised me in 10 years. And it wasn't just him drinking the piss. That that doesn't surprise me too much, believe it or not. But saying, here's how much yeah. I respect you, man. Oh, that's yeah, crazy. Was, <laughs> just a little bit crazy. Because I, I thought he was going to pour it on me. And it was spilling on honky tonk, man, because we were struggling <laughs> over it. So, so then he, uh, I mean, it was a whole bottle too, a big bottle full. And they said, no, no, let go. I'm gonna <laughs> drink it. You know, I already told the story to show you how much I respect you. Vince McMahon doesn't want to be my partner. I drink this. <laughs> I, 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 I respect you more than God. When he drank it down, I was like, oh my God, this is weird. Yeah. So, and that that is the craziest locker room story in any locker room I've ever heard. The best part is Bushwacker, yeah, Bush, Bushwacker Luke doing the commentary. Luke, yeah. Oh god. <laughs> oh god. That 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 was hilarious. I didn't even know about that until afterwards. Some of the guys told me that he was. They were all in the different room because they were freaking out the way he was acting, you know. And then he was looking through a little window on the door, telling everybody what was going on. <laughs> that was the funniest, <laughs> funniest part. I just saw him a couple couple months ago. He was talking about. <laughs> Since you told the story on the show, we've heard from a few people that have actually verified it. Apparently, there were a few more people there. Uh, who was it? Was it Ken Jugan's yeah. son? Was it Ken Jugan's son? Yeah, yeah, Ken was there too. Zoltan and uh, his kids. I don't know. Some were there, and then uh, Navajo Navajo Warrior was there. Actually, Leilani Kai was there, but she didn't see that part. A lot of the ladies were there. They were in a different dressing room. Yeah, because he was saying bad stuff about them too, <laughs> like Jake was. You bring all the. I had Leilani Kai. I can't remember the other girls that went on a little heart. Some of the older, you know, uh, big name, you know, lady wrestlers, but, um, and Jake was complaining about them too. You bring them in, they don't draw a dime. And they were all mad at him too. Was, was my old <laughs> flame, Laura Combs there? No, she wasn't there, but it was, uh, <laughs> Leilani Kai. One, a couple of them were younger. Oh, what was her name? Strawberry from North Carolina. I don't know her real name. Strawberry was there. And then some other, both of them were from North Carolina, but the, the older ones were Leilani and Winona Little Heart, but they were there too. I forgot about that. So they, they all knew something. I don't know. They knew about the piss later, but they didn't see that. Nobody saw that actually, except for Honky Tonk. Saw him drink the piss, <laughs> but they all knew that he did. <laughs> yeah, that was. The, I never really even told that story because it was so unbelievable. But then when I, when I had when I nobody's gonna believe me, you know. But then. Honky Tonk. Uh, Jerry, Jerry, really, 
I, Drew, really quickly, what, what were your impressions of the Memphis yeah. locker room? Um, depends on which time. I was there a few times. I didn't stay too long each time, but I was there in 80, what was it, the beginning of 84. Is that, that was when Savage was there, right? Beginning yeah, so, of 84 uh, when he, yeah, he came Sav- back. Yeah. I think Savage was there. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember if Rick Rude, yeah, Rick Rude, I think, was there at the time. Yeah, I think I think yeah, you even teamed yeah. with Rick, Rick Rude, right? In one of the Southern Tag yeah. Title tournaments? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we, um, what you call it, we uh, stayed in the same uh, dumpy motel somewhere there. I can't remember the name of it. There in Nashville. And we rode together every night, actually, me and Rick and that, that uh, what was her name, Angel, his yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we rode together every night and then uh, we'd work each other, but we would just, we didn't even have to cafe, really, because they didn't even notice that much there, like some territories, but uh, he'd just drop me off, like, and then I'd walk in. But, um, yeah, I worked him almost every night. I remember he smacked me so hard because he was really green then, too, you know, greener than I was. And he, uh, one night he smacked me in the face so hard Oof. it was like like Ricky like Ricky Morton says you know hit me with your you know a real punch because your working punch is killing me but the, the <laughs> smack was like I was out on my feet it was harder than uh, Nookie's uh, slap of uh, respect whatever that thing he calls <laughs> the one he gave me in Japan <laughs> but anyway yeah he was he got better but that night he was man but yeah it was the locker room uh, I'm trying to think. I think we were still, most of them were separate except Evansville. Memphis was a weird locker room. You know, I remember how that was. It was like a bunch of different cubicles. And then mm-hmm. I remember when you'd, I'd have to work, when I'd work with Lawler. Later, I worked with Lawler when I was a guru. And, and they'd send me over there to, he'd give you his own finish. But he'd be playing cards the whole time. So <laughs> telling me the finish, he'd be playing cards and telling me, yeah. The uh, you know, the chain gimmick they usually did. Sure, the chain. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, yeah. Ref, 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 bump. You know, like uh, I'll grab a headlock. Yeah, something. And, it, and it's always like, <laughs> yeah. let me guess, you're gonna he, and uh, shoot you off into Calhoun. Yes. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Well, I think he was playing cards with him actually, Calhoun. So they, they didn't worry about the finish. They were more worried about who was winning or whatever. Sure. But yeah, the locker rooms were. It was good, easy going there. It wasn't like, uh, except for when Savage, he was nice to me later in WWF, WWF, yeah, WWF in 87. But I guess at that time he didn't trust anybody because he had just done that thing with Bill Dundee and all that, you know. So he uh, he was looking kind of, he didn't really talk to anyone. I remember in the locker room, so he was kind of like really mm-hmm. mad looking, <laughs> walking down the hall. He didn't even shake hands with nobody or nothing. When mm-hmm. I first met him, I remember he just, we didn't even talk. He didn't talk to anyone, really. And then uh, I'm trying to think who else. It, it was pretty easy going, though. It was a lot of talent there. I know that because all the AWA yeah. were coming in, especially from Memphis, you know. I remember Nick Bockwinkle, would, he was coming in, and he thought I looked exactly like uh, Bruce Hart. He said, oh, my God, I thought you were Bruce Hart at that time, you know. Everybody <laughs> used to say that. Danny Davis. Danny Davis, I don't know if he's one of the nightmares yet. No, I don't think he was. What was that gimmick he did? Kind of like Tiger Mask at that time, 84. Oh, right. Um, Stray Cat. Yeah. Stray Cat. Yeah. I don't know. What he is. What he had a mask. He was by himself, though, with a mask. I can't remember what the name was. But he had, uh, he kept trying to send me to Calgary to be, you know, they said so much I looked like him at that time, uh, Bruce, that they wanted me to go there and, like, do an angle and say that I'm the real Bruce Hart and all this. And then, that's how much I guess we 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 looked like. I was just like I don't know. I heard some bad stuff. Angela Mosca told me not to go to Calgary, so I was like, I don't know if I want to go. What did Mosca tell you? Well, he just said 
somebody was saying they're gonna send me there up and down to Florida too here, and then he was he I guess that's where he had been a lot, you know, and he was like, hey, you ain't gonna make any money, and the trips are horrible, and pretty much what he told me. So I was like, ugh, and the cold, freezing cold, everything, you know. But I almost went though when uh, Danny Davis was doing it, but I forget what happened. Oh no, I I had a better deal because <laughs> Lawler, thank God, sent me to uh, Mid South for Watts when it was the hottest year ever. So that was way better. Yeah, Jerry Lawler sent me over there to Mid South. Were you around and the trip uh, Yeah, I was. I can't remember. Uh, I don't think I ever rode with him, but he was. He was there. Yeah, I worked with him actually. Yeah, me and Coco Beware against Tree Machine, and who was he part? Oh, the, they were the uh, him and Pork Chop, right? Yeah. 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 What was it, the Bruce Bruce? Bruce Brothers. Yeah, 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 they were doing they were doing yeah. the Bruce Brothers, and then they tragically passed away and uh, were reborn as the new Fabulous Ones. Oh God, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it, it was. <laughs> yeah, we were. Uh, yeah, we worked them though. Me and Coco Beware and uh, Memphis Coliseum. We did some kind of angle, but sometimes then you know they do the angle and then they wouldn't even they wouldn't follow up with it. The next week would be a totally different thing again, you know. So so I think I turned heel on Coco that night or something, some kind of angle, and then just the next week, nothing happened again. I was back. No, wait, I was a heel already. How the hell was I partners with Coco? They must have had me baby at first or something. I don't remember, but I know they did an angle, but we never followed up with it. That's the first time I was there, though, and then I was there as the guru after, um, what was that, the end of 80s? End of '85, I guess it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were there. Yeah. Uh, you were there. You were there in uh, November of '85, when uh, when they did that, that deal, watch, when, yeah. when when they were about to do that that combined show with Crockett at the Coliseum, the second one. Yeah, I was there for that. Yeah, because I remember a lot of guys didn't recognize me. Uh, Flair didn't, and because uh, I had that weird gimmick on and everything, <laughs> and uh, and I was trying to see if they would recognize me without even telling who I was, and then. Uh, Cornette did, and that's when he told me to roll my eyes back on my head and make Bobby Eaton throw up because <laughs> he throws up so easy. <laughs> yeah, he got sick just from that, you know, doing the Mark Lewin eyes back in the head thing. But uh, yeah, the locker room then was really easy because it was, let's see, who was it? Dutch. I rode with, um, Hector. I, I, actually, I stayed with uh, Tony Falk, and I had a hotel, another really dumpy motel, and uh, Nashville there was a hallmark or something like that. Probably the one Steve Austin stayed at, whatever that one he talks about. <laughs> Some really, really bad motel. But, now, uh, I wrote, now, go ahead. In your, in your experiences, uh, was, was Tony Falk like the nicest guy in the business you've ever met? Oh, God, he was funny as hell. He was so funny. We would, uh, we'd ride sometimes with uh, uh, the new sheep herders. What was it? Jonathan Boyd and uh, Rip Morgan. Yeah. And then John, Jonathan Boyd. Tony used to get on his nerves so bad because Tony would, uh, he would go, you know, he would get out and pump the gas and uh, uh, Jonathan would and he'd say, Tony would say, I can't believe Jonathan Boyd and all the class you have and everything, you're pumping your own gas. So he made Boyd so mad that he, he got full service instead. I remember he said, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, then he just, I mean, and then we rode with, uh, I forgot about that story. Yeah, we rode with Ultimate Warrior and Sting. Uh, for some reason, oh, even yeah. though we were the heels. Yeah, free, the, the Freedom time. Fighters, and, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah they, they had some li- little car, and then uh, it was the funniest thing, because the one that wanted to learn was uh, Ultimate Warrior. Sting was like kind of a jerk, jerk, really. He wouldn't even really talk or anything, and me and Ultimate Warrior would be talking, and 
smoking the whole way and Sting would just be there like not talking to even Ultimate Warrior didn't even talk to Hellwig he didn't even talk to him Harley just sat there looking out the window like he hated it and then the Ultimate Warrior really wanted to learn he was asking me and Tony Faulkner like a million questions because I had to work them a lot too like it was me and Dutch and me and Tony had to work them I don't know what their first match was but it was one of them with me I know because I had karate pants I wore as the guru big white long pants and he tried to press me one of them did and he didn't know what they were doing you know then at all pressed Uh me over his head and ripped my Uh pants they ripped my pants because they tried to grab me by the pants and ripped them like off me halfway and then (laughs) I just remember chopping the hell out of one of them I can't remember which one it was it's probably Sting because I liked Ultimate Warrior (laughs) anyway yeah they were pretty funny well he was pretty funny hell hell Warrior was in the bud? Oh yeah, that's huh? all we did the whole way. Tony Fault didn't, and Sting didn't, but we did. <laughs> and Sting would just be looking out. He didn't even talk really. I mean, he never even asked one question. And Ultimore is like, "Why do you do this? Why does this happen?" You know, he was wanting to know how to work. It's, it's kind it of fun. weird that I had it's, my it's, 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 it's hard to believe that Sting and Warrior were not really any better after they left Memphis, which almost has to be a first. I mean, well, they were still yeah, having shitty matches. Well, nobody wanted to work with them, first of all. I think I had to work with them a lot. I know, even different partners all the time. And then they put us in eight men, so they didn't have to get them in the ring much. You know, it'd be like, was Phil Hickerson a heel then or a baby face? I like think he was a baby I, face, wasn't I, Yeah, I think, that, I think they had switched in baby face as part of, part of a turn. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So they, they were baby face, I know. And then, so they had like a eight mans a lot, the Phil Hickerson and somebody with the Sting and Ultimate Warrior against me, Dutch and dundee and somebody and then so that way they didn't have to get them in the ring much and nobody wanted to work with them really so that's when they turned them uh heel so the heels didn't have to work with them and that's when Bobby, you know, jerry you'll know this do you um, is the story yeah. where dick slater stuck sting's head in a toilet trope uh i wasn't there but i mean they exaggerate sometimes because Mike Graham says he he did it to Sting and Ultimate Warrior. I know that's not true. There's no way. He, I mean, he's tough, but I don't think he did that. You know, <laughs> both of them. But he, uh, it was just Sting's what I heard. I wasn't there. I had just left the area then, but um, I think it was just uh, whatchamacallit, um, Sting. <laughs> that is funny, though. He, he was the idea that, like, <laughs> yeah. you're with my girl. I'm going to do, hey, come here. You're his partner. You too. You know, like, why would he Why would he do it to the Warrior also? There's no yeah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Later wasn't like that. No, he just went in there and took care of the one he was mad at. <laughs> but he, uh, I heard he was playing cards with somebody, Terry Taylor, and then he had his hands all taped up, puffing like he did, you know, when he's mad. And then he just went in there and did it. I don't know exactly. I heard different stories, a lot of different stories, but I know it must have happened because, and they said pretty much Sting didn't even want to fight back. He was like, didn't know what was going on or whatever, because she was flirting with everybody, to be honest. Uh, dark journey with me all the time when I was there. Right in front of Slater, I didn't. I was like Jesus, and then <laughs> it was pretty funny. Slater and uh, Buzz Sawyer are together, like, and then Dark Journey kept flirting with me right in front. I mean, pretty much right in front of them. So I can imagine what uh, Sting probably, uh, you know, might, something might have happened. I don't know. You, you know, but everything's probably not going to be rosy when you're dating a girl named Dark Journey. Uh, <laughs> just yeah. You know, just... <laughs> Yeah, that's true. There's probably not going to be a lot of sunshine and flowers there. I hope she's not listening to this. But anyway, the, uh, the uh, yeah, cause she's on there. But the uh, what you call it? Uh, I know Bill Watts something. Some store happened 
that with him too, but I'm not gonna tell that. I don't think they ever told that before. Bill Watson Dark Journey. Well, that's a rumor that I've never actually been uh, quite sure of how much of it was true and how much because I've also heard that it may have been someone else in the Mid South yeah. office. Although I guess you know who <laughs> who knows what, but we I think we've heard the story. I mean, did you hear it at the time? Did you hear it contemporaneously? No, but Winona, I know how Watts did a lot of things because Winona Littleheart, she told me that she was sent down there talking about Moolah lately, all the stuff. She told me that she was sent to work for Watts and that was, she was supposed to be his, you know, date too and everything. She told me that herself, Winona Littleheart. Oh, wow. Wait, wait. So Moolah sent, <laughs> according to according to what Winona Littleheart said yeah. to you, Moolah sent her mm-hmm. to Bill Watts, not just to work, but it was... It was implied yeah. or directly stated that she was supposed to be with him sexually. Yeah, and then she, yeah, she told me this whole story like back in '99, I think it was when she was working for me. Yeah. So. Uh, wow. I believe the dark, dark journey thing because you know, because she was Latoria's definitely uh, what you call it, dark journey with me anyway. <laughs> and then, <laughs> wow. uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure she was with Sting too. What have you thought so about the, all the uh, was, stuff? Um, I heard so many stories about her all the years. I don't, I never knew which ones were true, but there's so many. There has to be something going on, you know. I heard she'd have them all living in her little, uh, you know, those little things she had built around her house, whatever she called them. Uh, like bungalows, little almost. like apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those. And then I don't know who'd like different lady wrestlers that even tell me this stuff, and then she'd go in there and. When I and the younger ones are betraying or whatever and do whatever she wanted to do. That's what I heard. I don't know. I've never seen that myself, but <laughs> I've heard that for so many years. And then the money, everybody knows that, how she'd take most of the money or whatever when they would work. I think she'd have the promoter sent to her the money and just give them whatever, you know. I don't know what the percentage was, but it was pretty high, I think, she took. Now, on your show, she controlled it. When you promoted shows, Jerry, you had female wrestlers, but you never used anyone in Moolah's stable, correct? You kind of just booked your own, you know, Malia Hosaka, whoever was in Florida at the time. Um, well, they were all mad. I think mad at Moolah by that time. Uh, Leilani and all. I used like Leilani Kai and and um, who else? Yeah, they. I don't think it was any. I don't know. I don't think she was in control anymore after that. You know, after. At the time I was doing like 80, 90, 88, 90, 90s and all that. I don't think Moolah had control of like the, the ones I was using anyway, like Leilani. I used her a lot, Leilani Kai. I think she's one of the best ever, definitely, like lady, lady workers. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think I used any from Moolah, definitely. So Where do we take this? But, this has been such an interesting episode, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the Memphis. Memphis dressing room, though, I didn't get to tell you. Um, nothing really. I mean, it was like all the sounds were different, you know, like Evansville. I think we're all together there, too, pretty much. You know Scott, too, right? You've been in the dress rooms there, right, Scott? Uh, you know what? I never made it to Evansville, uh, and I'm not saying oh, okay. that necessarily out of regret because at the, the time I was in it, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was practically – Yeah, it was dead. Yeah. No, I only, and I only went to Louisville a handful of times because I, I was in school. I was finishing up my senior year at the University yeah. of Memphis when I was in it. So, oh, okay. Uh, but but I loved Louisville though because the you know the yeah. 
Yeah, because they, they were still drawing about 2,000 fans there, 2,500 fans, but only in like a 5,000, oh, yeah. 6,000 seat arena. Whereas, you know, the Coliseum, it would almost be depressing sometimes. Uh, you know, you have this yeah. great historical arena that was only uh, drawing 2,000 fans, 3,000 fans, maybe if you had some WWF guys headlining. Uh, so it was almost like a mausoleum. You know, it was really hard to get heat in Memphis. Uh, but man, you go to these smaller yeah. towns and Nashville too. Uh, you know, smaller arena. Yeah. So even though we weren't selling out, we were still. It was still like, uh, you know, it still had the the heat there. Um, it, it, the Coliseum yeah. was difficult. Yeah. Yeah, Memphis. I think last time I was there was the Mighty Yankees. Me and Bob Cook, and we worked um, what you call Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond. But that was. I think that was a big house that night. You remember that in like '88? I don't know what uh, month it was. Like, yeah, they were st- they were still drawing some good houses in '88. You know, they uh, the yeah, last sellout at the Coliseum was in '86, but they were, you know, I think in '88 they, yeah. they drew about nine ninety five hundred for the Lawler uh, Hennig yeah. World Title match. Yeah, yeah, and they had a lot. Yeah, they had a lot of good talent. Eddie Gilbert was kind of coming in and out. So, yeah, he was they, there when I was there that time too. Hey guys, if I hey, could I jump, payoff, <laughs> if I could jump in real quick, guys, John McAdam, who's been with us since the beginning of the show, has to leave soon. So let me turn the floor over to him. Oh, well, I was going to say I, I have my Louisville Memphis story, and Brian, you were there that night in Louisville when the SMW guys got beat up by the Memphis guys, and they literally almost had a riot. The next night, me and my friends went over to the Memphis Mid South Coliseum. And they ran the same angle where this time it was the SMW guys bloodying up the Memphis guys. And the fans were running to the exits so they wouldn't have to be in line in the parking lot. Talk about two completely different towns. Interesting. Wow, that is really interesting because with us it was so – I mean, you know, I think about little things from that night in Louisville like Dean Hill – was the ring announcer. And of course, a lot of people know him from OVW because <laughs> he was Jim Cornette's broadcast partner. And I forget if he was, he worked for the sheriff or he was, uh, was the sheriff. I forget what exactly his role was with law enforcement in the area, but he was law enforcement and he was the ring announcer. And he's the one, you know, people there were getting unnerved by us because we were cheering for the heels who were our friends, who were the people who drove us to the show, <laughs> the Smoky Man wrestling crew. And then, <laughs> He's the one who said, well, it looks like we got some Smoky Mountain fans here tonight. And they put the fucking spotlight on us. (laughs) And that's kind of when things got up the notch. And then the end of the night, I mean, it's just I wish the whole thing was on video from where we were sitting. Because I remember like the feeling and I remember the view and everything. There's a cage, and it's the Smoky Mountain team with Pat Tanaka, which I always find so funny that he was on the Smoky Mountain team. He never (laughs) wrestled for Smoky Mountain Wrestling ever. And they turn on Tommy Rich, or or they beat up Tommy Rich. I figured he may have actually been on the USWA team at the time. I forget exactly what. But all the baby faces are handcuffed to the cage. Tommy Rich is in the middle of the ring, and you know what he's doing. He's squeezing out as much blood as possible. It's a mess. The fans stop paying attention to Tommy. And turn their attention to us. That yep. was scary. <laughs> that was that was like, oh shit, this is real. And they're all coming at us. And it was just so it was one of the wildest nights ever. So so Dean Hill kind that of made you guys part though. part of the show. Yeah. They put the spotlight on us. Think about That's that. That's awesome. They had to empty the arena out and give us a police escort to the city limits. And it was no, the- come on now. <laughs> they did. But seriously, it's true. No, we, we had a police escort. Yeah, we had a police escort out of town because it was so bad. How, ma- how many of you got? 
how many was there? You you guys? We had a, there were probably four or five official minivans with us. So let's say that's at least 30 oh. people. And then John, I, I don't think you were part of the official caravan, right? You had a separate. That is correct. Yeah. So let's say the six minivans. But I was up they, there with you guys. No, no, of course. Of course. But I'm just saying in terms of I'm trying to figure out how many people it would have uh, approximately been. So it was a good amount. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a night none of us will ever forget. Travis Heckle calls it the uh, the last great night of kayfabe. <laughs> but John, I know you have to jump off. So, any final words you want to say to the six hundred fivers here this week? Nope. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening, Jerry. I've known you for like what thirty years, twenty five years at bare oh, at very yeah. least. Glad, I'm glad I got to talk to you. For, uh, yeah, same thing, pleasure. Mr. Bowden. I've known you. I've known him from AOL for twenty five years. It's great to talk to you for the first time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, guys. Later. Oh, thanks. thanks for having me on. Take it easy, John. Thanks a lot, John. Take care, bud. And there he goes, the man who correctly picked the Houston Astros to win the World Series last year. Here on opening day, Star Wars, John McAdam, and now here we are, me, the golden boy, Jerry Gray, and Bobby Bowden's nephew, Scott Bowden, here on the show. We'll add someone in a few minutes, but, you know, um, Jerry, I don't know how much you've had a chance to listen to Scott's fine show, Kentucky Fried Wrestling, which we're so proud of. That show is so much fun to put together, and we really try to have as much yeah. fun as possible with it yeah. and really do as good a job as possible at really presenting the feeling of Memphis wrestling. So, you know, we talked a little oh, bit yeah. about you and Memphis on the show and Scott's actually asked you a few questions, but I'm going to turn the floor over to him to ask him anything you want to, he wants to know about your runs in Memphis. Yeah. I'm kind of curious yeah. about what the, what the guru guru was supposed to be, because I know I remember you being a part <laughs> of that angle, you know, the big angle where Dundee yeah. lost the title shot against Ric Flair and he turns to you and saying, we can beat this guy. Right. And you're kind of like nodding, <laughs> like all knowing. And yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> maybe I wasn't watching wrestling as closely as I once was by 85 because I was so enamored with, uh, with world championship wrestling and what the product they were putting out, but I was still a, obviously yeah. a huge fan, but I, w- what was it supposed to be? And, and okay. how come it didn't come to fruition? Well, because I left because they have to, I had to pay off, uh, one week. Um, I was telling Brian about that, but they had me against Lawler in the main event. And the, it was a good house too in Memphis that time. And then I think the total week, you know how they take uh, money out for the commission or whatever license and some towns like they take out whatever. I can't even remember what the fee was, you know, for I think uh, somebody, Kentucky, is that the one that had a commission? They would take out a license. You had to have a license for Kentucky. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they they take it out of your check, whatever. And then I remember my check for the whole week was $199. So that was with working on main event with Lawler, a good house in Memphis, and then whatever, five or six other towns, $199. And I just came from, came from uh, Mid-South making really good money there. You know, they talked me into coming there, Dundee and uh, Dutch. And then, but we were riding in, uh, together in uh, Mid-South and then they started coming up with that, because it was in the news a lot then that, uh, what was his name? Rajneesh something from Oregon. He had that big cult going on. It was on the news a lot at that time, 85. Okay. And uh, he had a lot of he had a lot of heat. He was doing like terrorist type stuff in Oregon, poisoning the some of the towns, buffets and everything. So he had a lot of heat on the news. And then they wanted me because Ed Wiskoski was already doing the gimmick in uh, Oregon, uh, Mega Maharishi. And they were want to call me uh, first. They were going to call me that too, Mega Maharishi. I think they did a few times. And then Dundee, I yeah. think he wanted to do like type of elk 
kind of like Elvis where he had his own guru, you know, Elvis and Andy Kaufman and all of them had a, like a guru. So he called Dundee's guru. He called me sometimes and just right. the guru. That's what, <laughs> that was the gimmick though. I didn't even know. I seen something they had on YouTube where he was, before I even came there, he had a picture of that, that Rajneesh guy saying that this guy's coming, his son's coming, he's praying for me and all this stuff. I seen the promo he did before I even came there. It's on YouTube. But anyway, he, uh, and then I just got the gimmick together, seeing what they kind of what they wore, that the cult they had out there in Oregon. And then uh, that's what the gimmick was, kind of like a. But they wanted me to shave my head originally and be like a like the Mongol, pretty much almost with just the ponytail on the back, you know. And then uh, I was thinking, well, I want to see what the money is like first before I do that, shave my head. <laughs> and then uh, when I got there and started seeing the money, they kept saying, "Your hair ain't no different than it was." I said, "Yeah, okay, we'll see." And then uh, I got the check, and they said, "We need to shave that head bald." And I started showing them with my fingers and no money. And they looked like shit because they didn't know I had been uh, using my Walkman when I'd ride with Dundee. And I told Brian this last time when I'd ride with them all the time in Mid-South, they had all these ideas. And I'd ride with them in the back seat with my Walkman headphones on. They thought I was listening to music. So they would have all their secrets they were saying, but I'd have it turned off really just listening. <laughs> and they said, we're going to get a bunch of these young guys and give them championship belts and we'll keep all the money. And I was thinking, okay, <laughs> I don't know what's <laughs> happening now. So I right. just went along with it. I seen that's what really happened. So, 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 when you, so, 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 when you, so when you got that check, they, they went up to you and said, Hey, we'll make you the mid America champion. <laughs> oh, they already gave me that. I think I, okay. I don't know what some belt I had. I remember I had some belt tag team belt or something with, I don't know who it me and Dutch maybe or something for a little while. I wasn't there very long, six weeks or something. And then, uh, the, the, the day I left, I remember they were going to do an angle with me, uh, finally do a big angle with me and Coco beware. We're going to have a, like a voodoo doll on the TV show, me stabbing her or whatever. And I don't know if they're going to have him sell on it or whatever, you know, that's what they were going to do, I guess. Cause they tried to talk me into coming back. Even Jerry Jarrett sent me like a big check because uh, he wanted the gimmick so bad. Because I did a promo on uh, the Jerry Lawler show, you know. I did. I don't. I don't know if they exist even, but I did like a promo on there talking about because I had had a, even had one of that guy's his books, uh, the Rajneesh leader thing. I had one of his books. I started reading like the way he meditated and everything. So I said, I'm gonna. Me and Dundee and Dutch, I said some weird voice I was using and everything. So we're going to, the first method of meditation is going to be to go to a cemetery at midnight to meditate on death. And then Lawler was just like, Ugh, sounds like an obscene phone call. And then, and oh, then, uh, Dutch, and then yeah, I was trying to get serious. Of, co- of, co- of, of, co- of course, that, of course, that's where Lawler's going to take it. I know. And then, but Jarrett loved it. He was like, I did a real weird interview. I can't even remember now. It's been 30 years, but he goes, uh, afterwards, Jerry Jarrett was like, we're going to do that, make a video of that. You guys going to a cemetery and at nighttime every meditating and then blah, 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 all this stuff in my limousine and all this. And then I was like, yeah, let me see the money. I was thinking. And then, so I just left. I got so mad at that check, you know, 199 for the whole week. And then, and then especially being like good, big matches with Lawler and everything. So then, uh, I got back to florida i remember and uh they kept calling me down here and uh they usually keep your last check back then the way they did it you know you don't get they keep one hold one check so that way if you leave or whatever they just keep it so i told him send my check and then i'll think about it or whatever and then he actually sent like a thousand bucks because he thought that i'd come back but i knew what was going to happen right when i got back it was going to be the same stuff you know thing again i could just had a feeling this it's not going to happen you know because so, so the crowds you, weren't very good 
yeah. most places. Yeah, except yeah it, it was uh, it was strange. And you talk about being in there in '84. I'm just wondering because '84, I think, is when things started to change a little bit. You know, that's that's when Vince was starting to penetrate the market. Even though they really didn't start drawing there until '86, but it kind of hurt the perception, yeah. I guess, of the promotion as being the big boys and being the major yeah. leagues. Um, and yeah. maybe starting to feel like Lawler wasn't as big a deal as he was. I mean, so the, I mean, attendance was strong, I think, through summer, and then by fall of '84, that's when you started to real to really see a dip when school started again. Uh, and then yeah. by the end, of, I think I, yeah. And so, I mean, did you notice a big difference in the yeah. payoffs between '84 and '85? Oh God, let's see. When was I, I was there? Like the really the right at the beginning because I just came from Mid Atlantic. Johnny Weaver sent me there. I remember. And it was like beginning of 84. It was good at that time because I remember yeah. I was making pretty good money. And then Lawler, they were pretty jam-packed. Like, they had so many guys. That's why I said they had like everybody was coming in there. Uh, AWA guys and Macho Man, everybody was there. But the, uh, I remember I was making pretty good. And then Lawler sent me to uh, Mid-South. But then when I came back, it had been like that was almost 86. So it was almost two years later, actually. And how would Lawler, because Lawler always liked to be the, the good guy in the deal. He never liked to fire anybody. Uh, and, and I think that, that, you know, you'd see like when if Lawler had the book, then that's when you knew like the cards were like huge. And you'd see like two different oh, eight yeah. man tags, you know, because he's trying to use everybody. And he wanted to get to the point yeah. where Jerry Jarrett would be forced to fire somebody. But he says, you, you know, <laughs> yeah. At least, at least he had another opportunity, I guess, lined up for you. Uh, how smooth was Lawler and selling you on that idea? Like, hey, man, you know, um, don't have room for you here, but no. we got you lined up in Mid South. I mean, was he? Did he come off as like your best no. friend? Or no, you know what it was that 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 area really was the most political place I ever been anywhere. I mean, because it was like all it was was who was it? We we'll see. Me and one other guy came in at the exact same time. I can't remember who it was. And he was friends with, I didn't know hardly any of the Memphis guys, but this guy did, whoever it was. Terry Gibbs, I think it was. Okay. Yeah, Terry Gibbs. Okay, so he, we came in at the exact same time, and he was friends with a lot of the, he had been around like a few years longer than me, and he he knew a lot of the people. And I could just see him like saying, and it was just like, it was just right in, my, in front of my face almost, you could see, like he was saying, have them you know, because he was, they were giving me good matches at first, like with, like I said, the angle they did with me and Coco against uh, uh, Bruce Brothers. I turned heel on Coco and all that, and then next thing I know, it was like, uh, yeah, we'll just send him to here. But uh, there was so much stuff like that going on. I mean, everywhere, but that that was really political there, <laughs> except for when I was the guru, because I was in with the the bosses then. You know, Dundee and uh, Dutch, I rode with them all the time in the mid south, so I was already in the political stuff being with them friends with them you know so the first time i went though i didn't know any of the guys hardly there very few you know so that's what it was pretty much is the reason so they probably waller might not even have known that he, they might have just said oh man this guy this guy's better whatever you know stuff like that happens yeah. but whatever um but the funny funniest thing ever happened to me not funny the stiffest guy i ever worked was uh plowboy frazier i mean and he dropped that leg on you, you know, you ever heard <laughs> yeah. anybody talk about Well, that? I didn't take oh it, my but yeah, God. I saw it, yeah. Oh, my God. He did it in Nashville at the fairgrounds, and that was in 84 when it was still, you know, good houses and stuff. And then I'm telling you, it's the only time I didn't even have to go to the bathroom, but talk about <laughs> knocking the shit out of you. That guy, that was the stiffest. I mean, I thought he killed me. You know how much he weighed and the height yeah. and everything. He dropped that leg. <laughs> 
he must have dropped his ass on me or something because man, that was the hardest I ever ever been hit in my life. Bob Boy Frazier, I'll never forget that night. <laughs> and then uh, John Studd was second. John Studd was second and stiff with those forearms across your chest Whoa. back when he went uh, on TV, you know. But yeah, Memphis, I'll never forget Nashville that night. Bob Boy, I didn't want to work with him after that ever again. But uh, I don't think I had to think uh selling his watches and all the crap he had to sell people, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Rolex watches and everything. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, guys, yeah. as we're going down the road of talking about larceny and other things here, let me uh, add someone to the call. <laughs> Let's try to lighten things up here. Uh, oops, and I clicked the wrong thing. Let's uh, add this person. <laughs> add people. Search for this person. Here he is. Add people. We're dialing him in right now. One of your lines you're, you're, is noisy. What? You're going to clean this up in post, right? Oh, no. This is... Uh, <laughs> This is minimal, if no editing at all, on these Star Wars shows. And I believe our guest it's is annoyed. on the line. Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. Mystery guest <laughs> is signed in. It's, of course, the wrestling humorist Scott Cornish here on the show, and he is joined by Scott Bowden of Kentucky Fried Wrestling and the Golden Boy, Jerry Gray, and it's a good time to mention tinyurl.com slash gofundgoldenboy. Make a contribution, help Jerry in his battle with stage four cancer. Get more information at tinyurl.com slash gofundgoldenboy. But Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jerry, Scott. Hey, Brian. Scott. Hey, Scott. <laughs> Scott, <you> Jerry. <laughs> Scott, my old, my dear, my dear old friend. And Jerry, my dear new friend. Good to talk to you a lot. Yes. Yes. First time we talked, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I, got I've, got, I've got a request before this thing goes out of hand. Have you told the story that you uh, teased online the other day yet? Which one? <laughs> the uh, about a, a road the, trip with Gary Hart, uh, Lewin. And oh, oh, yeah. What was that yeah, story? Uh, no, I didn't tell that. I didn't want to tell it on there, you know. So, um, yeah, I, you told me to tell, you told me to tell the the one too, uh, Ryan, about uh, Solomon with the uh, the first rip, trip I ever made with him. You know, the other one. Oh yeah, where well, the baseball cards and all. Yeah, because okay. I, I mentioned you, Kevin Sullivan's on this show. He we started the show with him and John McAdam, and we talked about baseball. And Kevin, oh, he, he loves baseball. He's a huge baseball fan. Anyone who's been around Kevin knows this oh, about yeah. Kevin. Yeah. So I didn't even know him. He had just came back to Florida and uh, he just started doing the, the evil gimmick. And then one night I rode to uh, Hollywood, Florida, and I'd only been wrestling maybe one year. And I rode with Scott McGee and Brad Armstrong to the town. And then they decided they were going to stay there. They found some groupies or whatever. And then I had no way back to uh, Tampa. So Sullivan, I didn't know at all, really. And then uh, Bill Alfonso, Jake. And Angela Mosca had a, the car, and so all five. They said I could ride with them, so all five of us are in. The, I'm in the back seat with Sullivan and Fonzie. So um, that everybody else hadn't come out to the car yet. I'm just sitting in there with Sullivan, and he looks at me and goes, uh, he shows me his wallet, and uh, it's all full of baseball players' pictures, you know, instead of family pictures or whatever. <laughs> and he's like, and I think they're black most of them because he said i'm gay for a black baseball player and he had a straight face and i didn't want to laugh or anything i just like i didn't know if he was serious and he never did laugh he just 
they never did smarten me up to it. So I was just like, I don't know. I'm not nothing against gay, but I don't, I don't know if he's serious or what. What's he, what's he showing me? This stuff? What a rib. He never did tell me. I finally figured it out. But the road trip with, uh, <laughs> whatchamacallit, Mark, Mark Lewin. Okay. So Mark Lewin, I didn't know nothing about Jim Barnett either at that time. You know, they, it was Mark Lewin, Gary Hart, and Sullivan when they came to Mid-Atlantic. Uh, Sullivan and Lewin for a little while. So, so we're this right, is I don't know where they got this. Yeah. I don't know where they got this dumpy car, but it was like a piece of junk. I don't, I don't even know if it was something they borrowed from a groupie or something, but it was like really junky car. So we're, I'm in the backseat with Sullivan again and, uh, Mark Lewin and, uh, Gary Hart are in the front and they just keep talking. Like I didn't know Jim Barnett, you know, the impersonations and all the crap cause they've been in Australia so many times. So they were like, Hey, Mark C. Yeah, it's Jim Z. Yeah. And they were talking like that. Paul Wayne Sullivan just kept looking at me because he knew he was doing that, you know, rib on me again a little bit, like starting to smile at me and stuff, like acting funny. So, but then we just, you know, got partied the whole way there. And then on the way back, they had wine and all kinds of crap, weed, of course. And then, so we're going, it's dark or whatever. And Lewin, he was funny as hell because every time there'd be a cop on the side of the road or whatever, he'd go away, you know, when they were high and drunk, everything, all of us were, so that he would go away on the other side of the road like he's being really, you know, a great driver. You know, I can't explain it, but it was just funny as hell because he'd go off the into the other lane pretty much just so he'd show the cop, you know, he's not going to come near the people on the side of the road the cop had pulled over. So anyway, on the way back, we have a flat tire and it's dark or whatever and then they have no jack we got a spare tire but they have no jack so can you imagine mark lewin who looks like the devil at that time gary hart and kevin sullivan looks like charles manson at that time kind of and then me all trying to get people to stop on the side of the road dark, you know <laughs> people are driving by so it's like and plus they we're all partying drunk and everything they got bottles of wine so nobody would stop of course when they see this gang of people and then so we're all laying on the side of the road because it'd been a long time and then they get drinking bottles of wine and everything and then here come the cops finally the cops and then they throw the wine and everything right in front of them pretty much and then the cops were kind of scared too because the way lewin looked he was a pretty scary looking guy and then uh they i don't even know if they knew we were wrestlers or whatever but they probably figured it out i think they told them and they said they had to tell them or they knew they were scared though. The cops, the cops were even scared a little bit, you know, just the way Lewin looked, he was the scariest looking one. And then, uh, so then they finally, I forget how we finally got a Jack and then they didn't know how to do, uh, they didn't know how to change a tire. I don't know if it was a rib or what, but wow. the cops were like, well, we're not going to do it. And I was like, what the hell? So then I had to do it all. And they were calling me like a mechanic. I'm a mechanic and all this just cause I changed the tire. It was pretty damn funny. The funniest part, though, was nobody was ever going to stop with this gang of, like, uh, chainsaw massacre-looking people on the side of the road, road, you know? Mark Lewin, you know how he looked back then, and he's sitting there trying to flag people down at the nighttime, you know, middle of nowhere, North Carolina. That was the funny story, though, I thought. I don't know. You had to be there. <laughs> with the uh... All those guys who travel the road and, and not one could change a tire. <laughs> Oh, I know. I was just like, are they kidding? Are they I mean, kidding? Me? I mean, they actually, because I act like I didn't know how at first, because I thought they were just ribbing, but they actually just stood there looking like, what the hell? And the cops were like, I think the cops had to actually start showing them how to do it. And then I just said, uh, I'll do it. Jesus. I thought it was a joke, but I guess it wasn't. Yeah, because, you know, they never really, they probably all started wrestling young. I know uh, Lewin did. 
and they probably never had to worry about driving a car like we had that night. I don't know where it came from. That thing was junk. <laughs> it was real small, too, for us big guys like that. So anyway, uh, Mark Lewin was funny. One time, I don't like to say this, though, because I, I don't think he cares, though, because he showed me in the dress room or an Indian girl inked his dick, he showed me. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> but, what? You know, did it ink, whatever. T- <laughs> that's, a funny, that's even funnier than the road store uh, in the dress room. That night, that same night, yeah, uh, Lewin was in there changing. He goes, here, look, look this is where an Indian girl uh, inked my cock. And just showed me some kind of thing he had on, like a tattoo-looking thing. I was like, oh, okay, that's nice. <laughs> what the hell? We- <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't know what to say. It was just like, man, that is weird. I'm scared of this fucking guy a little bit. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. He was wow. a, He was cool, but he was shoo, different. You learn something new every day here on the Super Podcast. Sometimes many <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah, all of them. Kevin probably knows that. <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure next I time I talk to him, I ask him about Mark Mark Lewin's no, ink don't, cock. No, don't tell him that. I hope he don't listen. I wasn't going to say it because I know I don't want him to hear this. He might not want no people to know that. <laughs> you know, Kevin, before anyway. I get to talking to you about your run on top of the most successful period of time in WCW, I do have to ask you about Mark Lewin's cock. Yeah. Yeah, please tell me yeah. more. <laughs> I know he'll laugh. I'm sure he showed Kevin because he showed me, and I didn't even know him real good yet. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. The uh, did you ask Kevin about the armbands? I don't know if he remembers that the first spiked armbands he had. I didn't, but I did, did ask him about that story you told where uh, during the Carl. I guess the the top of the Malenko Graham Heat, you know, <laughs> when that was at its peak, oh. how Carl got showed up in the yeah. studio and everyone ran away except Kevin, and he remembered it. He, he talked about yeah. it. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. Because he's the only one, he's the only one that sat there. They just looked up at Carl and said, hi, Carl. <laughs> I don't know what Carl came in there for. They didn't run, but there was nobody in there to do the TV show. Like the people that were usually in there, you know, like uh, Eddie Graham and Matsuda and everybody. <laughs> they just kind of heard he was coming and they got went up to the top of the office somewhere. Yeah, he stayed a while, too. <laughs> he just stood there. Carl Koch. Yeah, that was funny. That wasn't too funny, I guess, for them. Yeah. So, uh, Hot Dog, how you doing tonight? <laughs> hey, I'm absolutely great, man. <laughs> Jerry, great. Hey, that's fantastic. Hey, Jerry, I'm saluting you tonight with uh, a glass of, uh, it looks like apple juice, I think. Not pissed, right? <laughs> no, no. <I'm laughs> Where's your loyalty, man? No, but you see, but, man, but even you, I mean, you're talking about you're going to sell bottles of piss. That's not how it works. It has to be your own piss man. to show the real respect. Man, this. Yeah, but that's easy. That's, that'd even be better. Drink somebody else's piss. That's, that's even more respect. I don't, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. know. This, piss you know? <laughs> this piss thing's taking off, man. <laughs> drinking piss. Jesus. Drink piss instead of drink milk. Yeah. I got Jake piss. Just... <laughs> Yeah, got this. Man, I got, I got to see what Jake thinks about this. Maybe he'll think about paying back my money he owes me when hey, he gets all this. Hey, you know, you talked he, about the Inoki thing where he slapped everyone. How come David Schultz doesn't set this up? We get him in the middle of the ring. You get online. He gives you respect. He open hand slaps you in the face, and you get it back in line. Yeah, yeah just like Inoki. I think that could be some right. real money there. Yeah. The David Schultz open hand yeah, slap challenge. The, I don't think anybody accept that one. No. Yeah, <laughs> in Japan. What was that? I couldn't hear. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh Jesus! 
yeah, Japan people. They might over there, but it's different here. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants a Noki slap here. Everybody wants it in Japan for some reason. Well, I can only imagine taking a no pain in hand slap from Rick Rude, you know, a guy who just oh, has so much strength in his, in his arms. Uh, I, I took, you know, the worst thing that I ever took was two open hand slaps, one from downtown Bruno, one from Jackie Moore. And I'm telling you, they both like oh, nearly spun me for a loop because you can't really, you can't fake that. I mean, you can't like, you know, let it up on that. You've got to, yeah. for, for that to come off, you know, we were on live TV. So there was all this pressure make it look good. Make, you know, Lawler's like whispering in their ear, like make it look good, make it look good before they go out. Because if you, if you half-ass an open hand slap, it's going to just look terrible. And man, neither, both of them slapped yeah. the ever loving taste out of my mouth. I mean, I can only imagine like, they, it was, they went from rude. Oh, geez. Did they hit you in the ear? Because that's the word. You're not supposed to do the ear. That's what really. Yeah, Jackie. Not, you know, Jackie I think I think Jackie was like under more pressure to make it look good since she was a chick. But oh. uh, yeah, she got me in the man. And I, I was like, I was not goofy for about two or three days. Uh, of course, I never was going to admit oh, that. Yeah. But uh, I was like, oh, yeah, good. That was good. No. That was good. <laughs> yeah, the J.J. Uh, Dillon told me and Brian Blair were doing it back in. 82 or 81 or something and brian blair kept wanting me to smack him in the you know really smack him in the face hard like the ear everything just to show and jj told us no you smack him in the side of the neck and they can't tell you do it so fast and then blair was like no i want him to smack me in the ear the face everything real hard so the people oh. could see how mad i get and, I was, and jj just rolled his eyes rolled his eyes and then Blair ended up knocking the hell out of me because he went and hit me, you know, back even twice as hard. It was pretty funny. We used to have the stiffest damn forearms and smacks and everything to each other. But uh, yeah, they, they they used to do it like in the side of the neck instead of the, I guess they do it right in the face or the ear now. They started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who knows? Boy, oh boy. What's that? What's that? It just said, boy, oh boy, Everybody Scott. Knows. Scott, uh, how about Randy Hales? Did you ever, you tangled with him a few times. How were his <laughs> Oh, um, yeah, wasn't exactly a uh, flare and steamboat there. Um, <laughs> uh, but the thing about Randy, you know, the deal that like, I think why it even partially got over was the fact he was just swinging like, like, well, I'm, I'm not going to say a retard, but uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like a guy who had never maybe been in a real fight before. And he's like, just got these helicopter, you know, kind of motions, uh, almost like uh, Jeff Jarrett's first time in the ring when Landell and Dundee beat the shit out of him. Um, oh. and, and, and the side of my head was 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 pounding just from his stiff shots but of course you know you're kind of taught early on you know my dad told me you ever get in a fight son you know do a jab you know straight ahead uh you know you don't want to hit up you know wildly from on the sides and it was it, that's what it was like it was like a guy's first playground fight uh which kind of fit the whole thing to begin with but i will say this about randy you know he's the one who even suggested i go there because you know, you could almost say any get away with saying anything on Memphis TV for years, and I think that people stayed away from the Randy Hales thing because they weren't quite sure. Like maybe they thought something was really wrong with it, so no one ever kind of went there. And Randy, Randy was like, you know, go ahead and just you know just you know really push that that I'm only here because I'm I'm retarded. And then I kind of added that little deal about being uh, Eddie Marlin's illegitimate retarded son, and so that on top of that was. Was too much, you know. I thought Dave Brown was gonna be, was gonna smack me harder in the back than Randy Hales did. Oh yeah, because uh, oh, Dave, you know, Dave Brown came up to me and he's like, he's like, uh, what the fuck was that? And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Dave Brown just cursed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, that was God. the most painful thing I probably ever experienced. Uh, 
besides the uh, open hand slaps from Bruno and uh, and and Jackie. Do you know who the Booker was in um, '84? Was Tom uh, Ronesto? Because he was there when I was there. That he was there in '85. Yeah, Tom. Tom, okay. Tom didn't get there till '85, so he would have been there during your second, toward the end of your second run. So the Guru was he there? Huh. I he remember was, he, his son was there. Yeah, was Tom Brown's name. Uh, he was working as yeah, Tom. Yeah, he was there. Yeah, yeah, that was because we rode with him some. But the uh, God, I remember Tom Ernesto. Maybe he was just there visiting or something. Because I could swear I remember him being there that first time I was there. I guess not. Maybe. Well, he it he was, was weird though because he'd cut. Yeah, he, he was. Yeah, he wasn't there in '84, but he was. He, and I think he was finishing up in '85. Oh. He came in. Oh, okay, yeah, because he was there. And then uh, I remember it was kind of weird. I'd be in the shower, and he'd come talking to me with a suit on, telling me stuff. I'd be like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can you wait till I get out of the shower? He wanted to see Tell if you were inked. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. didn't know. I thought he was going to do one of the Buddy, Buddy Roberts things on me. Bird well, <laughs> well, thankfully uh, he didn't. But real quick, I do want to say something yeah. here. Uh, you brought up Brian Blair before. I want to say something to Brian because yeah. he, he may be listening. Uh, the new Mid-South Wrestling Podcast is coming on. And any comments about Brian in Mid-South in 1981 is not necessarily an indictment on his whole career. So I just want to say that in advance of those episodes uh, once we start releasing them. Oh. A teaser. <laughs> no, you know what it is because I was a little, I was, I'm a little critical of the way he was used on TV, and it wasn't very exciting. I think he was used a lot better after 1981 in Mid South. But I just want to make sure people don't think I'm just, you know, not a fan in any way. I just, I think in Mid South, it, it wasn't, you know, like the, it's some of that stuff, and you'll hear about it on the Mid South show with me and Mike Mills. Some of that stuff is so good, and then some of it, like I don't ever want to see Ed Wiskowski versus Brian Blair like ever again. Ever, <laughs> or you know, there's like some of that with it also. So uh, I just what, want to say, what's, it, what's interesting to me about Mid South is like you know you you would, you watch some uh, past episodes and you see so many of these talented guys who were just on the verge of breaking through and they're being used as squash talent, you know, and uh, you know J- Jerry Jarrett when he did the the trade deal, you know, he got Rick Rude from Mid South who was just going nowhere and part of these, you know, uh, I think he I think he was. Uh, tag teaming with god like maybe tim horner or somebody against the midnight express in their debut on mid-south maybe even lanny uh, it may have been lanny. yeah maybe yeah, yeah lanny yeah. lanny yeah it was I'm yeah lanny i mean yeah it was just uh it's kind of interesting that, that memphis seemed to have a better rep for maybe taking uh talent that had not been utilized to their full extent and really kind of taking them to the next level um because rude went from being just green as grass and not really uh, able to cut a promo, but he had Jimmy Hart there kind of guiding him. Uh, but then Rude, by the end of that summer of, of, of 80, had just developed so strongly. And he and Lawler were drawing, you know, houses of 10,000 people at the Mid-South Coliseum. Uh, had a ton of heat. He and Jim Neidhart. And uh, you mentioned Angel, his real-life girlfriend. And they even did that deal where Lawler. Idol. Yeah, and Idol was there. Right. Yeah, he had, he had a great deal going with Idol. Yeah. I when Lawler punches Angel, said. there's a great shot of that in the Mid-South Coliseum. You see, like, this one fan just going nuts in the front row. Like, yeah, everyone's so like, happy that Lawler punched this woman. But there's yeah. one fan, he's almost, like, running in place. Like, he gets yeah. so excited. He's, like, he's like 12 years old. Or something. That's yeah. what's most alarming. It's like a young boy who's like, yeah! <laughs> yeah, I used to ride with them every night. Every night, Rude and uh, her, she was a good-looking boy. And the uh, I remember Lawler when he said that pile driver he did on her. Remember, and she had no underwear on. He loved yeah. that pile driver. <laughs> 
Jerry Lawler. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he. Uh... <laughs> What are you, can the see, like, you can see Lawler kind of like, uh, yeah, take it like, like a little, like, like a little look now. Like, oh! uh, yeah. That may, not be, that may not be what I think he would. <laughs> that's not the sound exactly. I think he made when he looked down. Oh, okay. but he's what? It's but, when he went for a second no, he... driver that everyone realized. <laughs> or third. But but he's lucky Rude didn't notice because Rude was oh. really jealous and he lo- he loved to fight too. Jesus. Yeah, I remember yeah, they, they, tried, they, tried to, they tried to turn Rude babyface, uh, and it just did not work. You know, Rude had, nah, had, had just started taking <laughs> off as a heel, and he came out there and was trying to yeah. get baby, and he just his natural just oh, yeah, that was it. That was his true self, and he just couldn't do it. And they yeah. switched him. They switched him right back like three weeks later. Yeah, he was he was a nice guy. I rode with him almost every night. That's when I was there for that. That's why I said we lived only two doors down from this motel in Nashville, and and he would uh, he was really I don't know how long he had been working, but he was asking me. So I'd already been working a couple of years. I guess he probably was pretty much starting at that time. Because well, on mid south, I know he was really green. Yeah, I saw him in he was in Atlanta for a bit, right? And then yeah, and, that's right. And then he yeah. went to mid south, and then I think he was part of that deal with Jarrett, and then uh, from there he went to Florida. Yeah. And then world class, and then yeah, got the WWF deal. So. Oh yeah, wow, you know, yeah, show. look at that. Yeah. Hey guys, yeah. let's uh, let's was... add someone else to the line. I feel like this conversation is going in the right direction to add this person. Let's add people. I'll type in a name here. We'll hope that he answers the phone. We are dialing him currently. In the meantime, we'll get some of this. Will you get that stupid fool out of here? Stop the murder on TV. <laughs> so what are you trying to prove? <laughs> you yo, yo. cowardly dog. Howard, how's it going? <laughs> hey, hey, what's going on? All right. Uh, on the line right now, you are with the host of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Scott Bowden, the humorist, noted humorist, Scott Curtis, <laughs> and of course, the golden boy, <laughs> Jerry Gray. Oh, tremendous. Three guys that I have never spoken to in the flesh, except for Scott a little bit. Uh, voice to voice. Tremendous. Auspicious. It's like a Godzilla movie, like Monster Island, the meeting of the <laughs> legendary greats. <laughs> Where's Howard? We never met down in uh, Miami, Jerry? No, Miami? no. This year. No, because like really? by 87, I was out and I was doing other stuff. Oh. My Florida career wondered, ended yeah. in like 84. And I went to college, and I got blackballed for working mm. with Tyree Pride, like, sometime during 84, <laughs> right when I went to college. So, um, yeah. yeah. I was there. I was there in 80. Hey, Jerry. Because uh, uh, Jerry yeah. and I have corresponded in the past, but we never actually spoke word to word. Yeah. That's cool, man. Did you you have a TV thing going on, too, with Tyree, for, you know, outlaw stuff for that time? Yeah, we, we, had Miami TV, we had TV on Channel you know, 39 down here. And I mean, let me tell you guys out there, like a lot of people will be like, hey, I'm in the business. And when my family promoted, nobody involved in my promotion had any idea that they were even in a wrestling promotion at the time. (laughs) It was inexplicable. (laughs) I mean, people would give their, you know, that 90% of you guys out there would give your left testicle. It was a weird thing. That promotion came upon us like a skin growth because it was just there one day. I came home from college. And my dad is like, I answered this ad in the paper. And then Tyree and Bobby Wales came over my dad's place. Next thing you know, we're producing a cheap pilot. Um, we had like Ricky Santana, Billy Mack, Tyree, Bobby Wales. Um, 
And it was classic. So I, mean, the- I mean, it, I mean, it was like uh, the Kenny Powers of wrestling. And we had Sweet Brown Sugar for a taping. We paid him like 500 bucks, and he did a promo. And what was hilarious, Bella. I've got to post this for you guys. I, there's, I know that there's a photo of it. I know there's really bad video footage of it. But in keeping with the theme that, I mean, it was like, let's do a wrestling promotion. Stupidest thing ever. Nobody knew what was going on. And so we had no announcer. We show up. We were at some YMCA or something. <laughs> there's like eight people in the audience. And it's ultra classic because this would be like the, if like HBO did a wrestling show, like Kenny Powers in wrestling. The, our ring announcer was Sal, this self-professed mafioso from Miami Beach at the convention center who got me into ringside and ultimately uh, like he got us our front row seats. And then eventually he got me in to shoot ringside through Duke Kiyomoka. So Sal was there. Mm-hmm. Sal was like the ultimate central casting, low level mobster, self professed, no less. And I've got footage and photos of all this stuff. So that's, what's great about it. And we had these low budget tapings. We had TV 39 and we ran the islands a couple of times and then all of a sudden we went from like doing pretty good to breaking even to maybe not breaking even, but the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. So something was going on in Charlie Thompson town. And I don't know, you know, the who's or the what's, but it was a lot of fun. And that was our deal. So one day I'm at who was the convention hall. I don't mean, I don't ahead. mean to filibuster guys, but it's a, like a, it's like all this stuff is coming back to me now. Yeah, keep going. So at the taping, we, we had go, go, go. Louis Estea. We had Louis Estea at the taping. And I'm going to post this mm-hmm. stuff for you guys. Um, remind me to tell you guys about the Sweet Brown Sugar interview that Pete Letterberg and I um, conducted at this taping because, of course, we had no announcer. Let's do a taping, but let's not have announcers, ring announcers. <laughs> um, so, like, Sweet Brown Sugar was mortified to be part of, part of the proceedings because he came out there. He had an attitude. <laughs> From the minute he stepped into the building, and he was still working for Florida at the time, and um, oh, it, it was like 84. I, I don't think he was working for Florida at the time, but he was around. It's like he wasn't that far gone from his prime in Florida. This was yeah. like getting a big – I mean he was a humongous yeah. star down here. So oh, yeah. uh, we're back there, and like after watching a couple of our matches, Sweet Brown Sugar was like seething backstage, and he's like <laughs> – you guys don't know how to let me show you how to do a fucking promo and he goes out there and he's with the legendary announcing team of Howard Baum and Pete Letterberg and they have not improved much from their angle in uh, Memphis the chemistry was still there the magic was still well alive and I had one sentence to say and managed to completely fuck it up and of course there was no second take or anything so there we are and um, so anyway, we had guys like Ricky Santana. We had Luis Estea. Luis Estea ratted us out to the promotion. And then by the next week, when I was still shooting photos at the convention hall, word had filtered. And uh, Fonzie came up to me. He goes, oh, man, Duke is pissed at you. They said there was some kind of taping. And it was like this photographer and his dad. I'm like, oh, my God. And that was the end. Word came down from Chris Dundee, Duke Kiyomoka. They said to Sal, what are you trying to do to us? You vouch vouch for this guy. Meanwhile, Sal's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know nothing. And he's all over the tapings. He's like (laughs) like the voice. (laughs) So it was like classic bad. But then, I mean, it was a great time to get blackballed because I was going to college right then anyway. And it's so zygazunt. That was the end. So you kind of went out in a blaze of glory. 
who was the ad you answered for? You said that somebody wanted to start a promotion. Who, it who was, was in the. It was in the Herald, apparently. My dad was a businessman, far too much of a gentleman to be wrapped up in the world of wrestling. And we it was, it was brief, and it was fun, and um, that was the deal. But there was not the person. The person was who? Is that Sal? Is that who was the one that got you? No, no, no. Sal wasn't really from- about Sal. Oh. Sal was oh, like a okay. Sal was a ringside regular back in the convention hall days. He was like a front row because in oh. the old days you had to die to get a front row seat. You know, like oh, somebody yeah. had to die for you to move up. There were there were people there from like <laughs> yeah. the inception of time, Reserve. like 1962. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, well, and like and believe me, true. when I was a fan, I was eyeing them like a vulture. I'm like, okay, when those three go, <laughs> those seats are gonna open up. Which is the same thing I did to Paul Bauman. I was spotting him from the age of 10 years old. I'm like. I'm like that's Aptor's guy, and I'm gonna be him one day. And I mean, yeah. I left the promotion before he did, unfortunately. So that, so that wasn't Tyree's thing or no Malenko or no one. No, it was me and that ad that, No, it was me and me and Tyree, like fifty fifty. Well, not me, my dad and Tyree. Yeah. yeah. And that was and it. Tyree we were, we were the whole the, promotion. Did Tyree draw on that? No, Bahama. Yeah, no? we drew. It was. We, I mean, we should have been making oh, money, did. but okay. at the end of it. Yeah, but you know, it was the old deal. Like at the end of it, we're like barely breaking even. And then it, after oh, yeah, three yeah. times, after three times, my dad said, well, fuck it. What's the, I'm not going to be, he wasn't in it really for the yeah. money, but I mean, to get jerked around and just go there and hear that you almost made money or, you know, the old scam. Yeah. But well, you we didn't ran, run we that ran the Pointiana. The... Did you ever run oh, the Pointiana okay, Arena down there? No, I worked for Black Jet Mulligan on that building. <laughs> That's the one where. Okay, I got yeah, paid. yeah. I read where you <laughs> where you worked. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was not a Charlie no Thompson people. affiliated building. Three people. The Poinciana Arena. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that's where Florida. <laughs> you worked at the Poinciana. No, they ran the. For Blackjack, it was his own thing. After Florida went out of business in '88, I guess right. it was '89. Um, the Florida ran that big, the Nassau outdoor stadium in there in Nassau, the big, like a big outdoor type thing. It looked like a Thunderdome or something, the chicken wire over the whole thing uh, so they couldn't kill us. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I never saw, yeah, I never saw that, that one. Yeah, that place was <laughs> weird. But yeah, yeah, I know what yeah, you're Yeah, they were the wild down there. Arena. They were very wild down there. Oh, yeah. It was like, you know. Gee. Yeah, I would you hate know, to be I a heel just, down there. That, like that's where it gets scary in in places like oh, yeah. that. You know, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I seen your TV show actually right before I was getting ready to go out to Oregon. I was staying down in uh, over in Miami when I worked the convention center one night. You said it was '84, right? Your promotion. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Okay, yeah, because it was on. It was on some channel. Um, I was just in a hotel down there. Getting ready to go back to, you know, I was getting ready to go to back to Orlando and then back then then on to Oregon. But I saw that TV show actually because I remember Tyree being on there and and yeah. I knew it was an independent. So, but I so, don't remember right. much. Wait, wait, so let me get the, let me get this straight because I I'm, I was not familiar with with a lot of this history. Uh, so you're basically mm-hmm. essentially running an outlaw, Howard, and right. but you're still showing up to shoot for Graham's crew. You're talking about the. I mean, uh, that takes a some balls. Of- <laughs> You're you're talking about a level <laughs> yeah. of like um ignorance that like is just off the chart that looking back in history it sounds astounding but it just happened organically. It's like well cuz I was no big deal as a photographer. We were no big deal Thank as a God. as a promotion. It's like Eddie. to me I'm like what? What's the big deal, you know? Like 
It just happened very organically. It just like one thing flowed into another. Like I'm hanging out with these wrestlers. I'm hanging out with these wrestlers, and it just. Happened. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I mean, because I was never indoctrinated into the backstage of Florida wrestling. I was never, you know, like I would have no reason to ask Kevin Sullivan permission or anything. And yeah, but I don't think like, that excuse would have. I don't think that excuse would have. That excuse wouldn't have flown very far, like in Memphis. You know, I could see Lawler coming up to a guy and say, wait a minute, are you are you actually backstage at my event and you're running opposition to me? And you go, yeah. it happened organically. Well, <laughs> well you kind of just, I mean, at, I was yeah. 15 years old. Nobody has ever smartened me up. My dad answered an ad in the paper. Right. I, what can I tell you? <laughs> but it was kind of yeah. the best of both worlds because – the Florida thing had run its course because I was leaving town anyway, and then we segued into that part of it. Yeah, that's so, what Bruno San Martino always said. The best part of being blackballed was that he planned on going to university, so it didn't matter. Ah, uh, university. <laughs> you, you poor people. <laughs> what? So. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Hey, by the way, this is a good time to mention what amazing timing – you had in creating your hip, hiccuping fabulous mula character considering hey wait a second oh, as you know brian i don't want to derail you i don't want to i don't want to create a manifesto here or a filibuster but you know i know everyone in the business right <laughs> okay well i happen to have a personal friend here right now who's been chomping at the bit to say hello to you guys come over here <laughs> you got any weeds is this is this Hey, guys, I know a lot of you have been here a lot. There's a lot of rhubarb. (laughs) A lot of rhubarb (laughs) and fuss. And I just wanted to comment that I don't appreciate it. Now, here you go, Howard. Thank you, Lillian. (laughs) Did you say she was chomping at the bit? See, see, this is not a character day, per se, because I'm basically a chilled-out entertainer right now, so I don't want (laughs) to... I don't want to destroy the character before it gets going. It was much better earlier in the day in my head. So one day, just a little force spice for you people, but but she's going to be in good form the next time it's a proper show. Well, listen, one day, in all seriousness, that segment was so popular. That segment, Howard, was so popular. (laughs) One day we'll have to play on the air because I have it. I have it here. The real ending that I said, there's no way I will ever allow this to be on the show. That I had right, to right. Could you only imagine? Oh, my God. Yeah, we may have to wait a little while before we play that on the air. It'll, it would, it'll be the show's Bill Maher moment. How dare they? <laughs> not how dare they. How dare you? Let's not make it big. Yeah, I have no limits. I have, a, I, have a, I have a soul as black as night. I have no limits. Who has been gone for years? What has to happen? No. Has to die now? <laughs> No, I want to know what happened. What, what happened. So listen, what does the consensus seem to be regarding Mula? Because first it looked like she was guilty by, you know, reputation. And then uh, a lot of people are coming out and saying, we don't see that. We we never saw any evidence of that. Peggy Lee Pleather came out in her defense, other people. So, I mean, you guys are more tuned into that. What do but we is think it, is the it, real the real deal? Yeah, but isn't that sort of like the Stockholm syndrome where people identify with their kidnappers and right. <laughs> that kind of thing? I mean, uh, right. yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, I, the closest I've ever come to, to that end of the business was when Cora Combs tried to stick her tongue down my throat, um, which which I thought was a great violation uh, on human decency. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, not, I, even, I, not even Debbie, but Cora. No yeah, way. exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Even her name is from 1936. 
<laughs> she pulls up on a on a painted wagon. I'm Cora. <laughs> oh she has a big God. hoop skirt. Cora. That's the oldest name I've ever heard. That makes May Young sound like a spring chicken. <laughs> oh my gosh. Cora. Nice to meet you. But please, Scott. No, but but I, you know, I, I guess I'd heard the stories too about Moolah just, you know, uh, coming up and just being a being a fan of it, and occasionally you'd hear some stuff in the dressing room about her being a pimp and and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's funny that WWE would would try to paint her as this uh, trailblazer uh, for women's wrestling when actually. It seemed like to me that she was the one that sort of held it back for so many years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, everyone wants to debate whether or not she pimped out her girls, whether or not her girls were treated really, 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 you know, uh, badly, almost subhumanly. I want to know the answer. What happened to all that money she raised for the wrestler's retirement home? That's what I want to know about. The LIWA was raising money every year at their annual convention, and then they would go to other conventions. You'd see Moolah with Mae Young and Diamond Lil. They would show up all over the East Coast whenever there was anything, raising money for the LIWA's wrestler's retirement home. What happened to that money? I mean, we we know what happened to that money, but what happened to that money? I remember that lady, Killam Gillum, what she said in that lady's movie, uh, that Moolah was supposed to make a place for all the women to retire. And she asked if she ever made it, and she and they said no. And she said, "I didn't think so." You see that movie? What was it called? The Lipstick and Diamonds. Like Moolah was it? Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. She was saying stuff like that in the movie. I remember she wasn't happy with Moolah. You remember that yeah. that part? Oh yeah. yeah. She's blessed oh, yeah. with a great name. So. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Fabulous Moolah is a great name. <laughs> you guys, do any of you guys remember? And Scott, you don't answer this. Uh, because I know Scott knows it. Does anyone remember Cindy Lauper's nickname for Moolah when they were feuding? She had a name that she would say to put her down a little bit. <laughs> Does anyone remember? Oh. She would call her Shmoolah. <laughs> Shmoolah? Oh, yeah. Leilani Kai, you know Shmoolah! That... <laughs> you know, I was going to guess yeah. that, and I'm like, no, that couldn't be it. <laughs> Shmoolah. <laughs> Shmoolah. Oh, God. Well... Where should we go now with this conversation? I don't even know. You know, I'll tell you one more. I'll tell you one more Moolah tidbit. Um, she actually called my dad. If you want to call back to one of my earliest exploits, um, after Christopher Love ripped us off, the word got around the community apparently, and some other guy that got ripped off by Christopher Love was in touch with Moolah. So one day, my she calls my dad because apparently the word was like an underground network of people that had gotten fucked by Burt Prentice. Hi, I hear you're into getting ripped off by people in wrestling. I'd love to talk to you sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it was kind of, so Moolah was just trying to help us out. She had no agenda, but she was like, um, hey, I understand, uh, Christopher, love ripped you. I don't think she was hiccuping in those days, but I can't refrain. (laughs) And she's like, and she's like, I heard that you were looking for Christopher Love. And, uh, so my dad told me, guess who I spoke to today? Fabulous Moolah. I'm like, get out of here. (laughs) And my dad cared so little about the wrestling business that he had this big piece of paper that had like all these numbers on it. The Sheik, Fabulous Moolah. And I, and like, I'm like, what'd you do with all those things? I wanted to put it in my Rolodex for life and everything. He's like, oh, I threw that away. No one needs that. I don't need the Sheik's phone number. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, what was he called? He's, he's like, it's just the Sheik. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, and and we're, wait a minute. Were Moolah and the Sheik tr- trying to figure out a way to get his money back? Well, the Sheik was involved. My dad's just like, you know, because Cyclone was our booker for a while. 
And so Cyclone involves some old school names like Mighty Igor and The Sheik and uh, some people like that. I got you. And um, we had Larry Sharp down there one time. And um, Travis, if I can make a um, – ah, Travis Heckle, if I can do a, uh, a shout-out to him. He wanted to hear this story where we're all sitting – Larry Sharp worked for us, at, and we were at Charlie Thompson's compound. So as part of it, like he fed us like these fried chickens. And like he had a hotel, a restaurant – and an arena. It was like all inclusive and hookers and drugs. Oh, so it was completely my, oh. I didn't part. I mean, you know, my dad was straight. I was a no, kid. Of course not. Whatever. But so. Of course um, not. So Larry Sharp is there, and this is the this is the part that Travis wanted to hear on air, and and it's like Larry Sharp wanted to do a Harlem Globetrotters, but with midgets. That was his. <laughs> that was his big idea. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was, wow. that, was that was that in Miami that that place you're talking about the building or I mean the no no in in NASA at Charlie Thompson's oh, really? place yeah we were we were discussing it over fried chicken he's like you know it would be big midget basketball like the Harlem Globetrotters but all the oh, <laughs> and it was my job to go to go roust him and I think there was like um oh, God I think there was like um. Well, it was my job to roust him one day, and he looked like—I mean, if you've ever—if you ever saw anyone who looked like they just woke up after a hurricane, it was Larry Sharp. Uh, but he was a really cool guy. He was like a—you a, know, like a laid-back Jersey guy. What, what was he the was name cool. of this business? That was the slash fried chicken joint slash. I don't, I don't know. Point <laughs> uh, point point it was, I mean, these are, these are like some of my favorite things. <laughs> well, it was, it's probably still there. Charlie, Charlie Thompson was like a, um, he was the guy down there. He was like the Papa Doc of that area. Like nothing, you couldn't go there without him and you couldn't get your money out of there without him. Not that we had to worry about that, Charlie, but. Charlie huh? Thompson or Charlie, Ma Charlie Thompson or Charlie Major is this different guy, right? Now I'm confused. Because um, I know. Jeez, I think there's two different guys. Yeah, I think Charlie, Charlie Major, Major. is our guy. The Poinciana Arena guy is our guy. Oh, okay. I don't know. I remember Charlie Major, as I always talked about. Huh. That might be the guy. I'm a little dazed and confused right now when it comes to names. But um, <laughs> Charlie, Th yeah. I think it was Charlie Thompson, but I think it might be a pseudonym. Huh. Can we get you know? Oh, yeah. I think Not it might sure. be the same guy, because whatever I mean, I think there's a Charlie Thompson and a Charlie Major. But whenever you hear a story about them, it's like the same story, like they own the town and oh. you have to go through them. So it might be the same yeah. guy. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, okay. Just wonder. <laughs> Is that everybody still on there? Car Scott Cornish too. And that's it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna add. I haven't heard him for a while. I'm gonna add one more wild card to this. Right now, let me type in this person's name, and that's not the right name. This person has many names. It's so the know. idol. It's not going to be the idol. idol. Not today. Not today. <laughs> I know. I figured that. Let me add this person. They usually answer the phone very energetically, and that's what I expect here. <laughs> Jim Cornette? No, it's not going to be Jimmy. It's not be Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hello. Yo, yo, yo. What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah! Oh my god! Oh, oh god! Yeah. Ghost of the dark! <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so many voices, only one phone, man. Welcome to uh, <laughs> opening day Star Wars, Kurt Brown. 
Ah, greetings. Oh, sounded different. Hey, Kurt. <laughs> hey, man. Kurt. How you caps doing? <laughs> hey, I haven't hey, asked man, anyone yet. Here. Good, how bro. are you, brother? Hey, guys, I haven't what? asked anyone yet. Hey, by the way, Kurt, you're on the line with the golden boy, Jerry Gray, the noted humorist, Scott Cornish, the host of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Scott Bowden, and, of course, troublemaking Howard Baum. But I did want to ask oh. everyone... Before we get going, because uh, I haven't asked anyone here, we talked about it earlier with Kevin Sullivan and McAdam, but one by one, who do you guys predict to win the World Series this year? Jerry, I'll start with you because I know you're such a big fan of baseball. Uh, Cleveland Browns. <laughs> okay, well, uh, wrong league, but that'll go down as your vote. Scott Bowden. No, I know. I'm joking. I'm kidding. I don't want <laughs> I, I, pro- I probably know much about baseball as Vince McMahon does, um, but I'll say uh, I don't know. I'll say I'll say my uh, my adopted hometown Dodgers. How about that? There we go. That's a reasonable pick, Scott Cornish. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go for the Mets. I don't even know if that's correct or, or it is correct. I, yes, thank you. I'll go for the Mets. Oh, very good. <laughs> I, I, I approve that. Uh, Howard Baum. Yeah. No. All right. Back to Jerry Gray. Do you want to stick with Cleveland Browns or do you want to pick a different team? Uh, uh, Mets. Mets. All right. <laughs> okay. You just guaranteed yourself another Who's 10 appearances on the show. Uh, Kurt Brown. Who's in it? <laughs> oh, uh, it's going to be one out of the country by uh, the ghost of Benny Hill and his ill-willed Cthulian troops. <laughs> Oh, there we go. <laughs> I've learned this real through sports crew here. What's that? Real sports crew. I thought, yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought Howard Baum might the say. Passion uh, really comes through. I the passion really might, comes through. I thought Howard Baum might say King Lawler's army. This is how much a sports guy I am. My nickname with all the gals that worked for a while was Kurt Rambus. And then <laughs> they made some further reference about Rambus one day, and they're saying, do you know who Kurt Rambis is? And I just kind of shrugged and I said, some kind of sports guy, I guess. And <laughs> it's like, they're just all busting my balls, cracking up. And uh, she says, do you know what sport? And I just shrugged and went, I don't know, football. Rambis sounds like a pretty uh, footballish name. And they're saying, oh, my God, no, it's basketball, you, you dork. And then I said, oh, yeah, what, what team does he play on? They laugh even harder because I, I, he wasn't playing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a mythical sex creature. <laughs> Dirk Rambis. Why, thank you, yes. Death. He rises. I think that's what Kurt was Vandal going for. Rambis. It's Vandal yeah. Rambis. Get ready, ladies. <laughs> yeah, sp- speaking, speaking of which, speaking of mythical sex creatures, I've had a lot of people ask him when Howard Bomb's shorts are going to be appearing on the Kentucky Fire Wrestling Podcast. <laughs> Um, segue of the segue yeah, of the I, year, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not, yeah. thank you and good night. Those are, those are I have you know, Scott. Those are in the uh, Iowa Waterloo Hall of Fame right now, right, right next to Lou Fez's original belt. So, just for your Jerry Gray, Jerry Gray, please yeah. do your best. Do your best Elton Owen impression. Oh God. Well, they all sound exactly the same to me, Don. All they ever said was, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Uh, there's not that many people. It's just everybody's free. The kid's free tonight. If you, if you think the crowd's good and they get hot, you know, because they know you want more money. 
The crowd's That's good right. tonight, Elton. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. No, the kids are free. It's cold outside. The people got big coats on. It looks like more people. <laughs> yeah, excuse for everything. And at the end of the yeah, night, I think. always expected him to wave and go, That's all, folks. I mean, <laughs> oh, God. He, he's even he the trippiest trippiest looking person i've seen in wrestling and that's saying a lot and he was actually wait, wait a minute actually wait a, minute. a wrestler <laughs> what about what about buddy wayne yes <laughs> but no about, buddy wayne hey, jerry per- perfection compared to him what's that buddy wayne, jerry buddy did wayne, you work did, buddy wayne would take did you work portland minute... hang on hang on howard <laughs> buddy wayne would take <laughs> these 30 buddy wayne would take these 30 minute intermissions and you know, be like a four match card. I mean, two matches, a thirty minute intermission, one more match, then a thirty minute intermission. I'm like, buddy, what, what in the hell are you doing? He's like, he's like, well, the, the people they're buying more popcorn, you see, and they're going to get thirsty, so then they'll buy more cokes, and then they're going to buy a hot dog. And and I mean, yeah, you know, he, you know, I'm just like, him. wow. Yeah, he, yeah, he huh? was. I said to stay at his house one time for all day long once. Me and Bob Cook waiting for a ride from his son Kenway. That was a, that was an adventure. <clears throat> what was you gonna ask me, Howard? <laughs> hey Jerry, did you ever work um, yeah. Portland around Christmas time? Yeah, yeah, I was there. They, did you I ever receive one of the uh, famous um, Cornish hens? Turkey. Right. Whatever it was. Well, that's gave, right. And you know what I he did? But did you ever hear? But did you ever hear for huh. the midgets? They gave him. Cornish hens. When they gave the guys turkeys the Christmas time, they gave the midgets. They gave the midgets Cornish hens. You're, you're joking, right? Because I believe a kind of Don Owen. That's the real. That's, I believe. I read it. it. I read it somewhere. Hey, I believe uh, it. I wasn't there when a midget was there that time. Hey, let me jump Jesus. in here real quick. Yeah. I wanted to say, uh, Kurt. Kurt would appreciate this a lot. I just got uh, a copy of the wrestling scene by Guy LeBeau with an introduction by Mel Allen. This book came out in the early 50s at the first uh, boom with television and wrestling. And I'm going through it. It's such an interesting book, and there's so much in here that's really cool. Not everything's factually correct, though. But it has a list of who's who in wrestling, and it has a picture of Little Punjab. Little Punjab, Martin Kardashian, the little Armenian Argentinian. Oh, my God, no way. He is five foot seven and weighs 210 pounds. He is single. One of the toughest little men in the ring, Punjab takes them on, size no object, and gives them a good working over. He speaks 12 languages. So there it is, a, a, a Martin Kardashian, and I know I always kill his last name, and you get it correct, but I profile Let's him from this book. Karadagian. There we go. Karadagian, and the only reason I, I've known that for so long is when they used to say his name on TV, I'm saying, what the hell is this guy called? Ka-la-la-la-la, or... And then finally they had his name up there. You know, they didn't have a lot of graphics, and, and I'm just spelling out saying, what a – okay, that's a trippy, a multi-syllabic name for a dim child like myself. <laughs> oh, they aired that yeah, out. Yeah, he had his run. California. He had his run. Huh. And it, huh. it was one of the mummies here in the United States that g- gave him the epiphany uh, to do the mummy in hmm. Argentina. Yeah. I'm assuming it was Benji Ramirez. Huh. Oh, yeah. Jesus. I don't know which mummy that was. It was in Florida. When was Benji? Do you know? Was he in the seventies too, or not? I think uh, no sixties. Okay, because there was a yeah, mummy Benji, in Florida. I think it was the 70s. <laughs> yeah, there was a mummy in Florida in the seventies, and he was out there talking to a couple of rats, you know. And uh, <laughs> was, he, I mean, was he wearing, was he know, wearing the garb? Ladies, I'm single. <laughs> uh, he must. He must have been because uh, I'm, you know how Eddie Graham. How I haven't been with a woman in two thousand years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Eddie Graham. 
<laughs> Eddie Graham was so pissed off. He said, "They said uh, I heard the story from I think it was uh, Den- Bob Roof or somebody, but they said Eddie Graham was so pissed off. He said you're supposed to be a mysterious guy, and you're out there talking to a couple you know rats. Well, he called him something else. He's like, you're fired one more time. I was like, that's pretty damn funny. He knows Eddie Graham was killing something like that. Jesus. <laughs> oh, he takes God. his, he takes his pants off and dust flies out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Want to go back to my tomb? Oh, my God. I like Johnny Legend was involved in a, in a porno flick where the Aztec mummy did get his first blowjob in like 2,000 years. So. <laughs> So if you want to witness it, it's it's it was for originally released as Sex Mex, and uh, then what? later on DVD of Nimpo Libre. <laughs> oh my God, the King of the Arcane! Get... There it is, folks. <laughs> no further proof. How did we get here? Oh my God! Who in the world would know that? You're the man, Vandal. Well, the only reason I know is because I had a walk on. I I, I didn't perform. No, I mean, it, they oh, shot a scene where oh, where the Aztec mummy's having a pizza party, uh, surrounded by other masked wrestlers, and Lucky Pierre's one of them. And uh, some strippers come to the Christmas party, and they get into each other. So we do what uh, guys normally would do: says, "Oh, let's leave the girls alone. Here, let's go out for a breather, guys." And then the three girls just have sex all over the place. And um, yeah. <laughs> wow. So. Yeah, there's so much to to break down from that. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, hey, really. hey, let me mention something, guys. Hey. I uh, I was up really late last night. Uh, you know, me, Suzanne, and the baby were up really, really late. I couldn't fall asleep. And Bachelor Party was on TV. And I haven't watched that in a while. And that was one of my favorite movies when I was younger. And it holds up. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. It's up there with Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and The Godfather and Godfather 2. It's such a brilliant movie. The acting is way better than it needs to be for a movie like this. Yet it's so good. It's so funny. It holds up. It's not totally gross like Revenge of the Nerds is now when you go back and watch it. You could still watch yeah. this and feel wow. decent about being a human being. <laughs> Tom Hanks, right? Yeah. It's Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks when I thought he was going to oh, be yeah, the I next like Bill that. Murray. Brian. Yeah, I like the hot dog scene. The hot dog for the old lady. Well, speaking of the hot the dogs. Guy comes out with yeah, the... that was uh, Mr. Yeah. Nicholas, otherwise known as Nick the Dick. But uh, yes, Scott, what were you going to say? No, I just, I just was wondering if you That's accidentally... Right. I just was wondering if you accidentally thought this was an episode of Breaking Kayfabe with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> with Powder and Barry. Well, I love when those subjects kind of stream top... into it. They're awesome. <laughs> your, your top five sex comedy. <laughs> hey, Kurt, you're an L.A. guy. I don't want to, like, hijack, but you, Kurt, you're an L.A. guy, and I just recently witnessed something for the first time. Did you ever that? see the Jeff Walton dubs of the classic – dying days of L.A. wrestling videos. It was the kind of the Colosso Colosetti era or John Tolos in his later days where he complete. I don't know if he was ever good. You're a California guy. Tell me if he was any good because I grew up on seeing him in the magazines. And what I saw of that era of like 80, 79, 80 uh, L.A., he was so bad. Well, one thing but I anyway, remember, no, let, was, me, let me sidebar uh-huh. that for one second, but I want to know if you ever <laughs> saw these Jeff Walton voiced over, because they took all of the arena sound out. Like, they could have left the original Spanish version with the crowd noise in as an A-roll, but no, take the whole thing out. I've, I've seen Walton, those, yeah. 
doing the worst commentary on even decent stuff. <laughs> there was like a really bloody cage match with that weird cage they had out there, which was excellent. I'm a fan of the LA cage. <laughs> they had the Pampero Furpo cage, you know, the yeah. Lassie, the Sheik cage. The cage, so, yes. So, yeah, so, so uh, Pritchard was working, uh, Ron Starr or somebody, I think. Nice bloody match. And Tux Newman, um, Jeff Walton, was giving the worst voiceover to it. And it's like no crowd noise. And it's like, and here goes uh, Tom Pritchard. He's angry now. Climbing over that stage. <laughs> really, uh, you know, he's saying to his people, I'm going to do it for you. Like the war, like Bill Apter on like Zanuck would be, no. you know, like Bill <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, I, do, I have seen those. I have seen those. Yes, that was Jeff. Well, I, I think I think you got to understand. I think he's a bit of an artist, and part of the art is to act as enthused as the wrestlers and the fans were during that time in 1980, and that's how excited well, no the fans Gene LaBelle. were. There's no Gene LaBelle. There's nobody to go. Yeah, is there a tougher guy that acts as silly whenever you see him on video as Gene LeBron? I just watched that video of him stretching That's onto great. Guerrero and just beating him up. And then at the end, they're like, he's going to take on these 20, you know, fake fighters. You know, because I mean, these people are ridiculous. It's like watching The Last Dragon where one guy barks and one guy eats wood. Like, these are the tough guys that Gene LeBell's going to take down. And, like, he's not standing there, like, with his fists out. He's in, like, a, like, a, he gets into, like, his little Donald Duck pose and he's, like, just making faces. Right. And I know he can kill every single one of them, but it's just so silly. Is there a tougher guy that was just as silly on TV as Gene LaBelle? And then the red hair caps it off to make it even more cartoonish. And you can do nothing to get – sit down and try and talk seriously with him. You cannot get that guy to answer a question seriously. It's like he's a walking rib. Totally. I just saw the trailer. Did he I just saw the trailer for that uh, Olympic Auditorium documentary, and it has him in there, and he's talking about how much he hates his brother, but he's, like, hamming it up. He's, like, he's like in front of a framed picture of Mike with his fist out. He's like, hey, Mike, this is for you, whatever he was saying, but he's really hamming it up for the cameras. It's so funny. <laughs> you know what? I think he's died in the wool kayfabe because – I was working on a book thing long ago, and I sent him like an early version of it. And one of the things I threw in was like a glossary at the back before this had been done to death. And I'm like, here's a glossary. And I had a bunch of terms in there. He writes back to me, sends me a Christmas card, a couple of uh, patches from his dojo and everything. And he's like, dear Howard, Vince McMahon made a lot of money uh, exposing the business. Good luck with your venture. Merry Christmas. Gene LaBelle. <laughs> and this was in like 2005 or something, like well no. after the death of every – I'm like, oh, but I respected it. I respected it. Well, I think it was in 2011 when Fredo Sparse and I, we did the Slam and Stand podcast. It was like right around my birthday, and our friend Ryan Doyle actually got Gene LaBelle on the show you know, to call in and be the guest, and – they didn't tell me they were going to do it. They said they, you know, they had somebody uh, on saying, "Hey, Kurt, we have uh, somebody special who wants to talk to you." And I heard this voice just going, "I'm psychic," and somebody says, "Your birthday is March 12th." And I'm going, "Well, March 13th," but that's you know, <laughs> beside the point. And he he's not sounding like Jingle Bell, and he's not giving any clues. And 
I said something like motherfucking, like I have no motherfucking idea who this is. And then he goes, I do not tolerate cursing. And I'm saying, wait a minute, now the voice is sounding familiar. <laughs> and, and I did, the, oh, I wasn't fucking cursing at all. Why would the fuck would I do that? And then he gives another hint, and he said, I used to sell boletos at the Olympic Auditorium. And he's the only person who uses that term, boletos, Spanish for tickets. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is Jean LaBelle. And wow. so I spent like the next five minutes fawning over Mr. LaBelle. It's just, but then we tried to ask him some serious, like, kayfabe questions. And he would just answer in, in one-liners or just, you know, something like that. And then he just says, if you really want to know this information, Jeff Walton is probably the man to talk to, not me. <laughs> so Wow. Yeah, so he, no, he is kayfabe to the end. You know, so he really oh, stretched actually, uh, Stephen Seagal, right? Right? I just yeah. want to know if anybody knows that. He really did, okay. Yeah, for the story, but true. he won't. He won't. He won't never. He won't never say it himself, you know. But everybody else says it. He just kind of. I think he said, "Well, he had to go to the bathroom. He had to go to the bathroom, and then <laughs> he fell asleep." That's pretty much what he says. <laughs> well, you know, the tough guys are usually the ones who don't actually talk about it. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Everyone right. else does. That's oh my God! Mind. And I remember uh-huh. being a kid, and Jean LaBelle would act, act afraid of the Wolfman. The Wolfman would go running around with his oh, wool on, and it's like, "Save me, Jeff Walton!" It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would act totally like he was intimidated by, uh, yeah. you know, mid-card wrestlers, even. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what was funny? Do you remember the year that Inoki got honored at the CAC? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that year, I was either at Gene LaBelle's table or I hobnobbed with him a lot, but I got a lot of conversation in with him. And I don't know what year that was, maybe 2005. And um, so Inoki's up there. Inoki comes off all humble and everything like, oh, you know, big first time out of comfort zone. Meanwhile, Gene LaBelle goes to me. He speaks perfect English. I knew him when he was Tokyo Joe. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, wow. And then, and then, and then, I Noki acted like nobody has ever acted at the CAC, where he had this entourage around him. And before, during, an, before his speech, they they put out the like David Lee Roth, like trail to the stage in front of him. He went up to the stage, he did his thing, and acted all humble. And then he went. They escorted him with his with his whole entourage around him to this other area, right say. next to the banquet yeah. area. And he posed for a couple of pictures for like twenty minutes for like Japanese photographers and stuff, acting like King Wah, and that was it. <laughs> so when he was in front of everyone, he's like, "Oh, such big honor!" Oh, and Gene LaBelle's like, "Ah, oh, please!" I knew him when he was like <laughs> speaking English. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, I used to work him in Japan a lot, and he would say. Come on, son of a bitch. I mean, talk perfect. <laughs> Laughing like and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Hey, guys, you before... You can see in the uh, matches. Yeah. I, I have one more person I'm going to be adding to this, but before we do that, real quick, <laughs> Scott Bowden's here, and I'd like to get Scott Cornish's thoughts on this as well as everyone else. What does everyone think about the recent stories we've been talking about on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, the Monday night Mill Moscaris mystery? Was Mill Moscaris <laughs> in Memphis in 1979 as a heel doing a stretcher job for Jackie Fargo or not? Has everyone been following this, and what is everyone's thoughts? Yes, yes, he was. There. It was yeah, Neil. I, I believe it was Neil. Totally. <laughs> That's what Jerry Jerry from the photo. I mean, 
I well, no, that, vaguely that's... remember seeing a. What's funny is that that photo that I posted recently, obviously, I mean, it was just to kind of get Jim Cornette riled up as if that takes any real prodding. Uh, but that was from, that was from, you know, he goes, show me one picture. And I was like, okay. And then that picture came through. And obviously it was from world class when Mill kind of came in. He was actually tag teaming with Jeff Jarrett, which kind of goes to, it goes back to the relationship. Obviously they bring Mill in because he goes so far back with Jerry Jarrett. That's such a close relationship. Which stems from Mills' relationship with Salvador Luderoth. I mean, it all makes sense. But uh, but Jim was like, "No, show me a picture from Memphis," and I was like, "Oh well, that's just nitpicking." I mean, come on, what more do you want? <laughs> um, but you know, to me, it makes sense. I mean, because again, it was just a different time. It was sort of like, and Jerry Jarrett was trying to explain to me if I sent Lawler to work for Luderoth in Mexico, if he if he told Lawler to go in there and wrestle a donkey, Lawler would do it uh, and 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 do the uh-huh. job. You know, uh, so to, again, to me, it makes sense because it just goes back to a different time when relationships actually yeah. meant something in the business. And, and when the debate started happening, one of the things that crossed my mind is uh, from the early 50s up until his death in 1963, uh, Charo Aguayo, who was a huge star in Mexico, but uh, he was, you know, with uh, the Ghoulist promotion from the 50s till his death as like, I think must have been a road agent or something because you'd see his name everywhere as the referee and stuff. But uh, I know he was connected with Salvador Luderoff, and I wonder if there was some you know connection from the Luderoffs to the Jarrett's uh, between them, something like that. Yeah, Jarrett claims it was at a NWA convention where they met and and kind of hit it mm-hmm. off uh, because I think Jarrett was pretty wide eyed and was very respectful and kind of in awe of everyone. So uh, I think, you know, that, and I think he gained a lot of respect, you know, when he, when he cut away from Goulas and got the backing of Eddie Graham um, and, uh, and, and gosh, who else? Oh, and Fritz von Erich was, was, uh, was key into uh, Jarrett getting the nod from the NWA when he split from Goulas. So I think that there was that respect that was formed by this young guy who, uh, you know, stood up to Goulas because everyone knew Goulas's reputation in the business. Yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Is Jerry Jarrett known for his uh, his ability for his reputation as a prankster and <laughs> his ability to uh, no. his ability no. to uh, no. Lipton style uh, switcheroo and <laughs> well, here's the thing. I think he's <laughs> he's a he, he, backstory. You know? Yeah. Well, he's always been upfront about uh, the ringers that they brought in. You know, he explained the whole, even the deal with uh, Dick Steinboard coming in as Mister Wrestling in '77. You know, that was going to be the big feud when Lawler came back. Uh, that he was going to feud with. And then Valiant came in during, for the Southern title tournament and got over bigger than anybody anticipated. And he called an audible. But the whole the, the plan was, even though he brought in the ring, he was using pictures of Tim Woods in the program. And obviously there's a big size difference between Woods and Steinborn. And he Jared was explaining that he had actually been in contact with Woods and that they were going to bring him in at, uh, to, as they capped off the feud with Lawler. Like Woods was going to come in to assist Lawler in the feud with this imposter, Mr. Wrestling. So even when they did it on a very high profile level, like bringing in Steinboard as a, as a ringer, supposedly it was going to lead to something else where he was going to be exposed. Um, so to me, like Jared has nothing to gain from this. You know, I think even Cornette has kind of taken this route where he's saying that I must be the bastard child of Jared, Jared somehow, ah. which I can assure you is not the case. Uh, and that he's trying to protect my childhood memories. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, it's it's kind of a fun little debate. But even the picture that I that I posted, I guess people are saying because 
Mill didn't look as defined in, in 88 and 89. People going, oh, that's an imposter. That's not the real Mill Musker. So I'm like, really? <laughs> Uh, and 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 Mill Moscaris rarely, but he did occasionally do jobs. Believe it or not. Yeah. Oh, hold on, I mean, hold when on, I, when guys. I was ten years old, they aired they uh, <laughs> aired one night the Texas Death Match he had with Ernie Ladd, and uh, it was a stra- You know, he got carried out. Wait, no, he didn't get carried out, but he was like that was one of the Texas Death Match. You know, you had to pin the guy, and then you had to. He had to be down for a ten count after that, so you're flattened once you're uh, once you've done the job. And Moscow is like totally put Lad over, um, and it was a beautifully worked match. Lad Lad was working, was just selling for Moscow throughout the whole thing, and and had the the crowd like totally into it. And wow. then when Moscow got screwed, it just looked so ironic. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hold on. Guys. I hope I'm making making oh. sense. I, I I have to pause. I am like baked out of my fucking mind because. Hey. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I have a sinus infection. I have a sinus infection. I was tired. Of just, you know, I'm a real pussy about that kind of stuff. It's like. Uh, what strain? I don't even What's the strain? <laughs> oh, the old well, Jack okay, and see. excuse. Took a handful oh, yeah, of uh, these little eucalyptus <laughs> mints that uh, has five milligrams THC and a uh, little bit about one of, one of those gummy sour belts. I would guess that's probably 10 milligrams. You got any Skywalker um, OG over there? Or how about some Sunset Sherbert? Oh, <laughs> I OG, that are my favorite. Cherry pie and Durban poison. Bubblegum. Underrated. <laughs> It's too bad Solomon's not still on. <laughs> Durban poison and cherry pie, man. You 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 light up and you, you feel great and you feel alert at the same time. It's just like so needless to say, that's not what I'm on right now because I'm just kind of like uh going stream of consciousness, no particular direction. <laughs> All right. Well before we go any further and talk train wreck and talk Austin George and train everything wreck's else. Train wreck's a good one too. Yeah, well, hey, train wreck. Let's get our last guest on the line here. We'll see uh, what he has to say. I'm dialing him in right now. This will be the final guest here on the show. We are now well over three hours into my- opening day Star Wars. I'll give my oh, hour. Uh, my theory on Mascaris, though. Hello, America. Yo, yo, yo. What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> Michael Anno. <laughs> Bob Barnett, welcome to opening day Star Wars on the line right now. When do you hear this lineup? The humorist Scott Cornish, Kurt Brown, the host of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Scott Bowden, the golden boy Jerry Gray, Howard Baum, and I think that's everyone. That's enough. Yeah, welcome to the show. <laughs> we're, we're, talking, enough. we're talking marijuana and Mill Moscaris. Do you have a story about either one of those two things? <laughs> well, yes. I saw Mill Moscaris at 70 dr- driving down Hollywood Boulevard in a rented black uh, Eldorado. Wearing his mask. <laughs> was, was he smoking a J? <laughs> uh, no. I, no, I, that I've got other stories oh, about yes. that. But, I mean, Neil, Neil wearing a mask at a stretch, at a stretch black Cadillac, it was just nuts. Besides the fact you weren't allowed to wear a mask and then drive a guitar. <laughs> that would have been great if he got pulled over. You know, glasses and registration. Fabulous. I, I'm Mill. I'm Mill Mascaris. <laughs> yeah. I want to go to Memphis. No, no, I detest. <laughs> <laughs> I think the coolest thing 
I think the coolest thing is when the luchadors wear a suit and do everyday activities, drive their 67 uh, <laughs> caddies and stuff. Like, just seeing them, like, that's how I conduct my life. It's yeah, the, I think that's the coolest thing. Mowing their, their lawns in their in their suit and their mask, yeah. <laughs> right. Which I understand. Which I understand. the mask on. That's what that's what Mill Maskers did the night after he did that job for Fargo and Lawler. He was cutting Jerry Jarrett's yard in his ah. best suit. <laughs> oh my god! In his best suit. And then and then, and then he was like a butler for uh, Christine Jarrett for a for a social party she was having. She let me she she let me table scraps and drink from garden hose afterwards. She's a very kind woman. Jenny, Jenny, please let me come to your house and serve your family food. Please, it's such an honor to be in Memphis. Yeah, it's only yeah. That's Mel. He's it's good people. Come to, come to he's, Memphis. He's salt of the earth. He's you can use. <laughs> Mel is salt of the earth. Very one of the people, you know. Hey, Bob. John Tolis, a good worker or not? He's a great worker. He's a he's a perfect worker. What happened around? How would you describe the seventy nine eighty period? Like what was happening for him during that period? Was he aged? Because I have never seen him like in action during his prime. And, he's been in the um, business like thirty years at that point. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, he, like hats he, off to him if that was. He'd been wrestling almost thirty years. I mean, he, who knows how beat up he was? But uh, I mean, he was still in amazing shape. He used to work in front of my house on the beach, and he miles every day, at least twice a day. He was he was a phenomenal cardio. He, he was. You know, he always he always ate really good. He was um, he was a great worker. I mean, he knew how to talk and he knew how to work and he really knew how to get heat. And also remember those 1980 tapes during LA. Remember why I said about the enthusiasm of the wrestlers? That might have something to do with it when they see those. Yeah, I mean, payoff. He, yeah, he, yeah. You know, he was selling he was selling cars and he was selling carpets and. You know, all sorts of shit shots to make you know to make ends meet because the labels weren't paying anymore. I love how he sold Lawler's pile driver. Uh, they were working on AWH. I think it was Super Sunday, the big show with Bockwinkle and Hogan on top, and Lawler gives him pile driver, and it looks like he's he's a, he's possessed. <laughs> you know, he's just kind of, <laughs> like like he's all wide eyed, like this 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 incredible force has just taken over his body. Uh, just, I did some hokey. They did some hokey old school spots in that match. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and Lawler's got like a unicorn airbrushed on his ass, which I'm sure just really helped to get him over as a serious wrestler right. in, uh, in AWA country. I used to see him shop at, at the supermarket. He, he lived right by me, and uh, he was even in heel mode in the supermarket. I mean, he would tell the butcher, trim that fat. You got it? You know. (laughs) See, that's how I picture Blassie, like, back in the day, like, walking around the beach and saying stuff like, hey, you, you know, being his, uh. Yeah, but Blassie was always, you know. In his bathroom with Mike Lano. You could always always tell Blassie was in on the joke. Tolis never gave that away. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever run into Mill? Did you ever actually talk to Mill, Bob? No, I was on a tour with Mill once, and no, he he couldn't speak very much English at all. And if he, or if he did, he was hiding it. But I mean, he was a miserable fuck. He, he wore the same suits <laughs> yeah. year after year. If you got close to him, they're all frayed. There's threads hanging. And nobody, nobody liked him. I mean, nobody liked him. But by the way, man of a thousand masks. I've seen seven masks. <laughs> no, he has a shit ton, man. Where's the no, other nine hundred masks? 
Well, you know, I enjoy him in his classic mask with the M at the top. That's Mil Mascaris. That's when you know no, you're getting Mil Mascaris. Dude, see, a lot of people, a lot of people are wrong about that. Uh, he, that was actually that, that, the the M actually stands for Memphis. <laughs> there you go. I'm dead serious. His, out of his respect for Jerry Jarrett in the territory, he put the big M on his mask. That's right. That's, that's true. <laughs> I have to tell you guys, you like it, it, you humbled me. <laughs> I don't know where it's ever going to come up again, but I will tell you guys, because there's a classic picture that just needs to be attached to all this and there would be no context for it. But at the CAC, I wanted to involve Mill in like a resurgence of his career and like do prints or some kind of. Um, I want to involve you, know, you in the resurgence of your career. No. <laughs> work with him. And he's like, so I'm chasing him around and I'm being all nice and I'm speaking to him in Spanish and everything. And he's like, so finally he's like, <laughs> So I'm like, Mill, so, because I don't need him to do what I'm fixing to do, you know? I'm doing, like, pop art of wrestlers and stuff. I wanted to include him in on it, give him a cut, and get the <laughs> mutual publicity. But I don't need him for that. It would just be nice if he was in on it. So um, I was working on the images at the time, and I went up to him, and I showed it to him. I'm like, la gente uh, gusta mucho, está bien. Es la gente, es la, es lo mejor, es perfecto para nosotros. I'm using like every word that I ever learned, and that was about all of them right there. And he's like, finally on the last day, he's doing his booth at the CAC and everything. And I go up to him, he's like, and, and what do you want? Like after seeing me, I was perfectly nice to him like for three days in a row. And he's like, okay, what do you want? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, no. First he gave me the speech about – no, no, no. I didn't say that. I was just thinking it. I was nice. So he's a legend. So um, Plus he was an old man at this time. And, and, he, and he's like, you have to understand. My family, we have, um, we have a, a trademark, a copyright. We, I cannot do a deal. It's uh, my family and everything. I'm like, okay, no problem. I'm like, do you at least like the artwork? And he didn't put anything over at all. Superstar Graham loves my stuff, I will just say. Just to balance the scales out. So Mill did, didn't put the stuff over at all. Didn't put his, his, I'm like, fuck this guy. So here's the beauty. Here's the fucking beauty. Okay, now this is where the photo comes in. CAC, 2012. There's Mill Mascaris with his lackey. He has like his own Stevie Richards that he carts around with him, this Mexican guy who's like, he's like one of, he's like his red from, he's like Elvis is one of his guys, like one of his Mexican mafia. mafia. And, he, and he has a couple of masked guys, and he has this lackey without the mask, and he has his family. His wife is really nice, and I think one or two kids. No, is he wearing a mask as well? So the daughter was like Juliette Lewis in Cape Fear, and I was Max Cady. <laughs> Because I zoomed in, <laughs> filled with Jack and Cokes, and fuck you for Mil Mascaris, and I say to the daughter, hey, and I'm being nice. She was a nice girl. I'm not, I wasn't an idiot. But I said, hey, so um, how are you related to Mill? And she's like, I'm his daughter. I'm like, oh, wow, have you ever seen him without his mask? And I crack myself up without even, like, waiting for the answer. And Mill's glaring at me through the mask and everything. I'm like, so what are you studying? And I'm, like, purposely talking to her. I'm not, you know, purposely talking to her to infuriate Mill. Then we pose for a photo that looks like from the Shining uh, photo shoot from, like, New Year's Eve 1921 where Jack Nicholson's in front. Everyone's all dressed up. There's Mill in a fucking tuxedo. And it looks like we're at our own private table. It was like a once-in-a-lifetime photo. Me and my buddy, John Mastandrea, and it just in a moment, we seized on it like a game of Tetris. Like there was an opening, zoomed in on it, 
<laughs> and there it was. It was like his whole posse and the two of us. And Mill was like, oh, fuck. And he didn't say a word to anyone through the whole meal, except when he needed something handed to him from his lackey or something. He really has an air about him. And I could see where every story ever told about him is true. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard one person say a good thing about him. Ken Patera, somebody, Ken Patera told me that in Madison Square Garden, he's like, take your fucking mask off. No one cares what you look like, asshole. <laughs> I believe it. Well, maybe, maybe one of my favorite stories ever on this show, and it's so inappropriate, but we can laugh about it because it's not us. Scott, would you mind telling once again your story of Ken Patera on Upstate New York Radio? Yeah, there's a, a value liable used to used to uh, get these wrestlers to call into a local Utica radio station, a morning show that he was part of. And he had Luthez call in one week and he had somebody else call in and he has Patera call in one day. And the host was kind of like a local bargain basement, Howard Stern. He thought he was, you know, a shock job. Oh, thank God. So, I thought he was going to say Howard down for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he's got Patera on there and Patera, we know now is kind of a live wire, but the, the interview is going the way it goes. And uh, the host joking around brings up Mil Mascaris. And he says, what about that guy, uh, Mil Mascaris? Uh, he's a little late in the loafers, isn't he? And uh, Tara, without missing a beat, just goes, oh, yeah, of course he's a fag. He's a Mexican. <laughs> it just that's, what Brian, that's what brian calls that's what brian calls the casual racism of ken patera i love that <laughs> the casual colonel Beers used to do the same thing he, hang, he went over in, in her baby's territory leaning against the fence before his match he goes well that guy's a fag that guy's a fag <laughs> This guy's a fag. And you're going to see the dress for all the fags there. I mean, he's... Okay. Bob, are you on yeah, speaker or something? No, I'm on a cell. I'm on a, I'm a good location. Okay, no, it sounds like you're a little underwater. That's why I was asking. Yeah, it's, 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 always, it's always great. It's always great when you get away with, with casual bigotry. I, uh, that's a fine art there. You're always looking at a fine line there. My favorite my favorite Mills Mosquers anecdote is about 15 years ago was uh, there's a like a card in San Clemente, some small town that they didn't promote well, and I think like 50 people showed up. So uh, Mosquers is going to the ring, and I think it was a tag, just he and three local guys. And then he gets in the ring, you know, does his wave, and then. He, he steps out of the ring and goes up to somebody in the crowd, and it's a little girl who's like six years old who has like uh, this clunky video camera in her hands. And he informed her that uh, she she is not authorized to video his likeness and that <laughs> she should, she'll be ejected from oh the arena God. if she doesn't turn it off. Wow. Adios! And then he Adios! His toes back to the ring and. <laughs> 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 and then he stretched her with that move where you hold the guy above your uh, your body. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> where you twist him all inside out. And it's like yeah. That looks like a painful hold, I got to admit. You know, like when Mill is not doing his sucking his gut in and, and running around, whatever. But when the, what I like about the Lucha is like the excruciating looking holds. 
Oh, totally. You know, like he would always twist guys up into um, really interesting positions that were shoot holds and they were really photogenic at the same time. <laughs> Jerry, did you run in the mill at all during your career? No, I never met him. I watched him when I was a kid on the IWA when they were, you know, with Ron Martinez and Pedro Martinez. He probably still has that belt, IWA world champion or whatever he was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, never met him, though. How are you? I understand, I, I understand he still has the stretcher. That he actually kept the stretcher that he wrote out. <laughs> hey, hey, Scott, uh, Scott Cornish, what were you saying? I just wanted to ask Howard Baum. He met Mill's daughter. Is her name Millie? <laughs> I love when Leno. Remember when we had that Leno column about like all the old wrestlers he had recently talked to, and instead of Mildred Burke, he called her Millie Burke. He's like, I was talking to oh Millie God. Burke the other day. <laughs> His abbreviations yeah, that nobody song. else uses is the greatest thing ever. There should be a glossary of like what every like a Lano abbreviation for every word. <laughs> Watermelon, WM. That's a good. That's a good uh, TG today. You know, tangerine for you normal people. <laughs> how do you even? How do you? It's it's so random the words he chooses to abbreviate. That's the amazing thing. It's like took my camera out of my BG today. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's no extra time. They used so the Western Union tele t telegraph operator before that, maybe or something like that. <laughs> you know what's great? He's obsessed. He's obsessed with whatever's going on out there in the in the um, <laughs> L.A. local weather girl situation. Apparently, because the feeds <laughs> that I get, the transition, the transmissions that I see are like. WTF is with uh, Jackie McGill. She replaced that cocksucker. Uh, it's Sophia Martinez. I don't like it one bit. Like, what? How could you be that invested in who's doing the weather? The seven, the seven thirty report was much better. She was much better on the hard camera, but for the live shoots, she's inappropriate. <laughs> wow. Oh dear. Hold on, everyone, everyone, stop. We're talking Leno. We have America's foremost Leno expert on the line right now, yeah. and we need to. Uh, any any thoughts on the abbreviations, Bob? No, I could never understand anything you talk about, and I, I stopped asking long ago. But, but listen, as far as this, uh, you know, six oh five meetup, we're gonna have you have to have Lano do a photo booth. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing. Yes, yes. And yes. I mean, mean Lano has to take the pictures, and he has to watermark everybody's pictures to buy, and you know, it's, it's, an old-fashioned one like a Degora type. <laughs> Any kind, but it's, he has to go under the thing. He has to go under the thing. The the powder puff has to go off the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, we put him in like a. He already has the handlebar mustache. Put him in an old stovepipe hat and a big jacket. That's <laughs> part of pay, the Pay him twenty dollars. Take your eight by ten. The photo will be horrible, and you'll never get it. <laughs> Uh, I would, I would love to have Lino when we do it, and I'm thinking a lot about it. And actually, I'm thinking more like it'll be a super podcast slash Arcadian Vanguard convention. That way, I get Ron Fuller and Scott Bowden and Jeff Bowdrin and various other people involved. We really make it a big fun thing. I want Lino there, and he ain't gonna just come. So he, he, you know, you have to fly him in, and I may actually get a sponsor to bring Mike Lino in. <laughs> And, oh, sure. and we'll have a table where people can get his autograph and treat him like the celebrity that he is in this crazy world of ours. 
And then you know he could take, he could take his pictures that no yeah. one sees and all his usual stuff. Did, did I, Brian? Did I tell you the story where, where I, when I talked to Lano that time when uh, Stu Stack, Stu uh, Sachs called me out of no. the blue? No. Uh, yeah, Stu Sack. He called. And he goes. Uh, he goes. Because I don't know if you know me, but I said, "Oh my gosh, yeah, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated guy." And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, um, "I want to ask you about this article about Tommy Rich you have on your site." And I said, "Okay." He goes, "When did you write it?" I said, "I don't know, about seven years ago." And he said, "Okay, well, I got a writer who I signed to write an article about about Wildfire, and it was terrible." And I told him to to redo it, and he came back, and it was amazing. It was a really great piece. And then I just started Googling some of the sentences, and I found them the exact same in your article. <laughs> no. I said, who was the author? And he said, he said, he said uh, Mike Lano. And I said, oh, okay. uh, get out of here. Uh, I didn't know that one. Uh, so then he, he gets him on a call with me. And he's like going, he goes, I goes, I don't know who this Bowden guy is. He because he, he must be a total liar. He's not he doesn't know that I'm on the line. And then I speak up and there's like dead silence. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. <laughs> and he goes, and he goes, Oh my gosh. He goes, now that I oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, I did read your article. I loved it so much. It must have been on, on an unconscious level that I was in the loop. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but these are not just thoughts and ideas. These are exact sentences. Goes, that's the other connection, Lano. Yeah, he's like, that's a tribute to your work. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I used to actually get his newsletter. What was that newsletter called? The uh, Wrestling Reality. Wrestling Reality. Oh, my God. Yes. That- I mean, that was, uh, I didn't know how he was. I thought he was a normal guy because I talked to him on the phone once. He, uh, what was, I was looking for NWF footage from Cleveland and he wrote me back. You know how he writes all over everything. He wrote back on the newsletter. I couldn't read, read, I couldn't read half of it. He said he had it. So then he calls me and he acts like I'm bothering him. He's the one that called me and he's like, I got to get off the phone. I can't talk very long. And I was like, uh, okay, you're calling me. And he goes, I have the footage. Just send me. $20 $20 or whatever. And then I send the money. He sends me, he sends me footage of, uh, remember the time Johnny powers team with Pat Patterson. And I think it was LA against, uh, Anuki and Sakaguchi, that tag team match. Uh, yeah, it was Johnny yeah. powers. Okay. He sent me that tape and like, like it was from, you know, the <laughs> Cleveland promotion NWA. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. What a scam. Oh, Just Lord. the way he acted on the phone. I was like, something's wrong with this guy. Cause wow. he called me. <laughs> And he's acting like I'm bothering him, you know. I got to get off the phone. I can't talk long, you know. I was like, okay. <laughs> I spoke to him on the phone when he was still operating on people. I used to hear the drill in the background when I oh, would talk geez. to him. He would call me while he was actually working on patients, and they were out cold. Oh. I assume they were out cold, but I would hear the drill. Yeah, I've got to say, <laughs> did you hear any screaming in the background? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Here's, how you, here's how you get him for the convention, Brian. You um, you hire somebody like uh, okay. You get Dr. D. David Schultz to come to the convention. Then you tell Mike that he can come and present a plaque. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> See, I want that though. I mean, that's yeah. what makes a wrestling that's convention legit. Is Mike Lano presenting a bullshit plaque that he just made to get himself over? <laughs> oh, See, that would make him that the Tommy White. Right, Bob, Bob. Bob, how many plaques have you seen Mike Lano make? I don't. I don't know if he makes them or steals them. I mean, he's he's come up with some really cheap trophies and plaques that uh, look like you know we bought them in a secondhand store or something. I I, didn't, I wouldn't read them, but I mean, they just didn't look new. Did he Did he make the plaque for Jerry Lawler winning the most popular wrestler in Mexico award? <laughs> Back in eighty one. 
Which actually, actually, you know what? And come to find out, Mill Masters cast the deciding vote on that. Like it, it was time, and he was like, in honor of Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Jets, big star Jerry Lawler, I make the deciding vote. I vote Jerry Lawler, most popular wrestler in Mexico. <laughs> well, guys, we are now approximately four hours in, so we're going to begin the wind down. And we need to uh, do a couple things. One is, real quick, Bob Barnett, I think you're the only person who hasn't predicted it yet. Who's going to win the World Series? Man, I thought it was going to be the Dodgers. They're going to get off to a slow start without Justin Turner. So I'm, I'm not sure about it right now. Well, like actual, actual insight. I, I just like Madden. <laughs> actual, actual insight into the game. <laughs> so who are you going to predict? If you're not going to predict the Dodgers, who, by the way, I know you hate. I was, who who the Cubs, it would be the Cubs because I, I love Madden. I think Madden's just great. Yeah, he's a great manager. Absolutely. Well, we need someone to leave the call as we begin the wind down, and this is always a tough process because someone has to volunteer to leave. Who wants to leave? Well, before before Kurt leaves, Kurt, call me. Wait, wait, Bob, what were you saying to Kurt? It was. Call me. I will. You got it. Okay. All right. Well, well, okay, I'll, t- I'll take that. I, you know, and I want to say I've really enjoyed this uh, opening day conversation. I was almost hesitant to come on because I was like going, well, it's probably going to be baseball and some wrestling. I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, I'm glad that's not the case. <laughs> well, the first because... 50 minutes of the show is me and Kevin Sullivan and John McAdam talking baseball. Oh, so there actually was some discussion going on. Yeah, okay, very much. Right, and then I came on and it <laughs> kind of went south. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, hey, guys, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, we'll get to the bottom of this uh, Monday Night Mystery soon enough. And uh, and also, Howard, if you could uh, arrange it to where your shorts could appear on the show. I've had a lot of fans asking. So uh, <laughs> anytime they have, they have like a cult status now. I got plenty of outfits from back then, man. Half shirts, the whole nine. Oh, wow. Yeah. I actually just saw on Twitter, Howard Bomb Shorts is a new Twitter account that just popped up. So <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. It's tremendous. Right. I, love, I love being in the public eye like that. Clearly. All right. <laughs> Good night. All right, Scott. Hey, send me a message. Me and you got to Skype or something. Thanks but otherwise, forever. we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye bye, Scott. There goes Scott Bowden from Kentucky Fried Wrestling. <laughs> Goodbye, fuckhead. <laughs> and, and how about if I sign off with the wisest words I ever heard spoken by Dr. Jerry Graham? Uh, oh. And that's after uh, smoking a room full of weed. And, uh, may the right hemisphere of the brain short circuit the left hemisphere. May the short circuit, <laughs> the left hemisphere short circuit the right hemisphere, and bing, you're there. The 605 can stress <laughs> okay. anybody else. Okay, all right. Totally. Thanks, guys. All right, take it easy, Kurt. Yeah, and by Kurt. the way, everyone, care, uh, episode 86, Kurt Brown and Jerry Gray discussing the Pacific Northwest. Everyone's going to really dig this segment. That's coming up on episode 86. And I believe Curry's just left the line. Yep. Well, I can go eat dinner, so I can leave. Yeah. All right. Bob Barnett. <laughs> yep. It was brief, but we'll have you back on the show soon. We have to catch up. And uh, thanks for being a part of this tonight. Okay, guys. See ya. All, All right. right take it easy, Bob. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. So now, All right, Brian. Who's left? Brian now we're Howard. down to the Golden well, hey, Boy, Howard wanna... Baum, and, of course, the noted humorist, Scott Cornish. Scott. <laughs> I don't want to be I the would... guest that wouldn't leave, so I will bow out Mar- gracefully. Morocco. Yeah, Morocco. Okay. <laughs> I'm not I can't bring any of my 
characters into the realm tonight because you know on the star wars i figure i'll play it fast and loose because there's a certain formula that goes into the preparation of each show and character days have a different preparation than just shooting the breeze days if you feel like a million okay let's see i i I actually i I chronic og i i very much appreciate that chronic og skywalker og there's lots of ogs out there and I endorse mm-hmm. all of them. The chronic is good because you can, you can. I did a little test run. You can actually speak on it, so I, I went for it. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> uh, Jerry, hey, feel good, man. We never, we never spoke like in real life, but we yeah, corresponded back cool, in the day. Man. So good. feel good, man. You know oh, that you're yeah. in my thoughts. Good. Thank all right, thank you, buddy. And, good talking um, with you. All right, Appreciate man. It. And guys, as always, it's an honor. And uh, I will talk to you guys soon. And Scott. And Brian, thank you for allowing me to be the Jimmy Valiant to your gentleman Jerry and your luscious Johnny. <laughs> that was my favorite line of the week, but I never, I never compliment, I never like comment enough on stuff that I find funny, and then someone else says it. So that was hilarious. That was my line of the week. My favorite, my favorite one from the last time you were on. I listened back like ten times because it makes me laugh each time. Was you, you have a certain way you deliver all of them, and then you go mentally stable, Luke Graham. All right, Howard, we'll uh, talk to you soon. And of course, you'll be on episode 86, I believe, as well. I believe the top 10 should be returning that episode. So uh, we'll uh, hear you back on the show very, very soon, if not the very next episode. Tremendous. I appreciate it, guys. All right. Take Thank it you, easy, everybody. Howard. Okay, buddy. Uh, take bye-bye. care, buddy. Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh, I just got, I just got some bad okay. news here just popped up on mine uh my uh facebook feed here um howard bombs shorts has already quit the show (laughs) (laughs) on the bigger and better things i presume (laughs) that's right (laughs) starting his own podcast all right all right brian unless you got you got anything else i know you're ready to close this thing so yeah we're gonna wrap it up but Jerry, before yeah. you do, you know, I always want you to give an update here on the show because the listeners, yeah. I know hey. they have, uh, they've really gone above and beyond many of them. And, uh, you know, we have the GoFundMe page oh, yeah. that you set up, of course, once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. If you enjoy Jerry on the Super Podcast, he's been a regular on the show lately. If you enjoy his stories, if you learn something, if you appreciate what he brings to the table, then please consider making a donation. It really will help him right now. Right now is when he needs it. He's battling stage four cancer he's a guy who saved his money and he's depleted his funds fighting cancer so please tinyurl.com slash go fund golden boy but jerry before you leave a little bit of an update here on the show about uh how you're doing currently yeah not doing too good i the doctor i went to the doctor the other day but the tests haven't come back yet the results the tumor markers are up high like and um the bone, I still have a bone growing in my sternum. That's what they're suspecting is bone cancer. I already know I have stage four liver, colon, and now they're saying bone cancer possibly. So there's, they're going to do more tests on that, CAT scans, and I need to get a PET scan. Call uh, It's called done, but that's really expensive. I got to wait till for that one. And then they have me on some pain med- management now, pain medicine, but for the, uh, all the pain I'm having with this, I guess is the bone or I don't know if it's from all the 30 years of wrestling or, you know, it's hard to tell which, what this pain's coming from, but it's a lot more than I ever had before the cancer. But I just want to thank everyone. They've helped me tremendously. Everyone, there's so many people 
can't thank everyone enough. And you, Brian, have been spearheading everything and all the mothership and everyone's just helping so much. And I really appreciate it. That's why I'll continue to tell every story that's never even been told. And like I said, I'm not uh, afraid to tell them. And I, I just can't wait to see the result from all the uh, how good that's gotten over with the Jake's uh, piss drinking when everybody <laughs> sees him here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I got to hear what happens, you know, with the uh, some everybody's going to be wearing T-shirts, I guess, to the uh, whatever he's going to be at that <laughs> the, the convention or whatever is going to be hilarious. I got to hear the story. But anyway, I appreciate everything everyone's doing. Uh, Travis, Scott, all both Scott's everyone. Just thanks for everything, and I'm and fighting. I'm not going to give up. Keep fighting. We'll keep fighting with you, Jerry. That's how it works. All right. I know you guys will. I appreciate it. Bring Thank you very much, you guys. All right. Take it easy. I Have a good rest are. of the weekend, and I'll talk to you later on, man. Okay, bye. Thank you, guys. All Bye-bye. Right. Scott, here we are, down to the last two. <laughs> One of us has to leave. Okay. Which? Who do you think it'll be? <laughs> I'll tell you what. How? I won't I'll just mute myself and you can. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Quite an enjoyable show. I want to really thank Kevin Sullivan. That was so much fun. I always love having Kevin on the show. Um, oh, he's great. And, uh, you know, our off air conversations are so much fun, but on air, it's always really good. And to be able to talk to him about baseball, I know some of the listeners are not big baseball fans. And I apologize if you felt the first 50 minutes of the show was uh, something you did not want to hear. Uh, but it's something I wanted to hear. It's very selfish uh, that, that I did this, and it was a lot of fun. And actually, I look forward to talking more about baseball with Kevin in the months and weeks and days ahead. But we'll see what happens there. But here we are, Scott. Of course, you and I, we uh, we did episode 85, which hopefully will be out by the time this show comes out. It's taking me a little oh. while longer to uh, get everything set just because of uh, chaos right now. I'm in the midst of a move and the baby and everything. But everything's about to get settled down uh, probably yeah. by mid-April. But uh, uh, I know it can't. It, it can't be me that's holding things up because I, I get everything in one take. No, although although we did uh we did edit everything because you and I actually recorded a bunch of stuff before oh, yeah, that's right. before everything really came out with the Moolah thing. So because what we said wasn't really uh by the time everything cha- it changed so quickly, we recorded in that brief period of time before Snickers pulled out. So uh, that's mm-hmm. actually going to be edited out of the show just because it, it also- now, now it's just not doesn't make any sense what we were talking about. We also recorded in that brief time before Dr. Mike Leno pulled out a Snickers. <laughs> Man, how about Leno plagiarizing Scott Bowden? Of it all is, the things, he finds the endless, most, the, the guy who writes the best columns, that's the guy he decides to plagiarize. He is too much, and there is no end to it. Uh, just no end to it. It's endless. Every time you think you've heard every story, here comes another one. Oh, that Leno, as they say on the streets. More stories about him or about the Iron Sheik? i think it's him but uh as we begin to wrap things up scott anything you want to say here to the listeners no that's pretty much it i i I had fun doing this (laughs) you i don't know if i was on the top of my game or anything but uh, that was a very fun lively conversation i hope everyone likes it and if you don't like that that heavy baseball discussion as i always say take the unused portion of the podcast back to where you bought it and uh, ask for a refund (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Well, 
With that said, we're going to wrap things up. Of course, you guys know how it works. If you want to get one of the new Mothership shirts, and we have a baseball shirt with three-quarter sleeves. I believe uh, the one we're using is navy blue, so it's a little bit of a different color scheme than the normal T-shirts, which are now on sale for at least pre-order. You can go to tinyurl.com slash superpodstore. We also have 605 Super Podcast logo shirts, Yo Mamba 605 shirts, and of course the polo shirts, sticker sets, magnet sets, and so much more. But uh, I'm not going to do the whole full length of plugs here at the end of the show. Go to Amazon, tinyurl.com, slash superpod, Amazon, and of course, facebook.com, slash superpodcast. But for all the many guests on this week, yeah, for all the many guests, and see, I don't want to edit either, for all the many guests on this <laughs> year's edition of Opening Day Star Wars, I'm the great Brian Last. We'll see you on episode 86. Tally-ho!